Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Hey, Michael, I'm um, your greatest fear. Billy Crystal? No! Yeah. I made the Legend of of Curly's Gold. Oh, no, Don't don't start doing Oscar monologues at me. I love it. Hey, you know, uh, in in L.A., they say that the worst thing that can happen is that it rains. In New York, it's when you can't find a hot dog. Hey. (laughs) Well, I guess I got to figure out what the weakness of Billy Crystal is in order to fight you. I guess it's uh, maybe starring in a movie past 2007 or something. Oh, I'm allergic to it. Only if my good friend... What's that little gremlin's name? Josh Gad is in it. <laughs> Are they friends? What? Uh, yeah, that's like the last. Uh, uh, I, that's the last movie I was in. I believe. Oh, I'm pretty I... sure it's a, it's a movie, a, a meta narrative about doing comedy with Josh Gad, everyone's uh, favorite comedian. Everyone's favorite little snowman who wants to die. Yes, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I'm Billy Crystal. <laughs> I'm very popular, 1975 to 1995, and now people don't know who I am. <laughs> and this is alienating all of our Zoomer, I mean, your Zoomer listeners. <laughs> this is this Because is I'm Billy people, Crystal. This is what the people wanted from our episode on it. <laughs> this yeah, discussion this it. of the career of Billy Crystal. I mean, it was happening at the same time. I mean, my career was happening at the same time. <laughs> As this book was out. <laughs> yeah, okay, hold on. Where? When was uh, When Harry Met Sally? Mm, I don't know. When does that I'm look? Billy Crystal. I don't know what happened. Right, I mean, you were living it. You didn't have to... 1989, okay. Oh, that's right, because uh, Ryder Reiner. did it after, um, after Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Let me read you something. Hey, okay. I'm Cameron. Okay, I'm not Billy Crystal. Oh, Billy Crystal's gone. No, he's not. That's the problem. (laughs) Let me read you something. You know, I wasn't going to break this out because this episode's already going to be long. Uh Let me uh, let let me because because you've brought up Billy Crystal, your greatest fear. Yeah. But now people are aware of. Let me read you this. This is from a thing called Digging It. And I'm going to I'm going to skip through it. But this is in the edited volume Reign of Fear, the fiction and films of Stephen King edited by Don Heron. It's one of the many books I've purchased. Mm-hmm. Uh, about Stephen King contemporary to King in the 80s, you know, the height of his powers, uh, with Patreon funds. Patreon.com slash range touch if you would like to support the show. I'm going to get that in here at the very beginning. But here's, here's, here's the thing. <clears throat> Before you open the book It, there are a few traits you must possess. One, you must have patience to follow the story, like through chapters that alternate from past to present. 
Two, you must have a keen memory for what happened to whom and when and why and how it all connects so that you're reading, oh no, to what you're reading at the moment. Three, you must have a strong stomach. Some descriptions are so vivid they can replace willpower for Dieters? What's a Dieters? Huh? What? D-I-E-T-E-R-S. Dieters? Die-O. <laughs> Die- <laughs> Dieters. <laughs> I was like, little, little Dieter needs to fly in this economy? It's like this just a tiny little German boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> replacing willpower for Dieters? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Hold on. Let me. All right. Let me. Let me give it to. Uh, you can leave that in, but, but yes. let me give it to us clean here, so uh, so it can prove I can read. Uh, yeah. Three. The uh, you must have a strong stomach. Some descriptions are so vivid they can replace willpower for dieters. <laughs> okay. Four. You must have a sense of humor. Ideally, a strange sense of humor. All this I stress before you start reading Stephen King's longest and take it from a longtime fan most complicated book. Now, I'm going to skip forward. There's a little bit of plot summary, which I think you're going to be doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and do, uh, do, 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 do. Uh, okay, this is the end. Uh, there's there's just like a whole like review kind of thing here of like talking about what's scary in the book, that kind of thing. This is the last paragraph. I wait for each new King novel as an alcoholic waits for that next drink. I am addicted. If you are not, I suggest you introduce yourself to Kingsworth work through one of his earlier novels, Carrie or The Shining. If, however, you are already a King addict, it will overwhelm you. Okay, so that's setting the scene for it. Mm-hmm. Now, this was written in, let me look here. Um, I, You know, I, there's no time, but I'm assuming 1985, you know, when the book comes out. Mm-hmm. 86, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess, sorry. Sorry, this is 86. Uh, guess who wrote that? Billy Crystal? Nope. You get one more guess. It's a comedian who was very popular in this time. 1986. Gallagher? Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg wrote the official, like, review of it for the LA Times. Uh, which is, which is great. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. It's 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 surprising, I guess, that they would have tapped Whoopi for that. But uh, it is. We yes, found out all from the people on the planet. <laughs> we found out from the stand episode. I don't remember if he even mentioned that, but like that was mm-hmm. like she was originally in talks to play Mother Abigail in the first film version of the stand, uh, and then didn't that did not come to fruition until the latest miniseries, right? When Robert Duvall was going to be in it. Another yeah. thing I've learned from these contemporary uh, interviews that I've been reading around this, because in 86, King was working on his script for The Stand, and it mm-hmm. was 400 pages long. Yeah, and I I also have been uh, picking up some of this information, particularly from uh, the Castle Rock newsletter, which was a sort of semi-official newsletter uh, put out, like a fan newsletter put out uh by like Stephen King is writing for it uh, and also with Patreon funds. Uh, I've been purchasing all of the back issues of it. I think it ran for like three years and I think I have two two complete years now. Um, mm-hmm. And they are often like sort of doing check ins with Steve on like where his various film projects stand and so on. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, I think in the latest article that i read in castle rock i think he'd gotten it down to 190 pages 
Wow. Only three hours. Yeah. A little bit longer than three hours, I guess. Uh, well, and I guess he never really got lower than that, based on <laughs> what we know about the stand. But anyway, so, you know, I think that's actually a pretty good intro to what's going on with it. Yeah. Dieters and dieters uh, uh, <laughs> aside. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's yeah. this is a big one. People uh, people keep pinging us about this bad boy and say, yes. I can't wait for you to get to it. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for you to do it. It is, uh, I, I think, maybe in the Gunslinger episode we talked about this, that there are basically like three candidates for like King's magnum opus. Uh, one is The Stand, one is the Dark Tower series, and then one is this book, It. Uh, and I think it's like, generationally, this is definitely like, the more millennial Zoomer kind of thing. Zoomers helped along because of the recent films, I think. Because, mm. um, I mean, we've had people in the Discord, like, mention, like, specifically, like, either being a part of or having friends who were, like, a big part of of uh, the pop-up fandom around the most recent film version. Yeah, I found that very interesting. That there's, like, uh, the movie came out and there was, like, a pop-up fan. Like, everyone loves that that dastardly clown. Mm-hmm. That little goofball. <laughs> Uh, when did you first read it? Like, what was... Do you, I you have read any memory? It. Oh, I know exactly when I read it. Okay. I read it in the sixth grade uh, in social studies class because I had a great social studies uh, teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was truly excellent um, for the first half of the year. And then he was terrible <laughs> because he went to... Uh, on vacation in Jamaica, like in the middle of the, of the school year. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess I guess for the holiday season, Thanksgiving, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he went to Jamaica and he got a massive infection in his hand while rowing. Huh. Okay. Yeah, he like cut his hand and he was rowing in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. You know, like on you know, like on a canoe or something. He got a big infection in his hand and he was like in and out of surgery and stuff the rest of the year. And so he didn't really do anything. Ah, okay. Uh, You know, I mean, we did some stuff, but it was not, I mean, he was a very good teacher. Uh, Definitely like a highlight of my generally bad educational experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. But but yeah, so in that back half of the year when like half of the people who taught us were just substitutes who like gave us worksheets or whatever, I like blazed through those things. Uh, And then, you know, because I'd already played Caesar 3, the video (laughs) game. So I knew everything you could know about like the ancient world. Uh Uh-huh. So, uh... So yeah, so that's what I did. Uh, I, um, I I sat and read it. So I, I I can you know can I can tell you that I read it in the spring semester of my <laughs> sixth grade year. I explicitly I sat in the front row on the right hand side, second <laughs> from the 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 wall. Like I know exact I know the time and place and space in which I did it. Um, so none of those memories faded. No, no, that's the only, uh, for all of these things, I don't remember much about my, like, childhood in a general sense. I don't have very strong memories of, like, anything that happened to me before the age of, like, 15 mm-hmm. in a general sense. You know, I've got, like, some pieces, but some people can tell you, like, all kinds of things that happened to them, and I just can't. I don't I don't have a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember when I read it. Because <laughs> um, this was, like, part of my, like, you know, Stephen King run, right? I think I read right. Needful Things during that same time. Um, I think I read like the doorstop, you know, books. Mm-hmm. I think I might have read Tommy Knockers there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I remember exactly. I remember who sat b- behind me. I think that that'll <laughs> probably come up in this episode. Weirdly enough, again, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I remember very explicitly when and where and under what conditions. 
Uh, did the so you put out a little like uh, straw poll on Twitter? Are mm-hmm. the results of that in? Because I want to well, know they... like of those options that you gave. Uh, Cameron asked people why did when they read it, like why did they read it? Um, why did you read it? I don't know. I think I was just reading all of Stephen King, which okay. is in fact what everyone. So I put out a little poll about a week ago on uh, on Twitter, and I just said, "This is the text. If you read the King novel, it as a teen, please choose one of these options for why you read it." Um, and the three options I gave with an other explained, and then the other explained people mostly use that as a way to elaborate on one of these three. I would say these three these three baskets captured most responses. I would say mm-hmm. uh, so about eight hundred people replied. Uh, long book equaled impressive. <laughs> so you know, like a little bit of like I'm a little kid here. I'm you know I'm reading a big old book. That's nineteen percent of people. Mm-hmm. Um, twelve point five people said that it was against the r- rules. You know, it was it was risque. Yeah, uh, to read it. You know, Stephen King, gooey, spooky. And then fifty point four said you read all of King. Wow. You know, you were just reading a big run of, and most people explained in the replies like I just read a bunch of King. I didn't read all of King, right? But right. that that's what mm-hmm. that was intended to capture. And then eighteen percent said other, and then they mostly said things like the vast majority of people said things that I would just consider to be part of those three buckets. Right. So I, I, that's why I read it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think Dia uh, in one of the responses uh, said that that cover was super scary with the little. Uh, oh, the, yeah, the claw the, and the sewer. The grate. claw, the green claw. I also experienced that as a kid. I was like, ooh, that's spooky looking. <laughs> um, I think I might have put like a paper cover on it, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? You remember when you could do that? When, yeah. when, like, I wonder if kids do that now. I feel oh, like they don't have books. They're that. all on their iPhones. Oh, I guess that's right. They all have like these weird surveillance laptops they have to use. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we had a little book, and you could like put a little cover on the book, you know, like a little paper cover, and tape it on there. And I think I might have done that with it because I don't believe I had a library copy. I believe that I had like a person's copy, but I don't remember whose whose copy it was. It might have been my grandmother's, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, that's all to say. Um, but then I could have just taken the hardcover cover off i don't know i remember it being quite scary and not wanting to look at it i do remember that um but that but so 50.4 people said hey i just read a bunch of king and this was part of it that's definitely why i got it uh i don't know can you tell me exactly the time and place and space that you read it for the first time and why you read it michael oh absolutely um this is very i was on the moon (laughs) i was i was on the moon uh there was a pile of dead wizards there for some reason Mm -hmm. um no uh so this is uh uh you know really fascinating because I read it uh the summer that I turned 12. Um so I was like 11 and tw- like you know the I I have a summer birthday so I started reading it when I was 11 and I'm pretty sure I turned 12 while reading it. Um and therefore I am you know precisely the age of the kids in in the uh 1958 timeline. So that was mm-hmm. like very striking to me but the reason I read it uh, was because I had read, um, it was my third Stephen King book. So the, I, this is after this, it's like a total crapshoot. I don't remember what I read in what order, but for whatever reason, I remember very specifically this progression. Uh, the first King book I read thinner, as I said on that episode, I wasn't sure if I was going to read another one cause I thought it was boring. Uh, the second King book was the shining 
And that was my mom's copy that I grabbed off uh, the bookshelf. And I read it kind of like on a lark because I didn't have a great Stephen King experience. But like The Shining like blew my mind. Like it is hard to overstate like how impressed I was at 11 years old with The Shining. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was like, oh, actually, like that was the moment where I was like, oh, this Stephen King guy, like he's actually got it. Like, you know, I read one of his bad books, but like this dude can do the thing. So then I thought, well, what is what should I read next? And I looked at kind of the Stephen King oeuvre uh, up to that point. And I knew about it because I'd seen I always saw like the when I went to stores, I would see all of the Stephen King books like the Signet paperbacks um, in the uh, book section. So I knew about it because it had like the clown on the cover and there was also like the the VHS of the miniseries was always in stock at Walmart. Um, Hmm. So I knew about it and I knew that it was this story about like an evil clown that lives in the sewers. Uh, And then when I found out that the book was like, you know, over a thousand pages long, my thought was like, oh, all right, this must be uh This must be the bit like the one, right? Like this must be kind of the if they let him. This is how little, you know, I understood about Stephen King as a figure. Uh, But in a way, I was correct. If they let him write a book this long, it's got to be him like just really doing all of the things that he's good at and awesome at forever. So. I went down to uh, that summer. I was uh, staying at my grandmother's house. Uh, during the day because my parents would go to work and my sister was like in some sort of daycare program, I think. Uh, But I would walk down to the town library and I wanted to check out it and they wouldn't let me because I was an 11 year old (laughs) trying to check out uh, uh, this book. And I had one scary book, please. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get my um, uh, mom to write me a letter saying that it was okay if I checked out Stephen King books. She acquiesced because she was the one who was giving me Stephen King books anyway. Uh, And I checked out it and I read it in like a week. And I remember feeling like I I read it mainly like sitting on the couch at my grandmother's house. Like, that's my memory is just like laying on the couch at my grandma's house reading that book. And this was also a summer like where I read a whole bunch of Stephen King because I was reading, um, I think, like maybe eight to ten books every week. Like I would just like that's what I would do is I would get as a bunch of books from the library and just spend the week reading them all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like it was the one that dominated an entire week. And it felt like a real tour de force because of the big, long importantness of it. Uh, And also just some of the like uh, uh, in similar to other experiences reading early Stephen King of like hitting moments, scenes and so on, where I'm thinking like, you're allowed to do this in books. Like people are allowed to write about this stuff. (laughs) So Uh, and maybe they shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes maybe they should have uh 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 Kiskose, uh cooled their jets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are definitely definitely parts where even as like a you know 11 going on 12 year old I was reading this and thinking like I don't know if this is working in the way that it's maybe supposed to or like I, I I'm not sure what the effect is supposed to be here but I can say it's really weird in what it's actually doing. Right. So. <laughs> that's my that's my history with it uh and this is my first time rereading it you think kids these days have to uh you think they got to get the the note from their parents to check books out of the library these days 
Oh, no, I'm sure they just, like, uh, uh, pirate them from Russian websites or something. Right. God, I wish Russian websites had existed when I was 11. Yeah. The, uh, because, yeah, the, uh, I had to, I had to get the, I didn't have to get the letter for, or, you know, like, the note from my parents for Stephen King books, weirdly enough. I already had it because I had to do it to get the Silmarillion. <laughs> <laughs> which i read like right before I, I went to like a huge tolkien thing yeah when i was like in the fifth grade maybe fourth grade fifth grade i mm -hmm. like read all those books and and the Silmarillion was the book where it was like you need a note to learn about ancient elves <laughs> it's like i'm sorry you cannot read the elf bible without your parents well, permission so i think that was the thing i think it was like in the you know like slightly more adult whatever library because it had this religious-y kind of thing it was like an occulty mm. kind of book uh yeah. you know in the, the the evangelical mindset of right my local school system so i think so but yeah you know i uh was to say too i was also about the same age right what i think six sixth grade is like 11 12 yeah. right mm -hmm. um so yeah we both read it i think at uh, uh, well, maybe not age appropriate times, but age equivalent times, right? Yeah, uh, you know where we were the age of of the young uh, people, and now we're kind of the age of the old people. Yeah, it's it's a weird feeling to <laughs> have read this at that age, and now I'm I'm you know I'm they're closer to middle age because it's like twenty seven years or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but boy, I sure wish I had faced an ancient evil that summer that then made me incredibly wealthy and successful. Uh, I did, but it didn't work out. <laughs> I did, but I blew it. I was offered a bunch of Bitcoin in <laughs> 2009, oh, Jesus. and I just said, "This is silly." I said, "This is good. this is gonna this is like burning uh, styrofoam in my backyard. I'm not gonna do it." And that clown did a little wink and ran away. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I, ancient evil, whatever, easy. Mm -hmm. uh, did all that, but. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So they're a little bit older than us, but but uh, it is quite a weird thing. And I have reread this book one time in the middle. I reread this book when I was in college, so mm, okay. um, I've got kind of one shot in the middle here. But I don't really have any strong impressions of it. I, you know, I'll be honest. I think weirdly enough, I read this right before I read Book of the New Sun for the first time. Oh wow! Like <laughs> I don't think that's related in any way, but yeah. it is weird. I like I I do think this this was because I I oh no I think I do know what happened. Uh, Under the Dome came out. I read Under the Dome because that happened when I was in college and I was part of that big weird price war that happened. So I got it for like $8. Right. And uh, I got that and I was like, I want to read another big old Stephen King book. Let's read it again. And then I read it. And then I read Book of the New Sun because uh, like I think someone on a forum recommended it to me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm probably not ever reading Stephen King again. <laughs> I found the good stuff. And lo and behold, here I am. So what's really funny about that is, uh, I think timeline-wise, that's also about the time that I read Book of the New Sun for the first time. <laughs> so you and I are like in weirdly in sync here. We probably read it on it about it on the same forum at the same right. Time. We probably read the same forum post, and we were like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, Gene Wolfe, Pringle guy, C Catholic. I love Pringles. Sign me up, yeah." I love Catholic Pringles. We got to talk about this book, Michael. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I do get a sense, of, you know, like you said, uh, people do treat this as the magnum opus, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is the big one. This is the one people anticipate. Uh, I, You know, we'll get to it. Uh, but I do think at the beginning, it's worth saying that, like, this book is kind of overrun by its reputation at this point. Mm -hmm. um, people know who Pennywise the Clown is. They know the It movies, I think. And if you're, people are aware of the book and have read it, the only thing they talk about is the 
weird sex scene stuff that happens at the end, uh, which yep. we'll obviously talk about, and which has dominated questions that we've received about this book, mm-hmm. you know, in question sewer episodes or whatever, which we should probably do another question sewer here sometime soon. We should. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's like, you know, kind of the thing. Like, if, if you know about the miniseries, you know about the, uh, the, the movies, or you talk about the sexy. Those seem to be like the three things that happen here. And I will say the the majority or, or a big chunk of the um, the non non just should have gone in the other three bucket res- reply responses was I was aware of the miniseries. That was the the other kind of big reply. Uh, and some people also just like clowns. Uh, in my little mm-hmm. straw poll, I did. So <laughs> uh, you know you got got to hold it out for for clown enjoyers. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Calois. Cal- not one of them. <laughs> we should get Roger on here. He'll be like, yes, this is exactly what we need to like bring down the menace of clowns in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to game um, study study buddies, man games and play to learn about yeah, you how find... Roger Coa <laughs> yeah. hated clowns. Yeah. Well, they bring down the fall of uh, Western modernity. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't, I think, you know, I think that's, uh, that's kind of it for like big top level stuff, right? Yeah. I guess if you're listening to this and for some reason you have not read it, or I mean, there are actually several good reasons you probably haven't read it. Um, you know, it's long. It's a thousand pages long. (laughs) Uh, if you're listening to this, uh, and like maybe the beginning here, kind of hoping to get a sense for like whether or not you should read this book, um, as like just just to, you know get this at the top so before we really jump into spoilers and everything if you have not read a Stephen King book i do not think this is the one you should start with not only because of like the complicated uh, co- uh content and topics that are going to come up later um but just because it is like you can get something more efficient uh, in your hands that would let you know how much you like Stephen King so i think if you're starting Stephen King you shouldn't start with this book um and then if you have read Stephen King and haven't read this and are sort of like on the fence about it, I really can't tell you what to do. I'm sorry, because as I w- told you, Cameron, I would say maybe the the first half of this book is like being in the baseball park with Babe Ruth and just watching him crack out home runs like one after another for hours on end, except every once in a while for reasons that don't make sense, he stops and instead like whacks himself in the crotch with his bat. And you're like, that's weird. But then he just goes back to hitting home runs and you're like, okay, I can deal with this. The halfway point, things kind of switch and Babe Ruth starts like whacking himself in the crotch or like whacking his feet, like running around and like getting up in the stands and hitting people. And then he runs back out on the field and hits a home run. And you're like, well, that's what I'm here for. But then he's running up into the stands again, like doing all sorts of weird things. Uh, It's it is uh, incredible how much I felt like the the like engine falter at like almost the precise midway point uh, in this book. Yeah, and we can talk, I guess we'll talk about that more in there, but you have some uh, information, again, from the Castle Rock newsletter, which is going to be, I think, a really helpful contextualizing device. I wish we'd had it earlier, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, because we didn't know it existed, Um, but uh, 
part of the reason for that, right, is by the, he is revising this book and working on writing some of the, what, middle and ending while also doing Maximum Overdrive. Yes. The middle third, um, he says in, in uh, um, one of his columns in Castle Rock, he explains that he is doing revisions on the middle third of the book while he is uh, shooting Maximum Overdrive. And he talks about, you know, going to set, like wake, waking up in the morning, going to the set, doing things there having to watch dailies and then coming home or like not home but like to his hotel room or wherever he was staying um and uh like cracking open a couple of beers and doing revisions until he fell asleep in his chair i mean i think something that's going to be really fascinating going forward is i think that the movies or the books that stephen king was working on while he was working heavily on a movie are all bloated and I mm-hmm. think that's really interesting. I mean, mm. he's got several books that are bloated, but they are notably so. So move, here, here are books that we know that he was working on while working on a film. Christine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was working on the bulk of at least the first half of Christine while he was working on Creepshow. And he was finishing up uh, different seasons, too, you know, mm-hmm. ed- editing those. Um, this one, you know, so Maximum Overdrive and It. And then he was there for the Shining miniseries for a big chunk of it, and he was writing The Green Mile while he was mm-hmm. doing that. I actually listened to an interview with Stephen Weber that uh, McGarris did recently. McGarris, please come on our show. Everyone, please tweet at McGarris to come on our show. Um, but he was working on The Green Mile while doing that. And The Green Mile is also a bloated, mm. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. just just a book with stuff happening. Uh, and there's <laughs> maybe reasons for that, right? Because of that weird serial publication thing he right. did. Um, uh, that we'll talk about when we get there, but there's something interesting to me about that, that like the, the books that I associate so much with, uh, having just a huge amount of throat clearing in them. He was also kind of doing some other thing that basically was a full-time job at the same time. Interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that makes the books better or worse, but I do think that changes the quality of these books, um, in a, in a demonstrable way. But I think all that said, I think it's time for a five-sentence summary, and uh, you know, just so we can talk about the actual things that are in the book. Yeah, all right. The five-sentence summary is the part of the show where, off the top of our heads, we have to summarize the book we just read. Sometimes it's easier than other times, like this time. Uh, we take, This one's easy. This we, one's so easy. We take five sentences... We got to summarize the whole plot from beginning to end. Uh, so, okay, here's my five sentence summary of it. There is a town in Maine called Derry. Over its history, many awful things have happened in Derry, including a high frequency of child murders and or disappearances that are all happening due to the malign influence of a malevolent entity living in the town's sewers. Mm-hmm. That's two. That's two. Okay. In 1958, a group of seven children all have encounters with it and then band together in order to fight it as well as uh, their local evil greaser bully who is under its influence. Mm-hmm. In 1985, when the murders start again, 
six of them have to reunite in order to fight it once more. They succeed mm-hmm. both times because nothing improves a 1,000-page novel like it having two plots that both have the same ending. <laughs> I think that's five. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, this one's easy. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna do a little. Uh, uh, I'm gonna do my own here. We don't do this for you. This is a special episode, though. This is it. So we don't yeah. do this for you. Are you ready for it? All right. Five cent summary of it. Here we go. Uh, ancient evil runs into the earth. Children fight it and kill it. Children grow up. Adults come back and kill it. Yay! <laughs> That's it. The plot of this novel is is the most skeletal plot of anything that Stephen King has ever done. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're in its basic form, it is mythological. Oh, yes, ooh, ooh. I'm saying mm-hmm. that because Stephen King, uh, in a bunch of interviews and things that uh, Michael and I have read around this this period, asserts this repeatedly. And basically, everyone who's read this book in that what I would call like the Kingian official mode, you know, people who are kind of just interpreting it, uh, not maybe um, to enliven it, but just to explain what's happening, they all use these terms, mm-hmm. um, and, and we'll talk about why. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it at its core, that I, I think part of the reason for the popularity of this book, in a broad sense, is that it is a young adult novel. Mm-hmm. Those young adults are in 1958, so it's a little bit weird. It's a nostalgia <laughs> romp in that in that way, right? Yeah. But it it it's it is about the uh, lives of little kids, and the lives of little kids are not very exciting, right? But yeah. they are easy to digest, mm-hmm. and they are like, you know, there's there's all these like teen feelings in here, right? Of like, uh, I want to go on a I want to go on a date, but I got we we're going with all of our friends, and so like, is it a date? Hmm. I don't know if it's a date. Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about while reading this that I can see now kind of, you know, with the vantage of being an adult that I couldn't like, you know, I couldn't pick apart things formally in this way when I was reading it when I was like 11 or 12 Mm -hmm. was realizing that uh, as I'm reading it now, one of the reasons that this book is over 1000 pages long is not because like there is, as you say, a lot of plot going on, like incident really like incident that matters for the plot of the thing is very very small but we're going to get like six or seven pages on what ben hanscom wants to do after school yes oh more than that i I think they all get six or seven pages about what they do after school we get a whole little subplot about a weird little kid who's kind of a psychopath yeah Right, and I'm using that in Stephen King's 1980s terminology. Right, that's that is far off the mark of any way we would actually use that word. Right, but yeah, he gets his own 20 pages. Right, mm-hmm. of like a little subplot. The it, it is it is a book that is uh, unbound by any concerns about like um, uh, I don't know like keeping you on the path of the beam, as it were, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're just doing whatever the hell we want to do. It has this kind of sprawling summer feeling of like. We got it. No, nothing but time and anything we want to do. Yes, you know? yes, that We're is exactly the feeling. Uh, and we get. I, I mean, it basically is like, what if you took one of the protagonists? What if you took um, the kid from Silver Bullet, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, in in Cycle of the Werewolf. What if you took his story and then you wrote seven of them, mm-hmm. and then you put them all in the same book, mm-hmm. and that's half of this book. That's five hundred pages of this book. 
just kind of elaborating like what it's like to be a kid in 1958 and that's on purpose Mm -hmm. um i mean uh, king is saying that we've seen that in a bunch of different uh pieces as well that king is saying like this is a personal book for me this is me trying to talk about what it was like to be a child in the 1950s and a lot of the stuff that's happening here is biographical Mm -hmm. um you know so you were sharing some of them with me i can't think of any off the top of my head um that king talks about i can i can look well, uh, just a, a couple of things. Like Derry, the town, is mm-hmm. geographically based on uh, Bangor, Maine, uh, where mm-hmm. King lived at this time uh, and still maintains a kind of official residence, although I think uh, he and Tabitha live mostly in Florida. Um, but the Stephen King house with like the big customized like spiderweb gates is still there. I, uh, uh, In fact, uh, I went there and checked it out, saw it, like stood outside and got a picture taken, uh, and it was when the first... It remake had been released, so mm-hmm. someone had come through and like tied a bunch of red balloons to the fence. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, um, but uh, so it's geographically there's that. Um, but King has also talked about like uh, when he was the age of these characters, uh, he and his brother and his mother were living in Stratford, Connecticut. Uh, and so he said that a lot of his, like a lot of the sort of like specifics of like the kids growing up and kind of like what they were doing and what they were, where they were hanging out, like the Barrens. Um, the Barrens is this area in Derry that's kind of like, uh, it's not a park. Like I can't, I, I, there's not a good word for what this thing is. Although I know I, I've seen things like this in other towns, like a weird undeveloped, like, slice in kind of the center where just like a bunch of like uh drainage stuff is going to be and they just let it sort of like overgrow um like in the big city near me part of this was like in in an arboretum Mm -hmm. uh but uh he said the barons were actually a thing in stratford connecticut and that's where he and his friends would play when they were kids uh eddie casprack is based on someone that he was friends with uh quite specifically uh one of the first things that happens with the kids in the 1958 plot line while they're hanging out in the barrens is they build like a dam in one of the rivers and it like floods the barrens. And that was a thing that uh, King and his friends actually did because his brother, who is an engineer, his older brother, um, like showed them how to build a dam and they did it. And mm-hmm. then the cops showed up, including a kindly Irish cop who shows up in this book as well. You know, that was the thing, too, where I was reading this book. I was like, why is this happening? And lo and behold, it really happened. Yes. Right? Like, that's that's the thing, right? And all of this is to say, right, like, you know, biography is tyranny when you're doing doing reading, right? You can't you can't do this, like, 19th century thing of, like, and, well, it happened to Stephen King, so it's, it's true, and so blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. That's not what we're saying here, right? But the, the tone and the kind of uh, mood of the 1950s section is is a tone and a mood that is informed by Stephen King's actual childhood, right? And so right. he's borrowing real events and things like that right. uh, and putting them in here. And you and I have talked about uh, kind of as we were reading this book, something that looms really large over this, given what we know from, I think we talked about in the Dance Macabre episode, uh, that Stephen King doesn't talk about in any of the interviews that I read that are contemporary to this book coming out, like 85, early 86, um, but that he saw, uh, theoretically, maybe saw his friend get hit by a train as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Or maybe we talked about that in the body episode. I can't remember where we talked about that. Came but, up maybe both places, but because it's relevant in either place. Right. Um, but, you know, there, there's this kind of story that, that Stephen King uh, tells at some point in the early 80s about how 
he's playing with his friend, uh, and he comes home, and he's kind of in a daze, and, you know, uh, just goes up to his room or whatever, and his mother is like, what's wrong, blah, 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 and she finds out later that the child that, that uh, young, young Stevie had been playing with uh, had been hit by a train. And, you know, so there's this kind of, uh, and King apparently doesn't remember anything, mm-hmm. right, uh, like in his life, and so there's this weird kind of replication of a horrible thing happening to you as a child um, that uh, is kind of erased from your memory and only comes back in fits and starts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of um, shudders back into existence. That's also in the mix here, right? So again, I, none of this is to say like, oh, uh, the biography explains the whole thing because it doesn't. That's like a trap in reading. You don't, yeah. don't do that, right? That's a trap in literary analysis. Um, but it does inform quite heavily uh, what's going on here in the sense that he's pulling on real thoughts and feelings and maybe some kind of phantasmal ones that he doesn't talk about quite as much in his portrayal of 1958. And he said, again, he said so as much in interviews, right? He is trying to capture his childhood. He is purposefully reflecting on what it was like to be a child in the 50s in this book. Um, yeah, I don't know. Other other big big stuff before we like kind of talk about the trajectory of the novel and then maybe the characters. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's anything really interesting. So King, uh, wrote this over the course of four years, um, took him that long to write it and edit it down. Uh, he says in, uh, one of his castle rock pieces that, uh, this book was edited and they excised maybe about 50 pages of material. Mm hmm. Uh, the idea came while in, uh, Boulder, actually, they had moved Mm -hmm. out to Boulder and he was walking across a park and he crossed over a bridge and he was, uh, reminded kind of of the, the fairy tale of the three Billy Goats Gruff, uh, which just sort of, as he puts it, it's like the, the kind of like big picture entire model for the book just like bounced into his mind of like, kids having to deal with like a troll living under a bridge and then like uh, adults having to come back and deal with kind of that same thing. Uh, So that's interesting. The other interesting thing about that, just to touch on the documentary that we have up now on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash range touch, where we went out uh, to Colorado to see the shining opera. And then we went up to the Stanley hotel. Uh, You, speculated as we were driving up and this is in the documentary about whether or not like Steve had been driving these mountain roads in a car that was sputtering out or if he had just driven them and been like man it would suck to drive this in a in a car that was sputtering out because that's a big thing for the Torrances the other thing that is mentioned when he is describing getting the idea for it uh is he mentions their car was dying so seems pretty Mm. much likely that they uh, (laughs) took a dying car up to the Stanley that time that's wild. Yeah. When you call that's it, you a scary call thing it. to do. I know. Look, I mean, that, that's the thing about like, you know, going and experiencing the place because you're driving up that mountain and you're like, it would be terrible if my car stopped. Yeah. There's like very few houses up here. And I'm sure there were fewer at that time, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be bad. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah, so anyway, I mean, not great their car was dying, but great that, that I called that <laughs> shot. Yeah, but that's sort of like where the book comes from. He like lets it uh, sort of simmer for a bit, uh, writes it over four years, and then you know, and that includes like writing and editing. Uh, and uh, yeah, that that's just some additional background information, I guess. Mm-hmm. The yeah, so I, I you know, the general I, I think we'll do this because I think we did this in the stand, right, where we kind of like 
talked about the different characters rather than talking about plot going mm-hmm. forward because mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit easier. Because yeah. basically, this novel has a very um, you know I can only see it in almost like a uh, like in, like an interactive fiction you know like bubble chart you know uh-huh. kind of thing right like it's got like three things that are in a line and then it kind of just. Uh, like wildly explodes outward right? right into like all these different individual bubbles that are like told independently of one another. And then they all come back together. Um, but you know, the, the general gist here is that we, uh, well, uh, stuff to say at the, at the top, if you haven't read the novel yet and the, the, the summary, because it's five sentences, doesn't quite get, get there. Uh, Children in 1958, they fight it. Uh, and then they go and live their lives later in the in their lives they have forgotten all of that like it's magically erased from their mind until mm-hmm. mike not i keep wanting to say mike hanford and it's not mike hanford <laughs> mike hanlon it's not the it my it's not the comedian mike hanford no. <laughs> it's mike hanlon uh mike hanlon who has stayed in the town and forgotten nothing mike uh uh calls them all back and says hey there's all these child murders happening happening again you gotta come back mm-hmm. gotta go back to the island and then they all come back, and they uh, then they fight the thing again and do it. But there is this kind of interregnum period where they've forgotten everything that's happened in the novel. And so the way that the novel itself is written is that um, you have sections of them in the present, and they are having their kind of memories triggered, and then we cut back to the past. And then that's where the, the past sections happen. And as the novel goes forward, you know, across its thousand pages, that cutting back and forth becomes more and more rapid and less even kind of chapter based. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not just like they're idly, you know, they're in the car, you know, in the cab and they're going back to Derry and they're remembering and it happens. It's they're doing actions. And then we get what is the novelistic version of a match cut. Right. Like, uh, you know, a cinematic match cut in which something, you know, motion or an action or an image cuts on top of one another so think about like the uh like the twitter viral images of the fall tarsum mm-hmm. singh's film mm-hmm. or um about like basically any commercial you can see today uh those things are all happening so yeah like as the uh speed of the novel increases or as the like action increases we are we begin cutting into the middle of scenes and as you were talking about uh earlier basically the same plot happens twice right Mm -hmm. it happens just broken by 27 years or so and so eventually they are literally just doing the same things but we are cutting back and forth which actually makes some of the end of the novel a little bit confusing i thought Um, this was actually really cool and i wish it happened more I wish it happened more. Uh, I definitely like. I think it's very cool. But like when Eddie uh, gets killed, mm-hmm. I definitely thought Eddie was killed in the past. And I was like, <laughs> "What is happening?" Um, which obviously didn't happen. But you know, it's like his arm got snipped off, which we'll talk about at some point. But but yeah, I mean, basically, there's this kind of formal constraint that the novel is working in, uh, or not constraint, but I don't know, stylistic exercise that it's working through, mm-hmm. and it 100% is borrowed from. Stephen King's working on screenplays for the past seven years or so Mm -hmm. uh, by the time that this comes out. Yeah, it's really uh, I mean, I don't think of I've called uh, Steve a formalist before in the past. And I think that's true. Steve kind of like when he when he can get a nice like, uh, you know, sort of sloped structure that like builds up to a point and then slopes down so that you can like fold the novel in half and have like parallels on either side. He'll do that. Um, but I never think of him as going for something as kind of big concept in terms of structure as this, because it is 
it's weirdly clear for him. Like, it seems like a the sort of thing that he would consider, like, you know, a little too frou-frou or something. Uh, but the way, as you're talking about, that the alternation, like, uh, the ways that the present bleeds into the past and the way that that alternation speeds up to the point where we get to the end and, like, the two endings are happening simultaneously and you have to use like context clues to figure out whether or not uh it's adults or kids that you're reading about at at the moment i think that that is overall extremely cool and good and it like uh i mean you know thematically it really sells uh like the the concerns of the novel about like memory and who you were as a kid and who are you as an adult and like how do those things mm-hmm. sort of interact with one another i think that's like really sharp and cool um and it's it's weird to think like, you know, structurally, I think that this is really, really neat and great. And then also in terms of granularity, there's just a lot of stuff here that is questionable or maybe could have been cut or is weirdly repetitive. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've mentioned to you a couple times is uh, I noticed like um, a lot of repeated imagery in ways that didn't make sense. So there's a bit where Bill, who's kind of the the central protagonist um uh he looks at an old victorian house and then he thinks to him when he's an adult right um and he's a horror writer he's kind of the he's one of the stephen king kind of inserts i think there are multiple stephen king inserts here but uh, there are multiple somehow there are multiple stephen king inserts Um, yeah but he's one of them uh and he like uh as an adult you know he's a successful world famous horror author with a movie star wife um (laughs) Just my favorite detail of that. Um, uh, He looks at an old Victorian house and he thinks of uh, the opening lines of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which, you know, King loves, which I love. And he looks at it and he thinks, you know, and whatever walked there walked alone. Okay, that's cool, right? That's that's the sort of thing that Bill would think about being who he is and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Being Stephen King. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Then maybe about like. 25, 30 pages later, we're in the point of view of Henry Bowers, who's the, like, main bully that the kids face in 1958. Uh, he, you know, uh, is follows them, pursues them into the sewers the first time they face it, and it is, like, using him as basically a, a, a fallback plan or, like, a bludgeon or a cudgel, right? Like, it has all of these incredible magical powers, but... Um, Uh, I can't remember which character it is that thinks this. It might actually be Beverly or something um, who realizes at one point, like when they're kids and they're in the sewers, like, oh, it's using Henry because he's real, because it can be sort of uh, fought back. uh, You know, if you've seen the films, you know this, but like it takes the form of your greatest fear. Um, and then you can use that against it. You can exploit the form that it takes, or you can like use the power of your own self-confidence to fight it or whatever. Um, and someone, uh, realizes, uh, like, oh, it's using Henry because he's real. Like Henry can hurt us no matter how hard we believe at him. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. cool. Um, but he ends up escaping the sewers, but he's like been driven totally mad by the experiences, right? He encounters it and it kills two of his friends and it's like telepathically like talking to him and stuff. Um, and then he escapes the institution where he's being held with the help of it, uh, which wants to use him again to take out the the kids or the adults now, the losers club, as they call themselves. Um, and then Henry is walking down the same street sees the same house and has the exact same thought where he quotes Shirley Jackson to himself. 
And it's like, what? Well, I think in a general sense, right? I, and th- this is something that that I've had in discussions about Michael Bay in the past, mm-hmm. uh, weirdly enough, uh, with people, right? Is that Michael Bay, uh, especially in the Transformers times, right? You know, makes these really big bloated movies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, those Transformers movies, they're almost three hours long. Uh, they're two and a half hours. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But they are edited and written in such a way um, that they that they play for TV, right? Mm-hmm. Like every 30 minutes, the stakes are reasserted and re-clarified. And we know exactly what we're doing in any given scene, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a classic comic book, right? Like mm. we every time Spider-Man shows up, you're going to find out about what he can do, right? right. Because the, the assumption is like you're coming in and you don't know who Spider-Man is. And now you're going to know, you know, the little text box is going to tell you. Michael Bay is very good at that, especially in those Transformers films, because for the same reason, right? This is a big, weird universe of stuff and dependencies and all that kind of stuff. And Marky Mark needs to be there to tell you, hey, I think I found a Transformer, right? right. Like uh, the, the stakes are always <laughs> very clear. And I think part of the success of King in a general sense, but especially these big doorstop novels, is that he's always doing that, right? Like there's never a thing that can't be repeated uh, in order to make sure that if you've put this thing down or even if you're just powering through it, that you don't always know exactly what the stakes are. I would say 25% of this novel is repetition, mm-hmm. um, you know, of just facts and information that is repeated so you know exactly what we're doing at any given moment, which I don't think is a problem. You know, like, I think, I think maybe, uh, not maybe, I know for a fact in the 80s, the criticism that Stephen King is receiving from like the quote unquote literary establishment or even places like the Village Voice that are apparently just annihilating him every time a book comes out <laughs> um he he calls them out a few times in these uh uh interviews that i've read you know specifically as a as a a paper that's just hammering him for stuff they call him the leader of the post-literate movement uh which is like wild but uh the uh but but i think this is partially what they're critical of right there's there's not a lot of obscurantism in this book mm-hmm. um you know there's not a lot of like putting the pieces together in your head everything is a surface it's all playing together when people have depth it is like basic melodramatic or soap operatic you know i'm i'm using melodramatic melodrama in this case in its kind of negative form right of like Hey, it's a bunch of emotions and you're going to get them and everyone's going to tell you exactly what they're thinking at all times. There is nothing to be discovered about people that is not told you in text. There this this is a novel without subtext. Yeah. Um and and I think a traditional <laughs> like literary person is going to be like, "Well, if you know, if I can't puzzle out what Gatsby's really about, then it's not a real novel." It's not a real literary work, and I think King is really responding to that at this time. But that—that's half of this book. I mean, no, no joke. 20, if twenty-five percent of it is just repeating what we already know—images, thoughts, feelings, statements about what people are doing—you know—that's twenty-five percent of it. Another full twenty-five percent of it is just people's interior monologue that is very clear based on their exterior monologue, <laughs> but and yet we get that repetition anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, I don't know, Beverly. I think you're pretty cute internally, Beverly. I thought she was cute. <laughs> I just, I thought she looked like a summer breeze. Yeah. yeah. It's like, why are we, why are we doing this? But I think that's partially why this novel is successful and why people really like it uh, is that it is in the in the YA literature universe, right? Because that's mm-hmm. exactly how they work too, right? Like, Katniss Everdeen has no interiority that is not fully explored by the narrative itself. Right. We know all of her thoughts. We know she likes kind of that weird little bread man, you know, and the big buff hunter man. She liked both men. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's what the novel's about, right? It's doing that. So um, I I think that's partially what's going on here, right? That this is a YA novel in a really canny way. And let's go ahead and start talking about uh, plotty plot, 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 the book stuff, because we got to open with this wild intro about the murder of Georgie Mm -hmm. because it ends with a big YA swing, weirdly enough. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, so uh, what do you, when you say YA swing there, what do you mean? So this is probably, is this not the most iconic image from this book? I would say so. Absolutely. Right. Like, I mean, it's on the cover. Uh, It's, it's the thing that gets, I think, uh, at least from the miniseries, I think most consistently, you know, gift is like Mm -hmm. Georgie encountering Pennywise in in the storm drain. Right. So uh, it's uh, Bill. Mm-hmm. Right, God, all these Ben and Bill. Why, Steve? Right. Of all the human names, uh, but uh, so Bill Denbro, yeah, Denbro, Den Denbra, Denbra. I don't. He's one of our main characters. He's got a younger brother named Georgie. Bill is sick. He's like fluey, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of ill children in these these eighties King novels, but uh, he's he's a, a little bit ill. He's under the weather, and there's kind of a flood going on. You know, a, a big thing. And so there's water everywhere running down the street. And so Georgie, his younger brother, comes in and uh, Bill makes him a sailboat mm-hmm. and like waterproofs it, makes him a paper sailboat, waterproofs it, all this kind of stuff. And he can't hang out with uh, Georgie, but he likes Georgie a lot. And he says, you know, here's the sailboat. Go have fun without me. Mm-hmm. Georgie, go- Georgie goes outside. Uh, now. Why why is Georgie allowed to go outside during the middle of a flash flood? I don't know. Maybe this is the time to stay in Georgia. <laughs> it was the but, 50s, Cameron. It was the 50s. You could do whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mothers were playing for Elise yeah. in the in the drawing room, and they didn't have time to know what you were doing. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, anyway, so Georgie goes outside, puts the sailboat down, it goes down the path, runs into a storm drain. Georgie goes up to the storm drain, and instead of finding his uh, delightful little sailboat, finds a little goofy clown mm-hmm. named Pennywise the Clown. Um, and Pennywise starts getting his his jokeries in here. And it is interesting to me that Pennywise in the novel is really not the Pennywise of the miniseries, nor is it the Pennywise of the, the film. These are quite distinct characters to me. Mm-hmm. And I think we can talk about that in just a bit. But conversation happens with Pennywise. It's a clown in the sewer, which by itself is striking and why this image is replicated so often. Um, and uh, grabs Georgie's arm as Georgie's reaching for the sailboat and uh, rins it off at the shoulder. Yep. Right. Then we get a little section uh, where... That we learn what happens to the sailboat. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, somewhere below in the storm drain that was already filled nearly to capacity with runoff, there could have been no one down there. The county sheriff would later exclaim to a dairy news reporter, when a fr- with a frustrated fury so great it was almost agony, Hercules himself would have been swept away in that driving current. George's newspaper boat shot onward through the nighted chambers and long concrete hallways and roared and chi- that roared and chimed with water. And et cetera, et cetera. We get like three paragraphs here that just sort of like uh, is simultaneously kind of like gesturing at what is happening back at uh, Bill's house with his parents as like they, you know, deal with the the murder of their son. Uh, And then 
The boat dipped and swayed and sometimes took on water, but it did not sink. The two brothers had waterproofed it well. I do not know where it finally fetched up, if it ever did. Perhaps it reached the sea and sails there forever, like a magic boat in a fairy tale. All I know is that it was still afloat and still running on the breast of the flood when it passed the incorporated town limits of Derry, Maine, and there it passes out of this tale forever. So this is Eyes of the Dragon. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. This move, this exact move. I mean, we talked about it a couple times in the episode. That this exact move of passing out of this tale forever, the kind of uh, magic property, the the magic property of two things, right? Of the kind of special object that can be followed by the narratorial voice, and then the specialness of this narratorial voice, right? That kind of moves out of direct reportage or su- or even subjective information, right? of what's happening with characters and then goes into this like kind of quasi mystical form of like just talking about what's occurring here. And that's going to happen a few times that that's in fact the engine of the last, whatever big chapter of this novel where we, where dairy is being destroyed and all of that. Right. We mm-hmm. zoom back out and there it's closer to the Salem's lot thing. Right. right. Because it doesn't uh, take the, on the first person uh, perspective that this one did. Like you would have heard me say that. And this is even how this chapter begins, which is the terror, which would not end for another 28 years. If it ever did began so far as I know, or can tell with a boat made right. from a sheet of newspaper floating down a gutter swollen with rain. Uh, so this first person narrator is only here in this first chapter well actually we do get this is what's interesting is we do get a first person narrator in certain chapters uh chunks like every two chunks of the or every chunk i guess of this novel has an interlude chapter that is first person told from the perspective of mike hanlon uh, and we'll talk mm-hmm. more about him and all that stuff later um but this is what like the question this raises for me is like is mike writing this novel <laughs> I, well, because he says that at the end, right? He yeah. says, you know, maybe there's a way of keeping it. Right? Uh-huh. There, there is this question. I think that's a little bit pat, you know, yes. a little bit too neat. No. I, I think it's really Steve working through his narrative styles, right? Mm-hmm. Of like using every trick in the Stephen King book that he's developed so far. And one of them is this fairy tale-ish, YA-ish uh, kind of uh, narrator, right? Mm-hmm. And that narrator shows up here at the beginning and then disappears for the rest of the book. That type of narrator and yet, what that narrator talked about in Eyes of the Dragon and what that narrator, uh, its concerns are, right, which is like the thoughts and feelings of young adults, right, of, of teenagers and tweens in this case, right, those concerns stay animated throughout the entire rest of the book, even if the narrative devices change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think fundamentally this is, you know, a, 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 a YA book, mm-hmm. um, and that's partially why it's so successful. This is just me reiterating that point over and over, but... So that image is, you know, and that gives us our our thing, right? That Pennywise the Clown is in this, that there's some sort of creature that is here, and it's awful and violent, and it's preying on children. You know, it it, it is doing something to kids, and it has no uh, compunction about violently murdering them. Yep. Right? There, there's no... This is not a book where uh, that flinches, you know, from violence. Um, we're we're going to get a lot of it um, throughout the rest of the book, you know. As Whoopi Goldberg told us, <laughs> you need a strong stomach for Dieters. Yes, <laughs> for Dieters. <laughs> um, and also another wild thing about this is that Pennywise doesn't even get named in that first scene. I think he, no, I think he does. Right? No, doesn't he, no, he doesn't. Himself? Does not name himself. Really? He's just a clown. Um. Oh wait, no, really? no, no. Wait, never mind. He does. I see yeah. it. I am. Yeah, he he... Does, because yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Yes, he does the whole introduction thing. All right. No, I was thinking like because after this, like Pennywise does not get referred to as Pennywise for so long. Right. Like the clown, weirdly enough, uh, as you said, like the 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 like cultural imaginary around this book and then like the book itself are very distinct. And one of the distinctions is that uh, the clown is not really as present in the book as it is in any of the adaptations. No. <laughs> no, <laughs> only when he appears in like a, a cartoon photograph. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a woodcut, right? I, I mean, you know, the clown shows up occasionally, but yeah, he is much more. He shows up in different devices because he is not a clown. I think at the end of the day, if if your only familiarity with it is not primarily the the book, you might think it's about a clown that shapeshifts, yes, as opposed to a thing that turns into a clown quite often, right? And seems uh, to like rely on uh, clown devices, uh, sort of intentionally to like basically freak kids out. Clowns are freaking, yeah. So I let let's hold on to to Pennywise for just yeah. a minute. Let's hold on to it for just a bit because I do think it's a character we need to go through, mm-hmm. um, but. Let's let's kind of lay it out because yeah. as we said, right? Like the book really is here's a bunch of character studies and then here's how they intersect with one another and then the plot happens, right? right? But I actually kind of think if we just like paint the portrait of all these characters and then kind of uh and then talk about what it is and then kind of run through the plot, you know, like how do these things run into each other pretty briefly, we'll be able to kind of analyze the whole book through that yeah. lens. I yeah. I think that Going piece by piece is basically impossible because who could keep the order of this book in their head? Right. I think it would be impossible yeah. to me. Um, but uh, I, I have them listed out just in uh, random order. Maybe we should talk about Bill Denbro first because he is the main character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Bill is a natural older brother. Character note. Uh. One way I would describe him is uh, if you had a cardboard cutout and labeled it with the word protagonist in Sharpie, that's kind of what Bill is in that mm-hmm. uh, all of out of all of these kids, Bill is kind of the least interesting. Um, but that's because he's kind of the most like clear sighted. Uh, he's he's like the one who like knows a thing and will do it or like will sort of take charge of stuff and everyone looks up to him right there everyone everyone admires bill this is what i mean when i say he's like a natural older brother uh Mm -hmm. there is a real way in which like he loses georgie and then like collects all of these other boys who like very much treat him as as their own like brother um he uh has a stutter um, when he's a kid and that is something that he has picked on for, you know, teased about all of the kids kind of have a thing that makes them an outcast, uh, relative to kind of like the general population of people in their age group. Um, and he grows up and he becomes a famous horror author and we get a whole like big long flashback of when he went to college and uh, took some writing classes and got really angry at all of the people in, in his writing classes who wanted to say that stories had politics and subtext. Um, mm-hmm. And he like yells at them and he yells at the professor about it. And then like the professor was like part of a play about Marxism that one of the other students wrote. So, hmm. Uh, and he like he because he, Bill just wants to write like uh, stories that he's selling to gentlemen's magazines. And he like. Right. 
Uh, he becomes so he's Stephen King, yes, right? Like he becomes Stephen King, and and this whole point about you know stories can just be stories, right? Sometimes they're just going for the gross out or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That that's that's Stephen King parodying his own voice from Dance Macabre. Yes, um, you know if if you're familiar, right? This is where the method pays off, right? You could be like, oh, this is Stephen King just doing a character, blah blah blah, whatever. Except that this character says what Stephen King says in other books, right? Yeah, so, like there's there's something quite interesting here. There's like a whole page long thing where bill is like hollering at his class about how they make writing too political uh mm-hmm. and it's like you know steve yelling at the black panthers when they visited his school yeah um so and it, the 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 rich irony of this of course where he's saying well like sometimes stories are just stories they don't have to have politics etc cetera, etc cetera. the rich irony here is that this is a story uh that metaphorizes like social evil through monstrous embodiment right like it is made to stand in for uh like gendered and like sexualized and like racialized violence like I- any type of like social violence is the thing that it comes to stand for um and the, and Steve is saying this yes right like in interviews right and so there's a thing going on here where like bill is like the uh he's like the undeveloped Stephen King yes right i, I for for lack of a better term right like he understands his horror fictions less than Stephen King apparently understands his own horror fictions, which is quite a weird move. Yeah, that's what I was I was wondering if you had read anything about that, because uh, I felt like one like Steve just has no idea what he's doing, which I don't think so. Um, or like Steve has actually maybe come around on this a little bit. And this is him like, you know, we don't get this line, but, you know, the book could have ended with, and then Bill wrote a book where he realized that sometimes the social is real. Well, so, I mean, Stephen King is quite odd on this question, right? Because and this is something we've said before, and I think this really is an important thing, I think, in the study of or of the thinking of Stephen King as an author. He just says whatever he thinks that day. Yeah. Like in in a fundamental and real way, I was I I don't remember where the interview is. It might have been the, that Fangoria interview, um, or maybe it's one from this book, Bare Bones: Conversations on Terror with Stephen King t- by Tim Underwood and Chuck Miller mm-hmm. uh, from the eighties. It might be one of the interviews I read in here, but in one of the interviews I've read with King, uh, they were like, "Well, in Dance Macabre, you said blank, blank, blank," and then he's like, "Yeah, I think that's kind of bullshit." Like, I know I said that, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I believe that. And so, like, Steve, I don't think has a huge amount of, like, internal consistency when it comes to these arguments, which is, like, fine, right? Like, that that's okay. But but uh, it's easy to begin treating someone like King as a monolith, right? Mm-hmm. That is wholly internal consistent. And he's just like a dude, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's just a guy who sometimes thinks very deeply about his work and sometimes doesn't. Sometimes seems very fed up with interviewers and sometimes doesn't. Uh, and also, we, we just got to be frank, was doing a huge number of drugs mm-hmm. and was drunk a lot of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, he might have two completely separate minds on the thing that are mediated by his mood, what you know, where he's at biochemically, uh, how much he's willing to give into something, how much he's willing to entertain an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually looking here for a thing. Uh, there's an interview with... Or it's it's not an interview. It's a, 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 a I think a talk he gave to the the Dairy Library or not Dairy, <laughs> Bangor Library Society. He shifted into <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, and so uh, 
the 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 talk itself is kind of like a rerun of Dance Macabre. It's not particularly interesting. Um, but there's a Q&A that's transcribed at the end. Um, and people are just asking questions from the 80s. So, like, one of the questions is, what is your favorite, your best novel, and how did you get those cockroaches in the movie Creepshow? <laughs> like, it's a real Q&A. So there's a, Q, there's a question in here that comes from the audience. Uh, and I'm going to read. The, the, there's a conversation that happens, obviously, between, between King and this question asker, right? So here's the question. And this is from, let me, let me tell you really quickly, this is from 1983. So this is before this novel comes out. Mm-hmm. So th- he has been asked this question and thought about this before, before this book comes out. Question. If you personally had lived through some real-life horror, if you had experienced Hiroshima or the bombing of Dresden or Vietnam, would you still write about horror? King. I think so, yes. I forgot to mention when I was talking about subtext in the bug movies that the very people who actually felt the atomic bomb were the first ones to create an atomic monster out of their, and I'm convinced of this really, out of their national nightmares. The Japanese in 1954 released a movie called Godzilla. Godzilla is a creature which comes to the surface because of atomic testing. He has atomic halitosis. He goes, and blows up whole cities. We're treated to a very long, sort of surreal destruction of Tokyo, and the results at the end look very much as though a nuclear weapon had been at work. It's all in flames, and there are a lot of people dead. It seems to me that this is an effort by the Japanese to work this thing out. So to answer your question, I think if you have it, it works whether you want it to work or not. So the question asker comes back again and says, I find that very hard to believe. I went through World War II and one. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I went through World War II, and I find it very hard to write about. King. Yeah, but the same thing is true of a lot of the World War II writers, like Leon Uris and Norman Mailer. Leon Uris wrote Battle Cry. Mailer was, and then he gets interrupted, question asker. But those people didn't go through what they wrote about. And King says, oh, yes, Mailer was on that island that he wrote about in The Naked and the Dead. When Herman Woke wrote, Woke wrote, the Kane Mutiny, he wrote it about the very experience that he underwent. He was on a minesweeper in the South Pacific. These things are conscious efforts to deal with what they've been through. I think this is true of a lot of horror fiction as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and this is a little bit of a, an additional elaboration of what shows up in Dance Macabre, which is that in Dance Macabre, he says ultimately that horror is a pretty conservative genre that is about staging national fears in direct terms. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the monster is the thing we're afraid of. Right. And here he's saying that national traumas, personal traumas, violences, whatever, get restaged and worked through in the thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like Stephen King himself has positioned Bill's argument in more than one place now is like insufficient for talking through what actually the uh, the problem is or, you know, how horror works. Right. So I think that's pretty interesting. Right. Like he he explicitly is arguing that horror is political. It's about doing political work, doing ideological work in in textual form. Mm-hmm. And then he has a character be like, no, that's stupid. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I think it's a little bit more canny than than maybe a flat read would give it to us. Yeah. Um, other stuff about Bill. Um, he uh, Bill Bill has more access to like how the structure of this novel works than anyone else does. And it's because he's an author. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, quite literally, right? Like, he, at the end of the book, he's like, if this were a novel, blah, blah, blah would happen. Yeah. Um, Bill, uh, we get this discussion uh, at the very beginning of the book, uh, on cha- on page five for me, where Bill is good at seeing things. Mm-hmm. Bill can see the structure of stuff, right? He's able to imagine in his mind what the dam looks like. He's able to see how things fit together. 
Um, and I think that's the reason that he is the leader, right? The de facto leader of all these people is he can see how they fit together. Right. Um, and ultimately, because, you know, at the end of the book, when it's murdering them, you know, or trying to murder them and kills a couple of them, uh, it's explicitly said if they lose Bill, they'll all die. Right. Right. Because he is the structuring principle of the novel. Right. Quite literally <laughs> and textually, too. Right. So. Um, so yeah, I think that that's like the important thing to know about him. And they all, as you said, have like kind of superpowers, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is a revision of what's been going on in all of Stephen King's books around children so far, which is like children have access to the second sight. They have access to something like the shining or, uh, TK, right. Or, or like tele telepathic abilities, mm -hmm. um, here that's like systematized. It's, you know, kind of RPG would up. They all have a particular vi version of it, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's important. Yeah, they each have their own everything. like class with like their own weapon style that they use. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh -huh. yeah. They, you, like you can see, like just a little bit more pushing here, and they all have their own weakness, uh -huh. right? On you know, they all have the the thing that makes them who they are, right? Bill's got the stutter, and I say weakness not because these are things that are actually things that make people human beings weak, but this is how they are um, uh, contrived in the novel, right? right. Like. Bill stutters, and because he stutters, that means that he is vulnerable in X, Y, Z ways to bullying, to authority figures, to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Ben, who I think we can talk about next, mm -hmm. is fat, and yeah. that means he is vulnerable in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and good God, like Stephen King's fat phobia is like hypercharged in this novel um, in a million different ways that literally happens so constantly that we probably don't have time to talk about it. Um, and Ben is his figure of fat redemption. Yes. Um, which oh, is maybe God. not the thing to boil Ben down to, but that is certainly one of his elements. Yeah. Um, actually, one slight one detail about Bill, just because I want to observe it, because mm -hmm. it's something that does not come up in any of the adaptations. Bill is mm -hmm. bald when he's an adult. Oh, he's Peter Straub. Yes. No, that was the thing that I said to you is uh, the, the physical description mm -hmm. you get of Bill as an adult. Uh, he sounds an awful lot like how Peter Straub looked at this particular time, which is like bald, wears glasses, tall, uh, was thin when he was younger, but has gotten some weight on to him now. Uh, it, I, I don't know if that's intentional. I uh, it just it seems very much like a description, a physical description of Peter Straub from the 80s. Um, right. But yeah, Ben is uh, <laughs> a 12 year old who is constantly described as having meaty thighs. <laughs> like that is a thing that comes like Ben Weird. when he is a child. I did, did not notice that. Yeah. Ben when he is a child cannot move his body without the, the narratorial voice mentioning his like meaty thighs or like hefty stomach or like yeah. padded ass. Like his body is just constantly described as like swaying and wobble. It's it's horrible. And again, like I've said this before, like I was a fat kid and here I am a fat kid reading this and it gives you a bit of a complex, especially when his success as an adult boils down to him like eating nothing but salads and then just like forcing himself to run for miles out of spite of being fat. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, just hatred. I, Ben's story, because he tells the story, again, it's one of these like weird digressions that happens that goes on forever and really doesn't have much of a bearing on the story. Well, it's like an inset uh, novella, really, or like a little novelette, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Where, uh, basically what happens is after the events of the novel, or after the events of their childhood, I should say, uh, he goes and lives in Arizona for a while and has a evil coach who like makes fun of him for being fat, and then he very spitefully is like, 
I'm going to get skinny. I'm going to beat every every one of your varsity athletes. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to spit on you or whatever, right? Uh, and uh, then he does it, right? It's like the story of like angry perseverance and willpower. Um, it's actually pretty ambivalent. I don't know what the actual output of this is other than like a thing occurred. Um, and then, uh, the like coach threatens to hit him yeah, because he's such a, such an, you know, because he's like rubbing it in this coach's face or whatever. But so, yeah, I mean, literally we have to get a fat redemption story in here, uh, to give Ben some development. Um, and Ben's, Ben's just like a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like your generic good, good person here. Yeah. I don't know other, you know, what other identifier is other than like. Fat guy who's part of the team. He's kind of te- he's technically apt. He's the one who knows how to build the dam in the Barrens, uh, and he becomes an architect when he grows up. Right. Oh yeah, I was. I, I think I was getting that. Uh, I was getting that flipped here, right? With uh, with Bill. I think I just said that Bill built the dam. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. Uh, uh, well, Bill, Bill, Bill wants to. Bill wants to build right. it. It's Ben who come. Like they're trying to build it before, and it's uh, Ben happens to show up, and they can't get it to work. And Ben's the one who's like, "Here's what you're missing, and here's how you do it." Right. So so Bill is like the imaginator, I guess yes. I should say, and then Ben is the the like uh, on the bones putting the thing together guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has this ability to like, uh, I mean, maybe it is building, right? Because he, his like weird superpower thing, right? That he has going on is his ability to find stuff and then put it together. So he's the one who like, uh, finds the book about, uh, the, the, all the stuff that it could be right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then kind of puts together that they can, uh, they can like do their sweat lodge thing. Yeah. Right, in order to like discover information, right? so that's quest. like his uh, their vision quest. Yeah, um, but but he's the person who like gets all that together and figures it out. He also builds their clubhouse that's underneath the ground. Now, I look, I'm not a I'm not a cinema sin stickler for very much in the world. I think this is generally a bad way of thinking about stuff on the planet. But the Barrens is a water runoff place uh-huh. for a whole city, and they build a clubhouse underneath the ground. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, if we go more than five feet down, we'll hit the water table. So we got to be careful. I, I regret to inform you that the water table is going to be much higher than that <laughs> if this is a drainage zone for the whole city. But, uh, you know, that's that's some uh, poking yeah. that probably is unhelpful. What about Eddie? Unless you got stuff to say about Ben. No, uh, not really, I think. I think that's pretty much on the table. Eddie is uh, a he's the most neurotic well, no, no, no. I guess second most neurotic next to... Well, it depends on how we want to read Stan, and we'll talk about Stan. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Eddie is... Well, he is he is neurotic. He has an overbearing mother um, who is a hypochondriac, kind of doing a maybe like a Munchausen by proxy thing on him. Not even a maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, textually, that is what she is doing. Like, he, he has a... Eddie allegedly has asthma. He has to use an inhaler. And... Uh, one of the critical points in the book is him being confronted by the local pharmacist who just cannot stand what his mother is doing and sits him down and tells him, like, you're taking a placebo. You don't really have asthma. Um, but otherwise, mm-hmm. because of his mother's influence, because his mother is extremely judgmental and constantly worried about uh, illnesses and injuries and so on and so forth, 
um, she has like you know impressed upon him uh, this similar set of neuroses, uh, and so he grows up and he becomes a, uh, a, a like a limo driver for celebs in New York. Uh, which feels like the weirdest thing in the world, like just the most random out of nowhere thing until like maybe a, a third, maybe even less from the end of the book. Uh, you find out that his superpower is always being able to know his directions like he's the right. one who can get them through the sewers because they're like, yeah, if you're going anywhere, if you're like running through the barrens, like Eddie's the person you want to ask, like, which direction are we heading? Like, where how do we get from here to there? That's just what Eddie knows. Uh, but like, that's a thing you don't learn until fairly late. So like at the beginning, I remember reading this and thinking like, it's just really weird that like he becomes a limo driver. Like what what possessed Steve to like settle on this career for Eddie? Um, uh, it's because every time Steve goes to New York, he's definitely getting driven around. <laughs> that's almost. I mean, that's yes, why, right? Yes. Like, it's the mid 80s. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, this God. is exactly why it's because like this is someone Stephen King's had contact with. Uh, uh, you know, like we know so much about the way that Stephen King writes as he experiences something and then things spin up. I mean, you were just telling that story about like where the idea for it came from, this kind of bridge experience. Uh, we know about the mist, for example, right? him kind of living through that experience going to the grocery store or whatever this is eddie's like whole thing is a limo driver is definitely St stephen king like sitting being in a car with a limo driver and being like what an interesting fella mm. i wonder where his story is yeah blah 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 <laughs> and then folding him into this um yeah, yeah i mean uh, eddie's got this overbearing mother and then he marries his own mother mm -hmm. you know he marries an exact replica of his mother and her fatness is also like leered upon and lingered upon in really extensive ways. And he has the same relationship with her, which is that, you know, she is this uh, overbearing dependent person somehow, right? Yeah. Like she can't live her life without him. And he has this kind of facilitator role almost of like, I will be here to provide the other side of this fantasy for you of like, you know, your, your inability to exist without me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that Eddie like plot wise, novel wise, not the most interesting character. I think schematically in the abstract and in particular in the mini series, which we're going to be talking about on the bonus episode that you can listen to right now. It's over on patreon.com slash range touch. If you're not already a subscriber, uh, you can listen to that episode. Uh, Eddie is the most fascinating character in that adaptation as well. Really? I have um, not seen, I haven't watched the mini series uh, yet, or rather I've watched it before. I haven't rewatched it for the bonus episode yet. So I, uh, I have very little in the way of memory of it. Yeah, well, I, well, we'll talk about it in that episode, yeah. so people don't have to worry about it. But uh, I, I, yeah, I think I, yeah, just as a, as his own character study, right? Yeah, you could pull Eddie out of this novel and all the content and concepts around him, and he would be an Apocman book. That is true. That is absolutely true. And we're gonna see Eddie's mother show up again in misery. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like transformed. Her object of fixation is not Eddie. Her object of fixation is, you know, the main character, the writer of that thing. But that character type, the overbearing mother, we've already seen it as Carrie's mom, mm -hmm. you know, in a different altered form. But this this version of Eddie's mother, you know, is her own kind of villainous king type who's going to keep showing up. I mean, she's also, I guess, in the mist as well. Yeah. Um, you know, without the religious function necessarily. No, she is religious. I yeah. take that back. Right. Because she is. She talks about uh, gambling. She's anti-gambling and all that kind of stuff, yeah. too. So she's got that Protestant 
uh, uh, looking down your nose at people thing going on. Yeah, I think Eddie really we don't have that much to say about him. Unfortunately, we will have more in the bonus episode. But you said uh, uh, Stephen King's all over Richie. Tell, tell me about that. Oh, so Richie is the smart mouth. He's the trash mouth, uh, trash mouth Tozer. Uh, he is the comic relief character. Um, and he has a, a particular version of a thing that's shown up for Steve across a couple of these books. I like how I, for a time, I resisted, uh, like, the first name basis thing, because I have, mm. you know, my academic degrees and my credentials and whatever, and I'm like, no, I need to keep this professional and refer to him as, you know, king and so on. But, like, at this point, like, <laughs> by the time we finished it, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to call him Steve. <laughs> like whatever um he's uncle steve yeah um so uh the 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 thing that uh steve loves to do and i mentioned this in, in a couple of places is have these characters who will slip into voices um in particular like the protagonist of rage was very much uh, uh this kind of guy mm. um because mm -hmm. he does the same thing richie does which is at multiple points he does like a, a minstrel show voice uh, there is a type of character that King will write who will like uh, do like minstrelsy voices uh, when they're being like sarcastic or something. Right. And this Richie is right in there. Um, he also does other types of voices. Uh, he grows up and becomes a radio DJ, uh, kind of a shock jock. Uh, he sounds like the worst fucking DJ in the world. Like nothing he does sounds interesting, but he's uh, wildly successful anyhow. Um, mm -hmm. all of his characters sound just so silly. Um, but, uh, the, the thing that you can feel like Steve on here with is like, I mean, because Richie is kind of the, the clown, I get the sense that Steve was often kind of the clown of his friend group as well. Um, and this is, hmm. uh, some of the stuff that I've read in Castle Rock where he's clearly being funny, but also just like having read all of the stuff by him and knowing, knowing the type of like kind of a morbid, uh, sense of humor that, uh, uh Steve has occasionally, um, mm -hmm. and very, can, can be kind of frenetic, right? Uh, adopts a kind of frenetic attitude toward things. Uh, and then the thing that was really magical about this was, uh, uh, was it last episode or the one before where you mentioned the, uh, Mick Garris, um, postmortem episode, Mick Garris, please come on mm -hmm. our show saying it again here, yeah, please, um, come on, Mick, Garris. reach out, reach out to us, Mick. Uh, but that episode where he and a whole bunch of other people, including Steve Weber are, uh, reflecting on shooting the shining miniseries. Um, and you had like, you had asked, like, did I get to the point where, uh, Steve Weber <laughs> mentions that he asked King about like the Medoc line. And it turned out that I had paused <laughs> the episode 20 seconds before that story was told. Uh, so I listened <laughs> to the rest of it. I got that immediately. And I was like, of course, but then the rest of that episode there, you get to a point where I realized, oh, like, this is not just like a Steve thing. Like this is a type of guy from this generation, right? Uh, or this is like a way that dudes of this age uh, would like bond, would be like doing like uh, various voices and like celebrity impressions. And you get to a point on that episode where uh, all of these dudes, right? And there's like four or five of them on the show, including Steve Weber. Steve Weber seems like very much a, a dude in the, the King mold. They're all doing their Three Stooges voices, trying to see who can do the best one. <laughs> And it's so like <laughs> it it like it made my heart glow. 
but yeah, so I, I get the sense. And, and uh, the other thing about Richie, of course, he becomes a radio DJ. And uh, I mentioned in the Christine episode, by this point, Steve has bought a radio station and is uh, working as a DJ part time. Like I say working, but I mean, like he is the DJ, right? He's not doing it for work. He is doing it because he has the station and he has the privilege of, of, you know, just coming in and like laying down the tracks when he wants to is kind of, um, you know, his own exercise. Uh, and so I think you see some of that, uh, in, in Richie as well. Um, and then just like, because he is a DJ, Richie has all of these opinions on music that are also basically probably Steve's opinions on music, or at least very close to it. They seem to like the same types of rock and roll and have kind of the same, um, I guess, fixations on, uh, like, the the race and ethnicity of rock and roll musicians. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Richie's, um, there, there's something quite weird that goes on with, like, Richie's use of, like, black voice, you know, for, for lack of a better term, right? Mm-hmm. Because he has multiple ones that he does. He has adult uh, and, and they child. Have di- yeah, and they have different names. Uh-huh. Uh, no, as a child, he has two separate ones, which is wild. no, no. That's what I mean. He has the the two separate voices are like an adult and one is a child. Oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and, and he does like a cop voice and all that kind of stuff too. And and yeah, you're right that there's this like the the way the voices work and the and sometimes he uses the voices and they work against it. Right? Mm-hmm. They they you repel it or make it go away. Um, and the reason is it's because of sociality, right? It's like positive sociality, what you're talking about. But it's like, man, you didn't think about the idea that positive sociality is like coming off the back of like the worst minstrelsy, yeah. right? Like, and, and maybe this is a moment where Steve is thinking about that, right? He he is, I think, critically reflective of the way that Bill is doing this kind of stuff. So maybe he is thinking about that, right? And he obviously is thinking about racial uh, segregation that's going on here with what we're going to talk about with Mike in a minute. Mm -hmm. Does he sink those shots and does it work? No, (laughs) like it doesn't work even a little bit to me. Um, But, but it does seem to me to suggest a more critical than it appears to be on the page, um, which is not to say it works. Right. Yeah. Um, But it is to say that I I do think he has a little bit of a, a set of ideas. I mean, like Richie doesn't keep doing that. Right. Right. Like in the and maybe it's like eighties PC culture won't let Richie do all well, the things he wants to do on the radio. Well, like critically, that um, conversation doesn't happen. Right, <laughs> like, right. You're right. Like it, he just stops doing it because that's like natural or whatever. Right. It's it's written into the background of the fiction. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't. I, I guess what I'm saying is there's a way of reading this in a positive way. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence to to uh, suggest that reading other than some contextual stuff that maybe is not there. Right. Um, so, uh, it, it's pretty ambivalent and ultimately just reads as real racist and weird. Now the, this is, is this a place to talk about, uh, maybe between Richie and Mike, a place to talk about Stephen King's response to racism in his fiction? So, um, in Castle Rock, uh, the, again, the newsletter that I have been collecting and, and reading various, uh, well, various bits and parts of. Yeah, in the Castle Rock newsletter, uh, someone named uh, Kima R. Hicks from Dayton, Ohio, uh, writes in uh, to Stephen King and the Castle Rock editors and asks basically, like, why is it that whenever uh, uh, black people show up in King's fiction, um, they are kind of sort of defined by the violence that is done to them as uh, like racialized people and like why is there such liberal use of racial slurs um just sort of across the board um 
all of these, just, you know, just asking these questions in what seems to be, you know, pretty good faith. Um, just mm -hmm. wanting to know, you know, why is this happening? Uh, uh, what, what she says is, in just about every one of your books, somewhere in the storyline, there is some derogatory comment about a black person. Even in The Stand, where one of the most central positive forces was an old black woman, there were constant references to the N-word and other negative stereotypical remarks. I know, quote-unquote, that's life, uh, but it's led me to question your motivation in using such remarks, especially when it's not vital to the overall quality of the books, uh, which is sensational. Is this necessary? Where's, you know, where's the, what's the reason? Um, sincerely interested. Mm -hmm. Steve replies, um, and he, you know, walks through, like basically, and uh, this is a thing that actually comes up a couple times in the newsletters where people are asking about uh, his handling of certain topics, uh, which is this idea that like, I'm just showing you how it is. Right. Like not really mm -hmm. acknowledging that the writer has already said this. The person asking the questions like, I understand that this is life, but like, what is your motivation? Um, and uh, uh, Steve, like, walks through he walks through this uh, example from Huckleberry Finn, which weirdly enough, I've talked about on Homestuck Made This World as kind of the central uh, text in like uh, uh, American literature and sort of like the, the racial imaginary of of American literature. Uh, and it is complicated because as much as that novel seem, it is like not a novel that is endorsing, say, the system of slavery, it still does not represent uh, its black characters with a whole lot of sympathy. Uh, and Steve kind of points out, or like his tactic here is to say that um, this is Twain trying to show kind of like the inhumanity of like uh, the racial system or, or whatever. Um, similar charges of racism. You, this is I'm quoting King here, usually leveled by unimaginative people who can't distinguish between the opinions of a character in a work of fiction and those of its author have cropped up ever since. Uh, in my own time, I've seen it uh, leveled against so and so and so and so and so and so. Um, and he eventually goes on to say, uh, you know, I am a uh, white man from a primarily white rural society, and so I doubt I'll ever write a novel set in Harlem or Hawk or Roxbury, but I have resisted the temptation to write, quote, ice cream novels and have tried to give black characters strong roles to play. And no, I wouldn't shrink from making a black man or woman a villain if I thought it would goose the story for some reason. I suppose my favorite black character is Michael Hanlon in It. I've gotten a number of letters from people who are puzzled about whether or not he is black, and from people who want to know how come I never got around to mentioning the fact until page 400 or so. The answer to the first is yes, he was a black guy. The answer to the second is because it didn't matter. This is in italics. It didn't matter. And because it didn't, I didn't know he was black myself until one of the bad guys surprised me by calling Mike a in the n-word and that was all in italics more than anything else it was a book about the perceptions and imaginations of children and the simple fact that kids don't care much about skin color unless and until they are told it matters um so there's a lot happening there I think uh you know, this this idea that uh, Steve takes the idea in this point, at least, you know, who knows how he feels about it now. Uh, but it is a point of pride for Steve that people cannot tell that Mike is raced. Right. 
when that in the back half of the novel that basically defines any interaction with him. And I think this is what the letter writer is keen into is that basically from that point forward, there is not a single conversation that happens with Mike that does not have the N word in it. Yep. Um, you know, other than like him hanging out with his friends, but any time in the past or in the present that another person isn't dealing with that guy, uh, and it's not from his own point of view, uh, you know, like his his letters he's writing or his his diary he's writing in. Um, you know, race matters a whole hell of a lot. Um, in fact, race is the driving motivator. R- racist violence is the driving motivator of Mike of Mike's story, right? Mm-hmm. And. I don't know. There, There is something... I mean, I think this is the real weakness. Uh, I mean, th- yeah, I, I, I guess that's, that is right. I think this is a real weakness of the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, is King's inability... I mean, because the... Mike's race only shows up because that is his, like, vulnerability. Right. Yes. It, Eddie, Eddie has asthma. Yeah. Or, you know, has, it believes he has asthma. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben is fat. Mike is black. Yes. Like that, that's, that is the, right. the, the, the thing, right? And uh, his, King's uh, ability to think that race is not culturally constructed, is not happening, you know, is not mediating basically every, every interaction that people have um, in contemporary society. His, his belief that is somehow like epiphenomenal, right? Like it only comes up when bad people bring it up. Yeah. Uh, it, it, number one, it's like a liberal fantasy, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it, it, it's Stephen King's liberal racism that we've talked about several times before. And two, it means that like Mike feels like a deeply inauthentic, inhuman character. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the sense of like, uh, Ben's social reality as a fat person, uh, feels realistic. Yes. Mike's social reality as a black uh, child and then man feels like a pure fantasy. Yeah. Um, and, and he has to contrive so much to get Mike in that position, right? Like the, the logical story of how Mike's family ends up in Derry is the weirdest thing in this book. Uh-huh. And they are the, they are specifically said to be the only black family in town. Right. Which I get like, I don't know the demographics of 1950s Maine, uh, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, I have a hard time believing that in a town that is as big as Derry, that there would be like just one black family. Like there might've been like, I don't know this. I don't want to cinema sense this, but it's one of those things that I ended up learning, uh, going through like college and grad school and having to do a lot of historical research, uh, which is that it is not that these people weren't in these places. It is that they were not reckoned. Right. They didn't count. They didn't show up in histories. They didn't show up in stories like racialized, marginalized people like were there. No one just thought that they were important enough to take note of. So to have like, you know, the one black family in town, like I, it makes me roll my eyes a little. Well, it is to make him I mean, it's not a superpower, right? It's not a, it's not a vulnerability slash superpower if there's other people that have That's it. That's true. There are not other people with asthma in town either. <laughs> and apparently Ben's the only fat kid. <laughs> And Beverly's the only girl. <laughs> well, there are other I mean, there girls, are a but they, mentioned, they right? never they never appear. They're only named. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there's a way that like this special and, and like it's whatever. Right. Like, I think I think that King does a pretty good job of writing the sections around Mike and especially the interactions with his father. Right. Mm-hmm. And th- there is a truly like to give King credit. 
there is more of a reckoning of racial violence here than there is basically anywhere else in King up until this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, maybe other than um, the the hotel, the Stanley Hotel being a racist hotel, the right? Overlook like, Hotel. It, <laughs> Uh, what, what you said that? the Stanley. Stanley. The Stanley. Okay, let me let me. I, I I want to be on like the Stanley Hotel is not a racist hotel. I guess I don't know one way or the other. Maybe it is, but as far as I know, it's not. The Overlook Hotel definitely <laughs> is. Uh, and uh, but you know we talked about that then, right? Uh-huh. Like the the uh, the function of that in the novel is really just to create a character that the hotel can be racist against. Like Halloran's experience. You notice I got it right that time, mm-hmm. but Halloran's. Um, uh, life as a black man is is quite a bit different. Although you know he does get those weird sections in Florida. Mm-hmm. So that's all to say, right? I think it's a real real stumbler here. Um, it it really uh impacts the novel in a very weird way. Um, and ultimately it is something that from this Michael Collins book that I really noticed is that when we get uh Mike's father's narrative, right? So very briefly, we find out the way that uh, the Hanlins end up in Derry is that there was a military base there between World War I and World War II. There were people in the military who were stationed there, obviously. And uh, some of them were black men. Mm-hmm. Like, not a huge number, but some of them were. The military was super racist within the story. The military is super racist. Uh, there is a clear uh, racial uh, difference going on. White COs are terrible to uh, black enlisted men. Mm-hmm. And they eventually create a, uh, uh, they create basically a segregated club. Mm-hmm. The reason they have to create a segregated club for like where the men hang out, where where black men hang out away from the town, is that the black enlisted men are going to the town, they're going into Derry, and they're going to the working class bars where there are white women. Mm-hmm. Notably, King goes out of his way to be like. The working class men who are there, the loggers who live, you know, who who hang out there after they come in because Derry's history is a, uh, is as a logging town, you know, and a logging export town. The working class men who are there, they're not really racist. Mm-hmm. They don't have terms for talking about race, really. Like, there's one guy who shows up who like has never seen a black person before. Mm-hmm. Question mark, and he's curious, but he's not really a racist. He's just like a working class guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ignorant, but he can be educated. There's this thing that King, where King goes out of his way to say, and then he says, mostly none of those working class guys cared that black men were there. But it's when they found out that black men were near white women that the rich people in the town mm-hmm. all decided to segregate everything, to make them have their own club, blah, blah, blah. And so there's this thing that's going on that, that is, I think, really wormy here. Uh, where Stephen King is is uh, the where the narrator it's not Stephen King the narratorial voice here, um, which gets aligned with uh, you know the authorial perspective, where there is an argument being made or, or a claim being made that ultimately poor people don't draw hard boundaries here, and it is external forces that make them do that. Right. That ultimately the working class person is good, mm-hmm. and wouldn't you know? You know, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have such a strong opinion about this other than I read this Michael Collins book. Michael Collins? Yes. I think Michael Collins. Michael Collins has a chapter where he goes and summarizes every college because uh, Stephen King, when he was in college, wrote for the college newspaper. He wrote a column and it was very popular. Mm-hmm. He goes and summarizes every single column that Stephen King wrote 
in a chapter. It's just like a, like an annotated bibliography, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, says how many words it is, what the argument is. Stephen King seems to be a pretty committed, organizational kind of leftist person in college. He's showing up to protests. He's protesting factory owners. He's protesting uh, to defend the rights of laborers in the U.S., particularly, uh, it seems like what we would now call like migrant laborers. He participates in an action around that. Mm -hmm. But he very aggressively is like working class first. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that class mediates all social difference first. Mm -hmm. Like that is very clear from reading these summaries. That shows up there in his college years. And 20 years later, we get this. And it's the same argument, right? Just processed through narratorial perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like the way that Mike's father understands race, which is mediated by the narratorial voice, right? Like a human being sat down and wrote this. It is self-same to the argument that Stephen King is making in his columns then. And so I think it, you know, th- this from all different angles, right? If we like spin the cube here and see the different sides, we see a very particular view of race, which is that, Ultimately, uh, all things considered, if all things are equal and the bad forces go away, uh, race disappears, mm-hmm. right? Social difference disappears. And, you know, which is, you know, the, the liberal racism uh, mode, right? Ultimately, the market's going to resolve it all. And if everyone is an equal actor, then things will just go along and get along, mm-hmm. uh, ignoring material history, disinvestment, culture, divestment, mm-hmm. uh, violence, all those different things. Um, so this is not to go long on this or like to hammer on it or anything, but it gives a very particular view, I think, into what's happening in this novel and why the Hanlon story uh, is so weird. And and at the end of that story, which is well told, this is its own novella in the middle of the thing. And it, you know, I, I think that a lot of people have talked about how this is a really big high point of the novel. And I think I agree. I think writer writing wise, this is Stephen King getting his hands around something he really hasn't before. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the thing that causes the black spot to be burned down and ending up killing, what, 80 people or something yeah, like yeah. that? It's a huge number of people, and they are mostly black men. Mm-hmm. Basically, the uh, main the version re- of the KKK shows up and uh, right. yeah, sets fire to it. And they set fire to it. But the reason they do that is that rich kids from the rich part of the town start going there to hang out. Mm-hmm. That's why. Mm-hmm. Right? And so this is Stephen... This is... Uh, King, the Kingian perspective saying, look, everyone was getting along, all the working class people, all the hoi polloi, right? We're all getting along until so uh, forces of power make people racist right. uh, or, you know, the people who do that. And I think that that's a very partial view of like how the psychic life and libidinal life of racism actually works in uh, American society in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and that sort of uh, laying it out like that really also explains kind of the way that uh, King tends to approach rock and roll. Right. As uh, like uh, this, like he is conscious of how rock and roll uh, as a genre comes out of African-American music um, mm-hmm. and like clearly is invested in that. And I think he sees like the, these kids and this it's a thing that comes up for these kids, for these characters. Right. Is like listening to music uh, by black musicians and how their parents do not like that. Uh, there's something there happening where like, you know, the pop culture can mediate us out of our racism or, or like something like that. (laughs) Yes. I mean, no, that quite literally is it. And you get to see this, like, uh, I think that this is a, I don't say this in like an ageist way, but to say that this is like a, I think a left leaning boomer perspective, Mm -hmm. which is that, uh, that rock and roll music 
softened some of the racial problems of America into the civil rights movement and through the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason I say that is like, we're, we're getting to see that fantasy re-enlivened again. It went away for a little while, I think. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, but I just saw the trailer. I haven't seen the film, uh, but I saw the trailer for Boz Lerman's Elvis movie, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, Lerman, different cultural trajectory. I'm not saying that like all people share the same thing, but it's tapping into a fa- the trailer. I haven't seen the film, but the, the trailer is tapping into a fantasy, which is that like Elvis was the key indicator of American race relations. Mm-hmm. And they, like he basically did as much as anyone else to like soften race relations in the United States, which is a, the wildest possible thing. But also seeing that I was like, oh, yeah, I, I hear this all the time and have seen this all the time in these like other works uh, from this generation, you know, the people who were children in the 50s and 60s. Um, and, you know, that uh, to, to, to use, you know, uh, a term that is much more recent, right? Like appropriation uh-huh. solved the race problem uh-huh. in America. <laughs> and I think that that's such like a buzz, like on face, that's ridiculous Two, what? <laughs> like, what are you saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think that, that uh, that's the argument yes. here, uh, around uh, that, you know, that is because who is it? Is it Richie? Who's talking about his mother, not letting him see, letting him see bandstand. Yes. Or is that Eddie? Or, uh, no, it's, uh, well, Eddie, uh, talks about how his, if his mother knew that certain artists that he listened to were black, she would like pitch a fit. Um, and then right. Richie is the one who is like really interested in seeing artists perform on bandstand because he wants to be able to like think like he, he makes calls, right? Oh, this singer is black. Right. This singer is white. And so when they show up on bandstand, they like take bets. Like, is this guy going to turn out to be black or white? Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that none of this has an effect, right? Like if Stephen King wants to reflect on this, it obviously had an impact on him. And I, I imagine that this was a significant thing for people at the time, right? Like I am in no way, um, stating that this did not occur right but also i think that that if you think this is a primary or even secondary or tertiary driver of the accomplishments of the civil rights movement you have mistaken something fundamental about american history Mm -hmm. that ultimately the main driver of the civil rights movement was people who got into the streets and protested heavily and fundamentally broke the economies of major southern cities in order to get the things that they wanted. Mm-hmm. It was the actions of human beings. It was not the passive cultural absorptions of white kids in Maine. Mm-hmm. And I just got to be crystal clear about that. I can I cannot state it anymore. Well, related uh, to this, uh, we can talk about mm-hmm. like uh, the further ways that like uh, Mike as a character is just disserved by this novel. Uh, in that he's the only one who doesn't leave Derry, which means he's the only yeah. one who never really forgets, which also means he's the one who never gets to be wealthy. Yeah. He just has to stay at home and uh, guard the lighthouse, as it were. Uh, he becomes the yeah. town librarian, and then when uh, the murders start again in 1985, he's the one who makes all the calls to bring everyone back together. Uh, but it's just, it's mm-hmm. kind of notable that, like, his character is defined ultimately by being the one who stayed who stayed around and did the service right for everyone else yes i yeah i and to put it even more starkly i mean i i really felt this while reading it the one black character in the novel who is you know a central character is a servant Mm -hmm. like mechanically in the in the novel yeah 
he only exists to serve the white characters and provide them with support and backup going back to Huckleberry Finn. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that, 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 that's, that's a reference and a pull that, uh, if you, if you make it, you, you start highlighting some things. And I think that that's, it, that, that's really unfortunate because said a bunch of critical stuff, uh, going on here. Let me, let me give you the other shot. The Mike Hanlon dairy interludes are the best parts of the They're so good. It is so cool. It's so good. Stephen King has, is, he is hitting on all cylinders here. Uh, I just like hearing Stephen King. I mean, uh, look, ultimately, this is Salem's Lot again, right. right? Like, it's it's some of the parts that I liked about Salem's Lot the most, and some of the parts of maybe Cujo that I like the most, you know, when we, like, zoom through and we learn about, like, the weirdos who live in Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, it's Mike Hanlon just, like, going through it. He's got a great uh, narratorial voice to him. Like, yeah. Stephen King has kind of figured out what Mike Hanlon sounds like. Oh, God, Mike Hanlon. Uh, I, I, I almost said Hanford again. <laughs> My, what, Mike, what Mike Hanlon uh, sounds like and the way he thinks about the world, he's, a little, he's caustic. He's cynical, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, if there is one thing that I think Stephen King gets, it's that if there is a black man who's living in this town for his whole life, He's going to have to have dealt with a bunch of bullshit and it sucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it comes out in his retelling of the tales of this town that ultimately he's in love with. Yeah. Um, and he and he has to cross that divide or gap. Right. And that's what these dairy interludes are. It's a man who is his one characteristic as a human being is being the type of person that this town implicitly most of the time and explicitly all of the time hates. Mm-hmm. And yet he's in love with it, and he has to be its steward in his his uh you know in his life. It's his life work, um, and that 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 affect that emotion, whatever. I think King does a very good job of capturing it. Um, the section, I mean, these are all their own like little novellas, right? But uh, when the whole town gets together to murder those gangsters, oh yeah, that's evil. That's evil shit. Yeah. Uh, and based on a thing that actually happened in, in, uh, Bangor. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I don't think it was quite as like, uh, bloody and premeditated. Uh, but, uh, I think that like Steve, uh, Steve did a lot of like historical research and like pulled things out of, out of Bangor's history. Uh, and this was one of them when they, uh, like had a posse that killed some like depression era outlaws. The other thing that I think is really cool about Mike's interludes, um, and this is a thing that I absolutely couldn't have appreciated when I first read this book because I had not discovered Lovecraft yet, uh, is that Mike is kind like, this is, this is some of the best Lovecraft style stuff, uh, that King has actually done, right? Is like this first person narrator, like digging into the history and being like, and, and he doesn't, the, the, the secret sauce is that King is not really trying to imitate Lovecraft in terms of prose style, as you say, cause Mike, uh, is doing a Lovecraft thing, but his response is like, I shouldn't be fucking doing this. Like I'm digging into <laughs> shit that people don't want me digging into. And yet here I am. What am I going to do with these papers? Am I going to burn them? Like, <laughs> right. Uh, and yeah, so like the, the Bradley gang thing is so cool because, uh, I mean, I like, that's probably my favorite interlude. I think just because it's yeah. such a, um, what happens is there are these, uh, you know, bank robbers from the Midwest, like, you know, John Dillinger era outlaws. Uh, they, uh, are going across the country on their little spree. Um, word gets out to the people in Derry that they're, the Bradley gang is hanging around in the area and they might be coming into town. 
And so every all the men in town just like happened to come to downtown on that day. And they all happened to have brought their guns like word has gotten around somehow, you know, all the women and kids are gone like they've all, you know, gone off to other places. Actually, I think one person there's one kid out and it's actually Bill's dad. Uh, and someone tells him it like we, we find out it's like, you know, Zach, Zach Dinbro, like uh, who will like, you know, so many years later become Bill's dad. Uh, they're like, you know, get out of here, kid. And then the Bradley gang shows up and then uh, they're looking around kind of this deserted town square. And then everyone comes out and just like opens fire and like massacres them. Uh, and it's really, really violent and bloody. And then when uh, and Mike has to go around and like ask all of these people around town, like for their version of it, because no one talks about this. Like it's this thing that happened, but no one talks about it. Uh, and he has to sort of like track down who would have been alive then. And it's sort of like one of them's the pharmacist, uh, right, who tells Eddie uh, that his asthma isn't real. And Mike talks about how when he's sitting with the pharmacist, the pharmacist pulls out like an old thing of candy, like licorice whips or something, and is like making Mike eat licorice whips while he's talking to him. And then later... Mm -hmm. In, in like a later chapter, we have the scene with Eddie where he takes Eddie back to tell him about his asthma and he does the same thing. He makes Eddie eat the licorice whips, which is really cool. Um, but all of the the way that like the people that Mike is talking to are sort of like gleeful, even though they know it's like shameful and secretive, uh, gleeful that they participated in this. And then uh, like he starts asking like, well, did you notice anyone there who was like, maybe like someone strange, someone that you didn't recognize around town and all of them or not all of them, but like many of them mention having seen someone in clown makeup as part of the posse, except each person, uh, saw the clown in a different place. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause I think it's all coming from the pharmacist, but he's like, I talked to these other people. Oh, that's and right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he he has the or the it's Pennywise right, mm -hmm. and Pennywise has the gun that that person is holding. Yes, each in a different place, right? Yeah, each person who sees Pennywise sees Pennywise holding the same gun that they are holding. Right, and I forget who it is. Maybe it's him, and he's like, uh, he he could see him impossibly floating out the window firing a gun, and because they massacre these people, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's deeply uh, it's shameful and it's disgusting right like that the these people show they drive into town and they are just not even given the opportunity to defend themselves or like come out with your hands up none of that they just kill them all mm -hmm. um and uh it, you know they're like shooting these women uh and you know that's very explicitly done people are getting shot in the neck like uh <laughs> arteries are exploding stephen king in the mid 80s he loves like he loves spider webs that hurt you uh -huh. and he loves uh your throat exploding like blood <laughs> shooting out of your throat i don't know what what's going on here uh but th that certainly is defining the, the mid 80s for me for stephen king but i agree i think that that's the best one of all of them but yeah his uh I think Dick Halloran, oh, Dick Halloran shows up in the black spot. Yeah. Uh, you know, being burned down. And that's also horrifying, right? He talks about seeing the people burning, looking like they're dancing and then just kind of floating down to the ground. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, a massive bird I comes this. down and like, I do too. <laughs> oh, let's just say, oh, I, oh no, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about it in just a minute. But yeah, a big massive bird comes down and like eats a clansman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is weird. Um, but but Dick Halloran is there. He's one of the people who is posted at the black spot. Mm -hmm. um, and he is the one who knows he I mean, he gets a little like 
Boop of the Shining and it ends up saving Mike Hanlon's dad mm-hmm. um, because he knows something bad's about to happen. Right. He like when the when the building's going up up in flames, he like people are running for one door and how and he's like and this like, you know, service cook we had Dick Halloran was just like, no, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Go this way. Even though it was like counterintuitive, Halloran was like insisting everyone go the other way. And it turns out, you know, the like other way had collapsed or something. Yeah, and like, look, uh, maybe this is the place to say it really quickly. This is, I did not realize to the extent, because Castle Rock has been a shared location. Uh Uh-huh. And with certain figures that show up repeatedly, you know, uh, 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 Sheriff Bannerman being one of the key ones, and then the the deputy, the serial killer from uh, the Dead Zone. Uh Uh-huh. You know, the rumor of him. Mm -hmm. This is the birth of the King of Earth. Yeah. Uh, this novel specifically. Yeah, the most. Explicit. We're going to talk about some of the st- yeah. stuff later, but like the metaphysics of the King of Verse are here. Dick Halloran showing up for no reason other than like, hey, remember that guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is the King of Verse here, right? Um, any more on Mike then? Oh well, I guess I you, don't. Th- the other thing to say about him is that it he is the last one to join the circle of kids. It takes him the longest. Mm-hmm. Um. And then he is also just shunted completely out of the picture during the adult timeline because uh, the next character we're going to talk about, the bully Henry Bowers, uh, comes by and like assaults him. And then uh, Mike ends up in the hospital during the climax. So the we got to talk about Stan Uris. Even even you oh, wait, in this yeah, very moment Stan. forget oh forgot about the furtive Stanley. The furtive uh, Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the weirdest little character in the whole story. Yeah, so Stan, um, Stan is a, uh, he, I mean, he is Jewish, right? That is like one of his main points of characterization. Uh, and we also, of all of these kids, he is the one that we get the least time with internally. I think maybe we get one chapter that is really truly from Stan's perspective when he's a kid. And it's the one where he encounters it for the first time. He likes bird watching, so he goes to the park. And uh, there's a standpipe in the park. Uh, and we've mentioned this actually in a couple of episodes in, in uh, Bangor's um, uh, like Central Park or whatever. There's like a giant water, like like a water tower called the standpipe. And Derry has that, too. And uh, Stan encounters some drowned kids in it, like kids who like allegedly drowned or whatever. Uh, and that's like the one chapter we really get from his perspective. Otherwise, we are always seeing him from the outside. Uh, even in his introduction at the beginning when Mike makes all the phone calls and then Stan uh, like gets the phone call and uh, uh, kills himself, right? Rather than face it again, he kills himself. Uh, this entire thing, that entire chapter is not from his perspective. It's from the perspective of his wife. And this entire thing is a novella because we learned so much about his wife's upbringing and her life and sort of like uh, how she has been treated for being Jewish and how like, you know, they didn't let her go to prom and they could never join country clubs. And uh, despite it all, she and Stan have kind of like come together and made it work and they've been very successful. And then, uh, just the absolute horror that she has upon discovering him dead in the bathtub, which is which is quite sad. Um, but my point still stands, which is that we never really get anything from Stan himself, aside from that encounter with uh, uh, the kids in the the dead kids in the standpipe. No, the I don't. I have no. You could look. Uh, you know, it's hard to make big calls like this, but Stan Yuris would be easy to uh, edit out of this novel. Mm-hmm. Like it, it wouldn't be hard. 
I I think that this is something that we didn't hammer or or think too heavily on. I don't think or, you know we mentioned it in passing, but didn't really delve into it. Uh, and uh, you know we had a conversation with Ben in the Discord, uh, someone who listens to the show and participates pretty heavily in the Discord uh, about this, right? About like the anti-Semitism that was going on around. Um, I don't remember any character's Ra- name from uh, Pet Cemetery, Ra- but the the wife's parents. Yeah, um, I can't even think of. Jet, what's the kid's name? Jet, what? Rust? <laughs> Rust? What is his name? What the hell are you talking about? What is the kid's name from Pet Cemetery? Gage? Oh, there we go. I, look, Jet? I knew it was like a weird name. <laughs> Jet? I knew it was like a name that's not a real name. <laughs> Gage? <laughs> Dieters? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so, but, but, right, you know, after that episode, Ben was like, hey, you know, there's a lot more anti Semitism than you really talked about going on here in the writing mm-hmm. of this character. And I think the same thing's going on with, with Stan. I, I really don't know why. I mean, Stan's ability is question mark. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he's good at. Um, his weakness is being Jewish. Yeah. His weakness is being more specifically a stereotype of a Jewish person, being too neurotic to live, uh-huh. quite literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also his questionable superpower because, like, the thing that Stan does, like the the really uh, integral function that Stan serves, is that when they are kids and they face it for the first time, uh. This is implied because, again, we don't get his perspective on any of this, but uh, the other characters kind of come to this realization. Stan is the only one who realizes for sure that they are probably going to have to come back because he's the one who uh, makes them like cut their palms and then like they all swear a blood oath together. Mm -hmm. Um, Like he's the one who realizes that. Uh, and, yeah, the other thing that they say is that, uh, when they eventually encounter it, it turns out it's pregnant, right? And it, it's, uh, it's female and it's pregnant. Um, it's going to have little it babies and someone, I think, again, it's Beverly possibly who thinks like Stan is Stan realized this the first time, right? Um, again, I don't know really how, uh, but like, that's that's one of the other things that Stan does is that he like he's give he's presented as uh seeing maybe the worst case scenario right and this maybe plays into him uh being the one who ends up uh, killing himself rather than go back and face it again uh but also in line with what was going on in the pet cemetery episode um one of the reasons I stumbled there because I did feel like it was really weird uh but I couldn't like quite put into words what I felt like was going on on in that book it was just so strange and out of place and like i just couldn't get my hands on it and it was only Mm -hmm. when i remembered it and what happens with stan um and kind of how this works out with him that i kind of it like popped together in my mind and i'm like oh this is the issue uh i said in the pet cemetery episode uh that the end of that book with like rachel trying to get to the house and like uh you know stop things she feels like something bad is going to happen so she wants to get back to the house before lewis like goes on his tear and like causes all that bullshit it's exactly mm-hmm. like halloran trying to get to the overlook in the shining except halloran mm-hmm. keeps meeting people who help him out um and rachel uh when she's trying to do this like she's leaving her parents to do this um things keep going wrong for her 
So if you like put the Shining and Pet Cemetery side by side, you can see them as kind of reflections on each other and sort of in a, a, a very vague, weird, like pop cultural theological sense. If we think of like the King stories as having a kind of like fictional, not a fictional theology, there's not like a pantheon, right? This isn't the Silmarillion, um, but kind of not, not yet. Not they, yet. They, uh, not it, yet. It begins this quite yes, literally, but, it does. but they will. Yeah. Uh, but if we if we think of like the, um, you know, the religious or like the pseudo religious imagination of King and the way that that influences the ways that he thinks about the supernatural in these novels. The Shining is a story where the supernatural is ultimately like good and productive in the sense that like the Shining is the thing, right? The Shining is God. Mm -hmm. The Shining is the redemptive like supernatural element. Um, and that is absent from Pet Cemetery. Um, and that's like, you know, like uh, Rachel gets like the dark version where it's just there is no good. There's only this kind of evil force. Um, and here with Stan, uh, he like his kind of thing is that like he's too good at seeing the evil or like he's he's too aware of it or something like that. Um, and uh, well, he, he can't grapple with it. That's yes. part of the thing. Like he 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 uh, so he kills himself mm -hmm. precisely because he does not have the imagination as an adult that would be necessary to go and have a conflict with it. Because that's like the whole, as we talk about, you know, or as it says really explicitly later in the novel, right? Like the point of surviving and then bringing them back, right? To fight them again is that it assumed that their imaginations will have atrophied to the point where they're, they can't use its powers against it, mm -hmm. right? Like, like the second conflict is kicking the can down the road to fight on a better battlefield, essentially. And with Stan Uris, that's true. Like he cannot, rem he can't hold in his head the reality of it as an adult. So when he begins remembering things, he kills himself rather than deal with the reality of it. So it, it, like uh, you are right. And you're right to the extent that like the novel tells us that over and over, just not precisely in those terms, right? right. Like as, as, a, as an adult man, Stan Uris cannot access the thing necessary to actually deal with the supernatural anymore. Right. And uh, this is so uh, basically that one of the big like picture ways of looking at this is that this I think, you know, rather accidentally or incidentally, I'm, I'm not saying that this is intentional on King's part by any means, but he ends up figuring uh, his one Jewish character as compared to the other characters uh, spiritually dead. Like right. everyone else can tap into this kind of a uh, beautiful, powerful, good force of imagination uh, that Stan ends up lacking. Stan can't get it, can't get back to it. Um, uh, and in fact, like his version of this when they're kids is he like what he does is he uh, recites names of birds from his bird book. Um, yeah. So for some reason that doesn't work any or he doesn't think that's going to work anymore or whatever. And this is all all of this stuff again with his wife. Um, is bound up in like there's something similar like in the same way that like Rachel's right. family and Pet Cemetery was figured as kind of like acquisitive and social climbing in a way that like in like practical effects is just very anti-Semitic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the wife like she's so happy because she gets with Stan and they're like super successful and they make a lot of money and now she can be a part of these nice neighborhoods outside of Atlanta. Um, which by the way I think he is us uh, king that is is 
somehow, not somehow, but for some reason, pulling this from uh, Anne Rivers Siddons's book, The House Next Door, which is talked about in Dan's Macabre. And I have mm-hmm. I have read that. Uh, and I think I said some, some positive stuff about it on the Dan's Macabre episode because there is good stuff in there, but stuff that I had completely forgotten that um, I think maybe Brian in the Discord was was mentioning is that one of the families in that book, uh, and weirdly enough, they're in like suburban Georgia or a suburban. It's a mm-hmm. suburban Atlanta specifically, which is also where Stan and his wife live uh, at the beginning of this novel. Um, uh, they move into like this neighborhood and they are also presented as like acquisitive social climbers. Um so like there's this weird thing happening where it seems like Steve is like photocopying uh like stereotypes and like then trying to like redeem not not even consciously trying to redeem stereotypes but he's just like photocopying them and uh, uh reproducing them and then like trying to be like I could do this and also make the character a good guy quote unquote. Um anyhow yeah, and and you know, think about this about thinking about both like the kind of racial um, uh, imaginary going on with Mike Hanlon. Han- yeah, yeah, you got it right. That now, time. now I'm now I'm scared. Uh, my, with Mike Hanlon and what's going on with Jewishness here, right? Is that it, it's exactly what Austin said in the um, Game Study Study Buddies episode that we did last month, uh, where he guessed it on with the Forge. Mm-hmm. Is that like part of the thing that explains King, or, or a thing that's important about King rising to primacy in the '80s? Is that King typifies an imaginary, right? Like. King is very good at playing with stereotypes. Yes. Uh, this These works of the 80s work because they play in stereotypes in some ways, right? Like everyone reading this Michael Collins book, reading interviews with King from the 80s, right? The primary thing that King seems so concerned about as far as his reception is concerned is that everyone is constantly giving him shit for talking about movies and brands. Uh-huh. Like, all of his monsters are lifted out of the the creature features of the 1950s and then kind of reformatted around, or, you know, big fiction. Uh, I I will say this, the one novel that everyone is like, hey, pretty good one, Steve, is uh, Salem's Lot. Because everyone, all the literary establishment seems to be like, this is a great take on a classic villain. Mm -hmm. Um, But people, I didn't realize this, and I I wish I'd known it before, but people were very critical of Carrie when it came out. Uh, because it was part of the possessed teenager uh, oh, yeah. uh, novels of the 1960s, they read it in that mode, right? Of uh, of all of that, which I just wasn't aware of. And his take is different, right? Because it goes into like the the TK and like what is true, what is not around that. You know, it it taps into a different subculture, but it's it, it was read as being a part of those novels, and that was the big kind of negative critical response to it. But that's all to say, right? That like. This is a novel where, well, sorry, let me say it this way. King knows, and everyone knows in the 1980s, that when you read a Stephen King thing, you're going to see Mm Coca-Cola, and you're going to get the creature feature thing, right? Like, you're not going to run into monsters that are not very familiar, and it is actually folding all of that into it, right? Like, what if there was a villain that was all of the villains of pop culture, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that was the, the thing? Like, what if Stephen King did the thing you all accuse him of doing, which is like just bringing in uh, I was a teenage werewolf. Right, right. <laughs> into the novel, right? So like this movie, or not this movie, but this book is meta-reflective in that way. It is precisely King working through a criticism that has been levied at him apparently all through the early 1980s. That also extends to his character types, right? I mean, that's what we've been talking about. They have a superpower and they have a weakness that it typifies them as a stereotype. Ben is fat, right? Mm-hmm. Bill has a star. He's an imaginative kid who can't communicate. 
mm-hmm. right? Like that that is the the bill problem, here, mm-hmm. right? And and the the way that shows up in both Mike Hanlon and in Stan Uris is that like they are racialized. And that is also like the thing that they can't overcome in some ways. Like Mike, Mike Hanlon can't get rid of racism in dairy. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Stan Uris can't get rid of the, the stereotypical Woody Allen-esque neuroses of being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so he, and so literally he has to die because it's impossible. Right. Right. He likes birds. He loves to codify the world. He likes to codify the world so much that he's codified all the money in the world. He's a very yes. successful CPA, oh God, right? Yes. It's not it just that he's successful, right? He's not like a museum curator, right? Which Or, or you know, like an ornithologist. He uh-huh. could have been a scientist, right? There's a lot of different ways to get there. The man manages money for a living. Uh-huh. Like, like, you can't get more. Uh, you know, stereotype of, of uh, you know, anti-Semitic character type at the time. So, you know, King is successful because he plays in these realms of the familiar and of the culturally standard. And he tells you that too, right? He says that horror is a conservative genre that's moving through social fears. We have to read that in positive and interesting ways in the sense of like, it is a fascinating villain because it does that. And we have to think through that negative ways, right? The characters who show up are these weird stereotypes. And then in the case of racialized figures, King seems to not be able to think his way out of this. You know, he he seems very comfortable just being like, here's my Jewish stereotype. And he's so Jewish, he can't live. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's awful. It's mm-hmm. it's just truly an awful thing to think about in schematic terms. It's really difficult to read through. Uh at least Mike Hanlon, uh, for all the ways that that goes wrong, at least he is a character. Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah, because as you, I agree with you that like you could edit Stan out of this because like what I my memories of Stan are him kind of like always being on the sidelines of a scene, and mm-hmm. that's kind of it. Um, yes, I mean he is, uh, and he's literally the character when they're all like, "Hey, there's a shape shifting." evil creature out there and we might have to kill it he's literally the person at the time as a child when in the the rules of the narrative your imagination is the most fertile capable you know you're not entering into the realm of adulthood and you're that kind of stuff right Mm -hmm. he even then is like i can't deal with it no 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 it's not real and that that is also something that shows up in the adaptations right and that's a thing weirdly enough that also ties back into pet cemetery um, in a weird indirect way, because oh, right, it's Lewis right. in that book who is like, he's too rationalistic. And that's like, mm-hmm. it like cracks his mind when he encounters the unknown. And then he just like fully falls under the influence of the pet cemetery. Um, because yeah, it's the, the, like the, the rational character who keeps insisting that this thing can't happen even as it overtakes them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Michael here. Uh, Obviously, if you've looked at the runtime for this episode, you know that our recording session ran a little long. So unfortunately, Cameron can't join me for this ad break. So I'm going it alone. What was was that? I'm clown, Michael. Fuck, it's 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 clown, Michael. And I'm here to help you tell all these fine people about the circus of content available from Ranged Touch. If you like Just King Things, you may want to check out some of our other shows we do. We don't have any ads! <laughs> yeah, we're entirely listener-supported, and we don't have any ads, except for things like this. 
Cameron and I have a handful of other shows, like Game Studies Study Buddies, where we read books of academic game studies and try to make them accessible, as well as Too Much Future, where we play through and critically discuss the Fallout game franchise. Later this year, we'll be starting Fallout 4. And for you traditionalists out there, uh, with our other pal Danny, Cameron hosts Mages and Murder Dads, where they play through and discuss the games in the Baldur's Gate lineage. Uh, finally, if this episode on Stephen King's It has really highlighted for you how much you like overlong iterated plot structures about kids having nightmare clown encounters <laughs> you may really like homestuck made this world where cameron and i are reading through and historically contextualizing the massive webcomic homestuck all these things are free, uh, but if you drop by our Patreon at patreon.com slash range touch and kick us even a few dollars a month, you help keep us afloat down here, uh, producing all these shows and contributing to our research funds and for doing things like pur purchasing back issues of the Castle Rock newsletter and all of these books that Cameron is reading. And in return for that, you get access to loads of bonus content uh, for Homestuck Made This World, for Game Studies Study Buddies, um, but also for just king things where we tend to watch stephen king film adaptations and discuss them and this month this month you're watching the 1990 it miniseries with a clown who talks a bit more like this yes uh this month's bonus ode that's that's the it miniseries and next month actually uh you'll get uh, another bonus episode where we're going to talk about both of the latest uh contemporary it films and if you're already backing us on Patreon, thank you so much. Uh, one additional thing you can do, since we grow entirely by word of mouth, is tell a friend who may like this show about it, or maybe head on over to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a positive review. And if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts that is both funny and five stars, we'll read it on air. Osgood B writes in to say... I'm here to say Cameron is underrated. Mm. Sometimes he makes a voice and it's like Waluigi. Not necessarily like, orally similar, but spiritually similar to Waluigi. Also, sometimes the voice also sounds like Waluigi. He is the indispensable touch of chaos that makes the podcast go. Good analysis too, I guess. Hashtag two darling boys. The real Laszlo mm -hmm. Krasnell Horke writes in to tell us, We love our darling boy Michael. We love our darling boy Michael. We love when Cameron says, It may sound like we're not doing the plot justice, but this is all that happens. Hoo hoo hoo. Great, great, great. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and. You're forgetting to apologize to all your fine listeners for neglecting to discuss the famous explosion of Derry Maine's Kitchener Ironworks during an Easter egg hunt. Well, the, the episode's already over four hours long, and we don't A have... child's head ends up in a tree! We don't have time to cover everything. But you still found time to record and edit this self-indulgent ad break! Yeah, well, I can end that right now. Um, so then, uh, there's Beverly. Yep. She's the girl. What going on here? She's the, the girl. Uh -huh. uh, her benefit, her, her power is she's the girl. And uh, qu quite literally. It is so interesting in that thing that I read from Castle Rock where uh, King says, you know, I've resisted the impulse to do ice cream flavor novels. 
you know, he's doing that in quotes. And I think what he means there is like when you get like a, a set of Neo- Neapolitan ice cream that has like the three flavors in it or something. I think that's what he's like the, the, the kind of metaphor or idea he's trying to pull in there. He's like, I avoid doing this. Um, and this like these seven kids feel so much like him doing that, except I don't know. It's like. It's like he did that. He had his three flavors and then he's like, oh, this feels like an ice cream thing. I'll add four more types of vanilla. <laughs> and so, you know, it's really funny. I, I I don't know what that is. And I actually tried to look that up and I just couldn't immediately like come to anything. My my flip of that, my you could read it that way. Like you get multiple distinct flavors. My other one is like writing a white novel, writing a black novel, uh, okay. you know, mm-hmm. writing a strawberry novel. Right. That That's how I took it is like that's him being like, I write diverse novels not just novels that are one flavor i see i don't know i, I mean know oh, it's very opaque to me i don't <laughs> know one way i think that's him patting himself on the back i don't just write novels about white people yeah i put black characters in it yeah i put jewish people in it. <laughs> they're they are uh, uh bone achingly stereotypical characters mm-hmm. uh but hey you gotta give me credit for trying yeah and maybe that's why I did just a minute ago by being like, hey, my handling doesn't work, but pretty good, huh? Yeah. I mean, maybe I have like fallen into the trap that Stephen King has laid for me. But yeah, uh, Beverly uh, has a father who is abusive, mm-hmm. who was bordering on sexually abusive mm-hmm. because she is, she's 12, uh, 11? 11 going on 12, like all of them. Right. Well, well, they're all, they're not all 11 going on 12 though, right? Like oh. some of them are a little bit older. Is I think true? some of them have already turned 12. Yeah, maybe that's it. Okay. Uh, but uh, so, yeah. So, it, you know, she is at a, tr- they're all at a transitioning point of their life. And that's what this is about. It's about, it's a book about adolescence and people who are children becoming early adults. Uh-huh. You know, that teenagers don't exist, uh, you know. And uh, that's the thing we're thinking about too, right? Uh, the, the concept of a teenager is historically mediated and uh, emerges in the back half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, before that, you're a kid or you're an adult. Mm hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, she's, she's doing that. He's, he's hitting her all the time. And so she's kind of driven out of her home. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of how she ends up, um, hanging out with the kids so much, hanging out with, with the boys, Mm -hmm. the, the rest of these characters is that her home life has become so dangerous, both physically and then with the threat of sexual violence that, she's trying to not be around her father as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, her mother is an abused woman and doesn't have the capability. And, and, and her mother is also the one who like sets up this sexual violence angle. She's like, you know, does your father ever touch you? Yeah. You know, that, that, that shows up there too. Right. So her mother is fearful of her and aware of all these things, but also is abused as well. And doesn't have any capability to, to maneuver or help Beverly out. I mean, she's truly caught in a, in a trap, mm-hmm. uh, in a bear trap. Uh, and that's what the novel kind of uses her perspective for. But yeah, her weakness is that she is a, a, a girl who doesn't have any support structure, basically. She doesn't really have any female friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the uh, her power is that she's the one girl. Uh-huh. And that, I mean, that gets kind of brought up very famously in the, in the sex scene that shows up at the end of the novel. But... Um, she and she is much like everyone else in her adult form has replicated her childhood. Mm-hmm. So she is successful. She's a very successful fashion designer. Um, but her husband is he beats her. Mm-hmm. Not just like uh, you know, it's not it's not a light 
you know, um, is this or is this not abuse, right? You can imagine a version of this character that kind of plays at that angle. And I think maybe the the movies do play a little bit less explicitly with this, but I only saw the first or I only saw both of them one time and it was when they came out. So mm-hmm. I can't speak to that, I guess. We should wait. It's going to be the bonus episode for next month mm-hmm. on range touch uh, 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 range you can go to or you can go to patreon.com slash range touch but uh in uh her her husband is v- extremely violent mm-hmm. um and in his beating her extensively and she escapes she has probably one of the most significant like present day scenes at the beginning of the book because it is a story of her trying to physically escape her home um and then being pursued by her um her her husband mm-hmm um, um, and she like cuts herself. She gets gets hurt. By the way, a lot of people get kicked in the balls in this book, mm-hmm. like a huge number. There's probably twenty five getting kicked in the crotches, <laughs> much like Babe Ruth's uh, <laughs> yes. uh, remarkable performance in the metaphor of it. Uh, a lot of people just get hit in the nards. Yeah. Uh. Uh. Yeah. Beverly. Uh. The other thing about her that is sort of I think important or like uh, uh, adds additional like background or context to how she works here is that she's also poor. Like her family lives in like an apartment in like the poor part of town. So that's why, that's why the other girls don't like her because she's uh, poor and can't like do her hair in the same way and can't wear like clothes. Uh, And she's also a bit of a tomboy in that she, she is cool, like running around in the barrens with the boys and like playing guns as they put it. Um, She also like smokes cigarettes, which is like, oh no, like a, a young girl smoking cigarettes. And then, of course, when she grows up, she's still a smoker. And one of the ways that um, her husband abuses her is by uh, telling her when she can and cannot smoke cigarettes. Uh, like, right. Um, uh, she becomes a fashion designer. Uh, yeah. Again, I guess because she's a girl. I, I don't know that uh, that playing guns thing is real. Like, do you know, do you have any adults in your life who have like uh, metal <laughs> buried in their body? Uh, from playing guns as kids i don't i mean if they if i do they don't talk about it uh like my uncle has like bbs in his mm, hands yeah that are just in there because he got uh shot so many times with because that's what they're they're not like playing guns ha 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 they have pellet guns and bb yeah. guns that they are shooting each other with that i think i've said about this in the, on a podcast before but that happened to me when i was in middle school oh, around yeah. this age uh-huh. uh and my friend's dad yes. was shooting us from a sniper position on the roof <laughs> um and i have more than one time it was wild but but uh, so, you know, I've got a little bit and this was actually happening around the same time as I was reading it. I was, you know, 11, 12, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. So uh, definitely have had this experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Beverly is the in the same way that everyone wants to be Bill's like little brother, um, mm-hmm. except for Beverly, who wants to be Bill's girlfriend. Everyone wants Beverly to be their girlfriend, essentially. I mean, not everyone, right. actually. It really is. It's There's a love, tri- tr- love triangle between Bill, Ben, and Bev. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, we get some, uh, when Richie's a kid, we get some perspective on him where he kind of like, real. he's like, oh, Beverly's actually like a beautiful young woman. <laughs> And he has that realization and it's kind of like his first uh, uh, sort of like a hint of romantic feeling ever or something. Um, it's like a thing he has never, never really talked about. Right. Um, um, and yeah. And she's, uh, you know, I she probably gets I would say of the characters who get the kind of most fleshing out here 
uh, Bill, Beverly, and then Mike Hanlon, just because we get so much of him writing in the first person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we get a lot about her. Um, and especially, uh, what is it? It's, uh, who, wait, who's married to, oh, Bill, Bill's married to Audra. Yes. I, I don't know why I was like having an issue there, right? So like, uh, Bill and Beverly are so important too, right? Because Beverly's husband in like, a D plot, like I, it's so far down. It should have, again, should have been cut. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that does not belong in this novel. But he chases her uh, to Derry. At the same time, Bill's wife Audra, who looks just like Beverly mm-hmm. and is a famous actress, mm-hmm. uh, he, she chases him to Derry as well mm-hmm. to kind of up the stakes a little bit of the, the end of the novel. Yeah, this is such um, a sorry to telescope out just a bit here to talk about structure, but no. it was like at the midpoint yeah, of the novel where they follow up with both because what happens is, you know, all these characters get the calls at the beginning and they set off to Derry and they're all telling the people yeah. in their lives like, you know, you I just have to go home. You don't understand like something important has happened. I'm going like, don't follow me. Uh, and then uh, we get like the midpoint chapters where we find out that Audra has uh, followed uh, Bill and that Tom is following Bev and it was like during those little sections where I felt my like stomach drop out because I don't like it was it was just like oh my god no like because everything up to then like the 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 interlacing on the novel had felt so like natural and right and just kind of like yeah this is what you do next and this is what you do next uh and then it uh, hits the midpoint. Here are these two new characters that are now joining the scene. And it's also like, at, because it's the midpoint, it is just after like all of the kids have really like come together, right? Like all of this stuff is kind of locked into place. And then it's like, and here's some more elements. Uh, and and it, yeah. it feels like desolating. But then weirdly enough, as you say, nothing fucking happens with it. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. I mean, he gets to the end of the novel and he's like, oh, wait, one of these whole plots doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Uh oh! <laughs> like uh, Tom uh, kidnaps Audra, <laughs> like sort of off screen. It just happens. He kidnaps mm-hmm. her off screen, takes her down to its lair. He like he looks at it and drops dead, and then Audra uh, becomes catatonic and gets uh, you know pulled up into a spider web. Like, yeah, yeah. They are there to solve problems, uh-huh. right? Like, uh, I actually don't really know why Audra is there to solve a problem. Maybe it's to make Bill be fulfilled in his life. Yes. Like now he's got everything, mm-hmm. you know, now that it is defeated, you know, that kind of happens. But for, uh, for Beverly, it's so, she, so they can neatly, or the, the King can neatly kill her husband. Yes. <laughs> uh, to like resolve, you know, to allow her to get with Ben in the end. Right. And that like, Hey, it resolves all the issues. But, um, I th- I think that's kind of enough to say about her, if only because like that the ending scene has a lot, or not the ending scene, but like the sex scene has a lot to do with her character. I think I have more to say about her then. Um, but so I think as far as characters are concerned, I think we need to talk about Henry Bowers next, mm-hmm. and then we need to talk about it himself, mm-hmm. or itself, or herself, herself actually. Yeah. I, don't know what I said herself. Uh, I was thinking about Pennywise, but <laughs> yeah, herself, and then uh. And then we're going to talk about like big, broad novel stuff, you know, things we haven't already talked about. Weirdly enough, I think by talking through the characters, we've gotten through most of it. We'll talk about that sex scene because I think a lot of people are curious about what we have to say about it. And I do have some big structural thoughts about it. I I probably would have not focused or thought too much about it because ultimately it really doesn't matter. No. It is shocking, but structurally doesn't matter a Another lot. Another thing but that people could just really be cut. 
you could just cut it out. But but the fact that it isn't cut out, I think, uh, means a lot for the novel. And the fact that so many other people read so much significance into it uh-huh. is wild to me. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it is. But anyway, we'll talk about it when we get there. And then I think we're probably mostly done. So yeah. let's talk about Henry Bowers. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about big, broad stuff that we haven't addressed yet. And then uh, sex scene. And then we're out. Yeah. So we're right on time at just short of three hours currently. Great. Um <laughs> So Henry is, he's actually, I called him an evil greaser earlier. He's really not. And this is what's weird. He's a subtype. He's a subtype of greaser, the farm greaser. Well, here's the odd (laughs) thing about Henry. Or actually, I think this is a consequence of like how this book works. Um, Because one, uh, like these kids are pretty young. Uh, Henry is their peer. He is older than them, but that's because he's been held back a couple times. But I don't think he's quite, uh, he's not like 16, I think. Uh, And he's also pretty poor. Um, And uh, this means he cannot have his own car. And I think this is critical. For like the they like uh, Stephen King evil greasers almost always are defined by their relationships to their cars, uh, and Henry doesn't have that. Henry is just like uh, he he could have become if <laughs> if if the events of it hadn't happened, and if he had grown up and gotten a car, then he would have been an evil greaser. But as it is, he is just like uh, the school bully, a proto a, yeah. a proto greaser. Proto greaser. He's well, and, and this is the best part about. Sorry, yeah. right? this is the best part about him is that the 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 miniseries, which I know you haven't watched yet, but yeah. you will, and we'll talk about it in there. But the miniseries can't help but make him a greaser. <laughs> the, like, like it's like, how else are we going to communicate what he's about? It's the fifties. Yeah. He's got to be a greaser, <laughs> even though, as you're saying, right, he's like this proto form. He he is not yet greaser, right? In the same way that they are not yet adult, he yeah. is not yet greaser. <laughs> uh yeah and belch grows up to be a greaser yes you know i mean ultimately uh yeah so henry has a bunch of friends and they have names like belt belch and victor um he uh like in in kind of like classic kingy style he is uh evil because he is stupid and he is stupid because he is evil like he is and i mean when i say stupid there i'm you know like this is how he is presented right he is he is like unimaginative unintelligent incurious about things he is like uh just mean and spiteful for kind of uh spite's sake except also he has a father who is an alcoholic and extremely abusive um and extremely racist against their neighbors who are the hanlins uh and here we see uh we we talked about all this sort of like race stuff uh, in the Castle Rock column and then uh, with Mike um, here we see kind of that in action where like very clearly like the reason Henry Bowers is racist against Mike Hanlon is because his dad is racist against Mike Hanlon's family and is constantly talking about how they're doing poorly because there is like a farm run by a black family down the road and they're like undercutting him on prices or something. Um, right. And and to be clear, uh, in case you haven't read this book, it, this is not said in this language. the The N word is used perhaps fifteen billion oh, times in yeah. this novel, which is which I think what animates the the reason for that question, right? In the, for the the Castle Rock newsletter, right? Is like, damn, uh, you know. And I imagine like you know, I'm 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 not black, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, shocker, perhaps, uh, uh, for people who are not aware yet somehow. 
Uh, I, I was I was pulling a Mike Hanlon there. <laughs> like you never would have known my racial identity until I revealed it to you in a shocking instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I think that's probably what animates the question is like you know uh, Stephen King makes you sit with a racist character for a very long for with multiple racist characters just hearing them chat for a very long time um, in a way that that starts to feel less like here's how the world is and more like golly he's having a lot of fun with this like weirdo racist man who is also mad you know like mm-hmm. uh you know uh he, he is not any particular kind of insanity he is just generally like literature mad yeah um and to go back to that thing too from from the newsletter right that you were talking about just because it, it's so important this is uh, this is a part that you kind of like skimmered through oh yeah yeah Let's go but this is the quotation from king right um in my stories, the people who refer to uh, African Americans as, and then he says a bunch of racial slurs, are generally people who are possessed of ugly tempers, ugly personalities, or people just too dumb to know any better. But to pretend that racial prejudice does not exist would be more than wrong. To back away from a scene where there's old prejudices would logically be a factor, or to pretty up such a scene would be immoral. And it's like, oh, okay, like... Right, sure. Mm-hmm. Like if there, it's the fifties, right? Like to pretend as if racism didn't exist would be weird mm-hmm. and bad, probably. I guess I agree with that. I, I think that there's a really interesting elision that King makes between like that, which is like here's the world as it was, and like I remember it, and it was the fifties, and like racism didn't go away in 1965. But then to like spend so long with a character. Uh, who's basically only every line he says has the N word in it. Yeah. He's constantly talking about the evil of black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry, when he comes back, says it in nearly every sentence. Yep. Right. Because he's so hyper fixated on Mike Hanlon, right? Mm-hmm. For some reason, who has to be the person who needs to be killed, which doesn't even make any sense. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Like in your hierarchy of people you need to kill, it's, it's, uh, any of the others yeah. before Mike. Because again, Mike's whole function was just to be a servant, right? Mm-hmm. Like he is not the critical, you know, uh, crux through which the rest of these people do their magical it powers. It's uh, it's built, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so even then, like the plot contrives to add more racist scenes to them in order to do dot, 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 question mark. Like it's pretty weird, but sorry, sorry to interject with that in there, but I do think it, I think it's a weird little puzzle piece. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, really important because there is like, there is a point at which it is like, all right, I get it. The guy is racist. Why are we spending so much time on this point? Like, why, why does he like, why does the, why is the character constantly reiterating his own racism to himself? Like, what is like, right? right like, what is the, the sort of thought going on here? Because, I mean, the other like uh, way of looking at it is that it sort of simplifies racism in a way that's just unhelpful and not true, right? It makes it look like people who are racist spend primarily their time sitting around thinking about being racist rather than, I mean, we, we, you know, Stephen King doesn't really think structural racism exists in this way, or at least he didn't when he was talking with the Black Panthers. Um, But yeah, it's on the one hand, it's like, yes, racism is real, bad, historical evil, uh, shouldn't shy away from it. And on the other hand, uh, Steve has an entire kind of worldview that divides people, by which I mean characters, into like goodies and baddies, and baddies are just racist. 
Right. And, and that's also, you know, it's the liberal racism form, right? Mm-hmm. And and I realized earlier I said that, and I've said that a few times. I think normally I explain it in most episodes. But when I say liberal racism, I don't mean racism of, like, liberals, uh-huh. right? Uh, I mean, like, the philosophy of liberalism, right? Where individualism, markets, the ability to transform the world voluntarily, all that kind of stuff. That that individualist philosophy of liberalism. Um, that it it's imaginary of racism is... There are a bunch of racist people in the world who make racist choices and actions. And if you just got rid of them or transformed them or educated them, then racism would go away. Right. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a more encompassing theory of racism that sees it as a structure or, you know, as a structure and system uh, that is materially written into the world. Right. Like loan laws are, you know, uh, uh, redlining. Mm hmm doesn't just happen because there are some racists who are giving out loans. It's written into the structure of banking agreements. Right. Uh, in that, in, you know, and in demographic analysis and in census, census data, all those kinds of things, yeah. right? Yeah, what I was and gesturing so, toward about, like, the single black family in dairy, right? <laughs> right, right. And so the, uh, you know, it, when, when I say the liberal, uh, uh, you know, idea of racism, it's this idea that, like, exactly as you're saying, Michael, that uh, uh, because the... Uh, uh, Henry Bowers is a racist and he makes racist actions. And the problem is him, not the whole system that surrounds him. Right. Mm -hmm. Certainly he's a problem, obviously. But look, I grew up around Henry Bowers. I mean, not directly him, you know, (laughs) in, in a general sense. But I grew up around a bunch of people who were explicitly and horrifyingly racist. And that's not to be like, oh, like, you know, like, dang, poor me. Um, Although it certainly is poor. A lot of people in that sense Mm -hmm. of like. Uh, if you grow up in a racist society, there's a bunch of people who are on the bad end of that. But I grew up, you know, especially at this age, 11, 12, 13, of like people using the N-word constantly. I grew up in the South. I grew up in the rural South. Mm-hmm. Uh, people using the N-word, saying every like weird arch conservative idea and fantasy you've ever seen around race constantly. Um, we had very few people um, who went to our school that who were non-white. And so they got the brunt of it and they got it constantly. And it was never intervened upon. No authority figure ever did jack shit about it. And in fact, made it worse quite often. I saw racial profiling happening constantly, especially to black peers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like the, the I've seen Henry Bowers in even those people doing these exact things in real life are not as focused on race as Henry Bowers is, right? Like, I I have lived within this social circumstance, and King still gets it wrong somehow. Um, and, you know, and maybe my, like, reason for poking at that so much is that I, I am intimately familiar with this mm-hmm. uh, and was intimately familiar with it. I mean, still, I still live in the South, but, you know, as a, as a uh, teenager was in the soup here. And uh, even then, like, this is a, a fantasy. But again, right, King is playing with stereotypes, the, th- the the thing that's great to kill is the big evil racist, right? Mm-hmm. And King is right in his letter that uh, Henry Bowers is not a good person and he gets hit his in the end, yeah. right? Like, you know, there is a, probably a thrill uh, in getting to watch the racist die. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's an animated killed, force. Killed by Eddie. Force for sure. Killed by Eddie, yeah. yeah. Who is kind of and the other his racist friends get like ripped apart. They get they get the the misted. Yes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> snipped and snapped in tw- in twain. Their heads get lopped off and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, not not to but a uh, couple other things that happen with Henry here. Do do you have big stuff? There's his weird bean story that's like right out of the body. <laughs> um, I I don't quite remember this. Can you like refresh me? 
Yeah, Henry's dad has a woman who comes over every Sunday. Oh, wait, yes, that's I, right. Maybe there's sex involved in this. I really don't get, I don't understand the situation here. It's a little obscure to me. But uh, she comes over with a big pot of beans. Uh-huh. And because Henry Bowers' father is, I mean, he is positioned and explicitly said he is insane. Yes. He has like King Lear madness, right? It's just like ambivalent and all the time. Uh, and uh, so he got kind of can't take care of himself and certainly is not taking care of his kid other than like than to abuse him. Right. There's a pretty sympathetic portrait of, of Henry Bowers in that those terms. Yeah. Right? Um, Henry Bowers, the ceiling on what Henry Bowers can do in his life is pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he is, he is bludgeoned and beaten into a very particular shape, but this woman comes over and gives them a pot of beans and they eat the beans the whole week. And when the beans go bad, they feed them to the pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the deal. And it's like, it's its own like three or four pages of like Henry's bean story, <laughs> uh, which ultimately, you, you know, uh, when they grow up, uh, when they're children, Henry is, is hounding them. He follows them into the sewers. He is attacked by it, and his friends are murdered by it. At the end of everything, he gets tagged with the murders mm-hmm. of everyone who died to it in 1958. Right. Like, he is the person who gets blamed. He gets sent to a place called Juniper Hill, and then when everything starts again in 1985, he is summoned up again by it to do its bidding in the world, as you talked about earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but there's this weird thing that happens in the middle and Michael Collins actually points this out that, uh, homosexuality is the cause for Henry to become insane. Yes. Yeah. When, when Henry finally goes off the deep end, it is because he is propositioned by, uh, one of his, uh, dirtbag friends, a guy named Patrick Hockstetter. Yeah, so so I, I think this is a good bridge for talking about, uh, a couple things here and maybe like leading into it itself as a character. So or as a figure, whatever, whatever we want to say, as a villain. So yeah, they're all hanging out. This is post-Bean story, because it's an explanation of why they are all nude. It's all these, like, teen boys hanging out, and they are all stripped to the waist, and Bev can see them from far away, mm-hmm. Beverly. Can see them from far away, and she's, like, kind of trapped there. I think she's, like, going to use the restroom it, or something. Yeah. I don't remember exactly uh, She's, like, happens. on her way some... She just happens to be, like, passing through, like, the junkyard where the kids are hanging out. She is on her way somewhere else, and, like... Uh, she hears sounds and she thinks it's the uh, she thinks it's the other losers, right? She thinks it's her friends like right, playing right. and she comes around and she's like, oh, fuck, it's these guys. Yeah. And they're like, uh, you know, by this point, Henry Bowers has beaten the shit out of every one of these kids in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that's the majority of the first half of the book is like we're introduced to a kid. We know what their thing is about. Uh, we see how they get have a bad run in with Henry Bowers in some way. And then we see how they have their initial encounter with it, which we'll talk about right. in just a minute. But so they're all stripped to the waist and they're all lighting their farts on fire, mm-hmm. uh, proving that uh, jackass is merely an, <laughs> uh, an epiphenomenon of a thing that is much more central to American boyhood, which is uh, putting flames near your butthole. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh anyway so they're doing all this and victor chris is like hey hey i have a job i gotta go yeah i actually really like victor chris as a character yes. we don't have time to get into this but i think he's really good well like i mean he's like um, this, this this like tertiary like villain who is also the only one like of of uh henry's little group he's the only one who's like oh fuck i think this is gonna go bad i should probably extricate myself from this yeah, and he's constantly thinking about that, and he should have. Yes. Uh, you know, it, there's a world in which Victor Chris could have been a loser. Yeah. Right? Like, he's tempted to the dark side, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something interesting there. But so uh, Victor Chris and Belch leave, and so it's just Patrick Hockstetter and then Henry who who are left there together. And then uh, Patrick propositions him, mm-hmm. basically. 
Uh, and Henry uh, has such a negative reaction to that, to the idea of like a homosexual encounter, mm-hmm. right? The the very idea of like being gay and that he might like it. I mean, that kind of is the position here, right? right. That uh, he is forced to think through the fact that he might be gay mm-hmm. or just not know yet, mm-hmm. right? He's He questions his own sexuality. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, that is so psychically damaging to him that it is able to like worm its way even further. So like it's him being abused. It's him being like the the product of this like deeply racist household. It's him, uh, you know, being on the bad side of all of the authority figures. So he never gets the benefit of the doubt. Right. All these things like hammer him into a shape in which it can can grab hold of him. But the thing that tr- flips the switch at the end of the day is him questioning his own sexuality, mm-hmm. which is, uh oh. Yeah. And that is, uh, really, I mean, we can say more about that, but, uh, the, the sort of like, I don't know, other puzzle piece here is that in the 1985 timeline, the thing that announces it has woken up again and is like beginning a new cycle. This is a detail that I think, you know, we haven't mentioned this far, but it has been around since before Dairy was founded and like works in cycles, right? It comes, uh, it wakes up for like a year, kills a bunch of people, goes back to sleep for about 27 to 30 years, wakes up, does it again. And how let, let, just one second. So let, let me say one thing and then let's just talk about it. How about oh, that? OK, um, so just the one additional thing to say here. Right. So Henry Bowers, as you said earlier, just to reiterate here, because it's a long episode. The whole reason Henry Bowers is in this novel is that it can only affect you. Like if your imaginations, you know, you believe in it. Uh-huh. You know, there's there's this power of belief. Henry Bowers is a physical human being who can stab you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he he that's that's his function in the novel is to kind of work against, you know, uh, there's one set of bad guy rules and there's another set of bad guy rules. And Henry defines the other set of bad guy rules. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason they all run into Henry before they run into it. Right. It's the kind of two poles of violence right. that exist. The one additional thing I want to say here, too, that, again, we don't have to get into uh, the Patrick Hockstetter little interlude is also extremely weird, and it's its own little Bachman book. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a serial killer. Yeah. This whole book is informed by the serial killer um, movement, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better thing, right? The explosion of serial killers in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s. I think Pennywise being a clown really leans into John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. Uh, you know, this kind of, like, kind of, uh, current contemporary fear of in that moment of the clown figure. Um, right. Because we know about Gacy at that point, that case has already happened in the early eighties. Um, and then, um, uh, Patrick Hockstetter also gets murdered basically by creatures from, um, from the mist. It's like King writing a whole other little different book in here. Mm -hmm. They're like weird mosquitoes that burrow into your skin and suck your blood out. They're described. Explode. They're described just like the little flying things in the mist that like land on the doors or the windows of the supermarket. They're like, they're leeches with wings. Yeah. So there's a little bit more here of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, Kingiverse Mm -hmm. stuff going on here, right? That, that, uh, it as a creature is going to get united with some of those other ideas of the big broader king or king multiverse that starts here in it those are going to get kind of get sewn up later and i think these are like a a thing to think about later on um but yeah hocksetter is a little serial killer kid yeah uh and he gets murdered and ultimately henry bowers is pinned uh, you know that death is pinned on him as, uh, as well as all the other deaths and he gets sent to juniper hill 
let's talk about it. Oh. Uh, so as you said, um, yeah. you know, oh, go ahead. I was just uh, using Patrick Hoxeter there as a bridge, right? Uh, oh, the sure. other thing that is worth thinking about is like, why is it that the character who propositions Henry is the one who is, quote unquote, a psychopath? Right, a serial killer in training. Right. Uh, again, thinking of John Wayne Gacy, who I believe um, uh, primarily murdered young men uh, that he yes. propositioned and brought home. So there's like all, all like you know, sexual devi, like uh, perceived sexual deviance and like murderousness are being twined together in a certain way. Um, yeah, it's gay panic. Yeah, uh, it, it, you know, it's gay panic that is. Uh, uh, um, you know, whatever kind of uh, processed into the novel. And, and also a thing that we learned about Patrick Hochstetter is that he uh, doesn't understand good or bad or anything. He's very much like textbook imaginary of what a sociopath is in the eighties. Um, you know, this is the exact same description that you see in uh, the silence of the lambs. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the, the same, you know, uh, Thomas Harrison description of so sociopathy around Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so he, you know, he doesn't have a sense of morality one way or the other around sexuality, meaning that he, he doesn't care if he like crosses a line, mm -hmm. uh, as far as like the utter uh, bear trap of, of heterosexuality or not. And that, that combo, right. Of him, like being like, I just do what feels good. And then Henry Bowers having such a tight wire here to snap those two things kind of happen one after the other. And then Patrick Hoxtetter is, is murdered yep. right afterwards. Yep. So and he's gone. Yeah. There's a weird sexual imaginary here, but you were going to talk about when it comes back. Right. Which is a, uh, uh, it's a scene as a homophobic hate crime. Uh, there is a like, you know, canal days festival in Derry. Uh, and there are two young, uh, gay men who are walking through the park and they are attacked and they're attacked by a, uh, group of metalheads, um, which I guess is the 1985 version of an evil greaser. Uh, mm -hmm. and they beat the crap out of them. And then one of them, uh, is thrown over a bridge into the river that runs through the park and, uh, he is killed by it. And this like sets off the, the next wave. And that's, uh, when, uh, Mike starts reaching out to, to other people. Um, and on the one hand, like this, this is kind of like, you know, some of the problems of this book in a, in a nutshell, on the one hand, like this is clearly bad, like Stephen King is not writing this and like on the side, like of the homophobia, like King is clearly like saying that this is a bad thing. And it is like representative of the type of evil that uh, uh, exists in a town like this. Um, and in fact, it is based on a true event. This is a thing he talks about in one of his um, columns in the Castle Rock newsletter, uh, specifically in response to Michael Collings, whom you've already mentioned. So Collings uh, previews some of his work for the books that you're reading in columns for Castle Rock. And he has a very long review of it in the uh, June of 1986 issue. And he he talks about a whole bunch of things. But one of the things he talks about is uh, the way that this novel thinks about uh, the development or growth into sexuality. Uh, and uh, Collings rather unproblematically does not seem to think this is too much of a problem uh says that yeah like this this novel has a strong opposition between homosexuality and heterosexuality and in fact he says that this is natural that heterosexuality should be like fearful of homosexuality he doesn't say it in those terms he says like it is natural that there should be a tension between these things um and he says that the novel is about seeing uh like 
on the one hand, like, good development, which is to mean heterosexual development among the, like, major characters, um, and then, like, it kind of, like, worms its way into or exploits uh, people who are weaker or, like, uh, you know, less... uh, people who are, you know, sexually marginalized, people who are queer, uh, in the sense that, um, I think Collings is imaginary, at least, is kind of like, uh, thinking of sexuality, like homosexuality or queerness as like an immature version of sexuality, uh, which is a, you know, longstanding, like homophobic talking point. Uh, uh, but, uh, he talks about all this and he says like the novel, you know, ultimately says that like, here's how you grow up to be a sort of like good, whole, healthy person. And it's by becoming a heterosexual. Um, and, uh, weirdly enough, like, uh, King reacts, like he responds to Collings's review and he says, uh, actually, that this uh, scene with Adrian Mellon is the character's name, um, um, the young man who was murdered. He says this scene was a thing that actually happened in uh, Bangor, uh, just like two years, I think, before the novel was written, where like some guys in a park during like, after a festival, like did a hate crime, like beat up two two uh, gay men who were walking together and threw one of them into the river. Uh And when he hit the river, he drowned, he died, because uh, he had asthma. And King openly admits to taking that and, like, decomposing it into, like, both the Adrian Mellon scene and uh, Eddie Kasprak's asthma. Uh, So there is a way in which, like, of, of the loser characters, Eddie is maybe the one who is most, like, you know a whiff of queer coding there definitely when uh henry bowers goes after eddie he uses a bunch of homophobic slurs against him um and then there's this whole thing with like eddie marrying his mother uh but like also clearly like it's mentioned that they have sex right like he has a wife and and i i'm not saying that i know that the contemporary films uh the new it films like do this whole thing with like eddie being closeted and richie being kind of like also closeted in love with him uh, hmm. that's not really here. Like there's a look, you can, you can push for that subtext if you want to, but it's really not there anyway. Uh, Steve walks through kind of how this was based on a real incident. Uh, here's how he used it in the novel. Uh, and he like seems pretty angry that in Bangor, like it was, I guess it was a, it was a news item obviously, but also King clearly thinks that not enough was done about it. And instead, like what happened is someone like graffitied like the bridge or something with like a bunch of uh, like a homophobic statement saying like, you know, if uh, using a bunch of slurs, but basically said, if you're queer in this town, you better learn how to swim or something. I mean, that's the, you know, this is the the criticism of, of Derry, right, that we get uh, that's so explicit. Yeah. You know, th- this town is cursed. This town is haunted. Yes. Um, and it's haunted by, it, it's, in, it's instanced, right, by it when it shows up on this 27-year cycle. But it is phenomenally happening in every moment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Beverly talks about this thing a few times that's happening where she is being threatened at knife point in the middle of the street. And uh, a man who an older man is like on his porch and sees it happening and folds up his newspaper and goes inside. And it's this really uncanny kind of descriptive moment. The miniseries actually kind of goes to tries to do it and messes it up oh, somehow. Interesting. Uh, it, it is such an error of direction um, that I find it embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it that in the novel, that description of like 
you know, this is what's happening with the uh, shooting the uh, like Dillinger game yes. stand in. Right. Mm-hmm. Same deal. Same deal. Right. It's like this town. This town's evil. And this town is both the evil of a creature that lives in the sewers and kills kids. And it's also the evil, evil of indifference in the gleeful joy of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this murder of Adrian Mellon is all of those things. And, and King says, this is actually quoted, as you said, um, uh, it, Collins writes this book that I have after the fact. And so he quotes from that. And the quote is, uh, if the chapter quote from Stephen King, if the chapter strikes you as homophobic, please remember that this is a case of we don't make the news. We just report it. Right. Mm-hmm. So like it does seem that this like event and lifting it out of real life, it, it is King saying, you know, it's it's commentary. It's real life commentary of like, what the fuck is going on? Why did we not root this out when we had the chance? Mm-hmm. And the, the novel is basically like, why has no one done anything? Mm hmm. Uh, at some point, Mike Mike Andlin gives all the numbers on how many children die in dairy per year, and it's like an it's, unbelievable it's number. Absurd. It's like a, it's like eighty five kids or something. Yeah, it, it's a lot. It's a lot of children dying in that town. And but right, you can see the extrapolative move here of like, you know, uh, King being like, "Oh my God, this is my community," mm-hmm. um, and and this thing that I think is so awful is happening. Uh, which is like a good response. He's not wrong to respond that way. Um, but then it like gets warped into this thing in the, it, within the structure of the novel, precisely as you're saying uh, here, is that uh, heterosexuality, non-productive heteros- heterosexuality, which is important. Mm-hmm. So like not having kids and none of them have kids, mm-hmm. right? They can't. But non Yeah, they yes, uh, apparently they can't. Non-reproductive heterosexuality is good. Not just good conceptually, metaphysically good. Uh-huh. It's it's awesome. Homosexuality is bad, mm-hmm. and like if it if in and of itself it isn't bad and like makes you go insane or is not like a thing that a sociopath does, it is a thing that triggers other people into doing irrational evil things. It taps into their worst thing. Yes, right. Uh, there's something really weird going on. It, like, it's not quite blaming the victim, right? But, the, like, metaphysically, it's kind of blaming the victim in that, like, the rules of the universe don't work unless you have marginalized people with the bad sexuality. Mm-hmm. Right? It's what it's uh, this is the thing is like, I think it's very easy to look at any given moment in this book and, like, have, like, from that singular moment, draw a theory of like sexuality from it. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it all together, it's very difficult to create any kind of coherent statement, which is exactly what King is trying to say often, right? It's like, he does not have a point he's trying to give you. He's just writing stories. Right. And when he's just writing stories that are not exactly didactic, it means that the ideology is not necessarily consistent. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's how ideology works. It can be self-contradictory. Yes. Um, and so these are like two weirdly different models of how, I mean, they, they mutually reinforce one another, but they're not the same statement about uh, homosexuality across the novel. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about that with heterosexuality in a minute. It is incoherent. Uh, and we know from our Game Study Study Buddies episode, right, that uh, coherency is in the moment of reception and is not in the moment of production, mm-hmm. which is fine. But it is hard to draw a... It's hard to do that, right? It's hard to draw a clear picture of what the fuck is going on with sexuality in this novel, given all the dis- disparate data points that we have. Right. Um, at different points in the novel, the novel says different things about mm-hmm. it. But, uh, but that's what brings it up. Like, this is, the, you know, the trigger for its dominance, both in the past and in the future. And, and it's this eternal evil. It's been here for forever. What else do we know about it, Michael? 
since we're talking about it the character now well uh sometimes it likes to be a clown and Mm -hmm. uh it it has a name uh it gives because like georgie is like oh we need to like i at the very beginning uh it's like oh i'm pennywise the dancing clown also known as mr robert gray or mr bob gray and that name comes up a couple times there's a bit uh later on when henry gets a package in the mail that is uh a switchblade that he uses then to kill his father but it is the return address is robert gray um so this is this is it this was a thing that fascinated me when I was a kid because, uh, you know, I sit down to read this book and I just because, you know, I assume all stories are going to be the most stereotypical thing possible. And I think that would be awesome because I'm 11. Uh, I'm like, you know, eventually we're going to find out like, you know, where did it come from? And we do, but like, you know, when I got that part at the beginning where uh, the clown gives its name to George, I was like, oh, okay, and eventually I'm, we're going to learn something about this guy. This is, like, some guy from Derry's history, and we're going to get, like, some sort of, uh, like, story about uh, how he became it, or, like, how it became a part, like, took him over or something. And uh, actually, no. And this was, like, such an earth-shaking thing to me that you could get through this entire book and this uh, giant monster that, on the one hand, at the end of the day, is just, like, a big old spider living underneath the town, uh, is also constantly taking the form of this clown. And, uh, like, it was this perfectly uncanny feeling to me of, like, this is just a thing that the thing made up. Right. Like it, it at some point it realized people are going to ask its forms for names and it's good to have a name in your pocket. And why not Bob Gray? It's like this. Yeah. Beautifully uncanny thing. Like it's just a, a pretense. Right. Yeah. And the movies, the most recent movies do do a little bit of that. They do some lore, capital L lore building, I think, mm-hmm. if, I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And there's also, there's been greenlit a HBO series. It's like Welcome to Dairy, I think. Mm, mm-hmm. Is that what it's I called? So. But I believe that like what I've read about that or what I've seen about that is basically that's the pitch is like, hey, the secret history of Dairy Maine. Mm-hmm. Boo, there's a ghosty. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I, I do like that too. Um, its powers are really, ex- you know, explicitly told, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it, it uses, the, it, it is, uh, I mean, it's a classic Lovecrafty kind of thing, right? Um, Stephen King gets to have it both ways here. He gets to have an unknowable alien force that you can't apprehend. You know, it's like a multidimensional creature, so you can only see one aspect of it at any given time. You know, there's always a thing behind the thing. But then also it gets to have a first-person narrative chapter. Yeah, I hate this so <laughs> Where much. it just gets to tell you all of its thoughts and feelings, right? Yes, it's, I mean, I wrote in my notes, right? This is like explaining Steve back again. Um, you know, over the past couple books, we've seen a recession of explaining Steve, you know, that that as he begins to really lean into horror, explicitly horror things, that some stuff is supernatural and it doesn't have an explanation to it. And he cannot help himself here to be like, and this is where it comes from. And this is its primary enemies. And this is how it thinks about its enemies. And also, here's the metaphysics. And also, there's the macroverse. Mm-hmm. And did you know the macroverse? There's a turtle that lives there, and the turtle might be dead. <laughs> like, it just keeps going and going and going and going. And then you get all the thoughts and feelings of it. It's so funny to me. And like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know why it's there. It doesn't need to be there. The book would work without it. But let me let me tell you something. Okay. Let me read you a thing that I found that is only tangentially related here, and I know it's a three-hour and, oh, 15-minute mark or so. 
tangential things are the thing you're into. But let me read this to you because it's so funny to me. This is from the Playboy interview that Stephen King did in the early 80s. Playboy magazine. You're universally identified as a horror writer, but shouldn't your book such as The Stand, which is essentially a futuristic disaster novel, really be classified as science fiction? Hmm. Note. Yes. (laughs) And I've been right the whole time. Uh And I'm glad that people were saying it in the 80s. In fact, what I found out from doing this research is there are a lot of people who were saying this in the 80s and writing and publishing things in science fiction journals like extrapolations stephen king uh was the uh speaker was the keynote the the authorial keynote i think at the fifth uh icfa oh the society for fantastic in the arts that happens in florida every year stephen king was there he was the actual in the early 80s so actually a big relationship between early science fiction and fantasy academia and stephen king but so that question was asked and here's stephen king's answer Yes, technically, you're right. In fact, the only books of mine that I consider pure, unadulterated horror are Salem's Lot, The Shining, and now Christine, because they all offer no rational explanation at all for the supernatural events that occur. Carrie, The Dead Zone, and Firestarter, on the other hand, are much more within the science fiction traditions, since they deal with psionic wild talents that we talked about before. They've talked about psionic wild talents earlier in this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, the stand actually has a foot in both camps because in the second half of the book, the part that depicts the confrontation between the forces of darkness and the forces of light, there's a strong supernatural element. And Cujo is neither horror nor science fiction, though it is, I hope, horrifying. It's not always easy to categorize these things, of course, but basically I do consider myself a horror writer because I'd love to frighten people. Just as Garfield says, <laughs> lasagna is my life. <laughs> I can say in all truth that horror <laughs> is mine. Fuck? I'd write the stuff even if I weren't paid it because uh, paid for it because I don't think there's anything sweeter on God's green earth than scaring the living shit out of people. Justice Garfield yeah, says, just Garfield's life. Says. That might be our new sign. <laughs> that might be better than doing it for Steve. <laughs> But uh, but I do like I do think that's interesting to think of. I guess that's right after Christine came out, or right or around the release of it, mm-hmm. uh, based on what you just said there. But I do think it's interesting that he's thinking about science fiction and fantasy in those terms, right? He's thinking of them in plausibility terms, in un- unexplainability, which I think is something I said during the Pet Cemetery episode, right? That mm-hmm. that it truly is like Stephen King's transformation into a horror writer because there's no scientific explanatory thing. And what's so fascinating to me about its explanation of its like power set, for lack of a better term, and its origin and its thoughts and feelings is that it's fantastical, but through this like kind of science fiction impulse that Stephen King can't get away from, Mm -hmm. which is like there has to be a rational explanation for why it is doing these things, even if it itself as an entity is not rationally explainable. And so weirdly enough, Stephen King becomes his own like medieval interpreter of theodicy here right where he's like oh i guess there's a metaphysical existence and there's like a science of of the unexplainable and the supernatural here Mm -hmm. there are forces and oppositions Um, and powers right and he opens a toolbox that he cannot it's like it's a pandora's box Mm -hmm. right he can't close this because this is now the mechanism through which the rest of king is explained yep yep here's a like the 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 brickwork of the dark tower has become more evident now right i cuz this is it right he's he's giving you the stuff and this is like you know when dandelo shows up later in the dark oh, tower Jesus, yeah. it's not a spoiler that's just a thing that occurs and everyone's like oh my god it's its brother yep it's <laughs> right like all this all this kind it's, of stuff it's its brother that feeds on laughter rather than fear my god right um, right 
So, um, and so, yeah, uh, uh, there was something, oh, um, the other thing about it and like sort of especially these like chapters where we get into its presence where it's like it began to wonder perhaps it was not a- eternal etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. um mm-hmm. the right. other thing that is happening here and it's in line with kind of this weird science fiction impulse but also this kind of like fantastical impulse is that it uh reiterates or reinforces uh kind of the basically christian outlook of of this world or sort of like uh you know I, maybe Maybe I'm I'm painting with too broad a brush to reduce this to just Christianity. Uh, but one of King's kind of recurring bits is that evil is fundamentally pathetic and scared and sad and like self-involved. Right. And so uh, having this big uh, uh, like just a uh, sort of centerless evil throughout this whole town, of course, with uh, by the end of this novel for, for Steve, uh, we're going to get into its point of view and we're going to see how like scared and uh, uh, basically craven it really is uh, like to we have to like puncture that mystique. And I, that feels like very much a, a kind of like a Christian impulse to me to like have to say at the very end, like, no, and, and evil, evil is stupid, by the way, in case you thought this was cool. Yeah, I mean, it makes you feel good, yeah. right? Like, you know, at the at the end of the day, it's a morality tale. Right. And it's like the good people went out and the bad people don't. And what Collins points out in his book, which is pretty fascinating, is that this is so much less an ambivalent book than many uh-huh. of Stephen King's works, even even of the past several, right? Like, um, you know, I think about the ending of Pet Cemetery, right? Darling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, evil one out there, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever this thing is one out. The thing that was bad for human beings one out. And this is pretty unambiguous, right? Like they, they at the end of the day, they beat it, mm-hmm. and the, like order is restored. Um, and it's exactly what you talked about in the Eyes of the Dragon, right? It's a restoration fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the same thing happens in uh, the Talisman as well, which is kind of why Black House is so interesting as a book, because it's like, what if the restoration didn't take, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right? What and and that that kind of is, um, you know, kind of what Doctor Sleep is about too, right? Like. What if you got away at the end of the horror novel and things actually didn't really work out for you in the way that you thought they they would? Um, but but you know that that this is also the YAification a little bit, right? Like unambiguously at the end of the Eyes of the Dragon, good wins out, restoration comes back, and now they're going to hunt down the big bad evil at the end of the world, mm-hmm. right? Like in a different tale, but it will happen, mm-hmm. right? We we know we have faith. And here, I mean, all that's just put into the book, yeah. right? Like, but yeah, you're exactly right. The like flags unraveling at the eyes of the dragon, flags unraveling at the end of the stand. <laughs> it's it's unraveling here, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I said I could have killed them kids when they were little, and I didn't because I thought it'd be easier to kill them later. And look at I goofed mm-hmm. it. I I damn beefed it again. Gosh darn it, I'm I'm power mad. That turtle's dead up there. Yeah, the turtle um, who is God. Yeah. Yeah, there there is some interesting stuff going on here with the metaphysics stuff, right? That like outside of our universe is a thing called a macroverse in which there's a giant frog that has a big a giant oh, wait, frog, oh, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's got a tumor in it, but I think that's a different uh-huh. book. Uh, the different work. There is a giant turtle uh, that lives there, and it barfed up the universe, mm-hmm. which is like fun. And I don't know if this is like ripping off someone's like actual cosmology enough. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know world cosmologies well enough to know if this is King borrowing from someone else. But um, so that like that's the story of how our universe came to be as it reports it to us. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then also it exists out there. It's like this kind of eternal satanic figure, you know, out in the in the non-space outside the universe, in the outside the in the macroverse, is I think that what they call mm-hmm. it. And uh, out there is a thing called the deadlights. It is both its physical presence on the planet Earth that like arrived here in a meteor that we learn about <laughs> in a in a dreamlike flashback sequence that happens earlier in the novel. Um, he's that, or it is that, she is that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep thinking Pennywise the Clown, but but it is that, but also is at the same time this like deadlights figure, this like evil, satanic, whatever entity, uh, this Lovecraftian, right. it's not really satanic, this Lovecraftian entity beyond time and space. And the way that it ultimately gets you, the way, the way that it can truly get you to make you float down here is that it expose it eats you but can also expose you to the deadlights and absorb you for eternity into itself Mm -hmm. you know so so you're like in this you're in hell i mean yeah it's the jaunt like the it's it's the yeah the deadlights are the jaunt but sentient yeah yeah longer than you think dad Mm -hmm. i didn't even think about that but you're exactly right so that's what's going on and then the turtles out there but after the turtle barfed up the universe in in eternity it went into its shell. And so it is both like perceiving things on the planet in dairy. It's little like, you know, cattle pen that it, that it maintains. And one might say that maybe everything bad that happens on the earth is because of it. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, it's also kind of aware of like what's going on in the macroverse. And it thinks the turtle's just dead in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and something, and then we find out additionally to that in this little section that there's even a thing outside of the macroverse that's like referred to as the other, uh-huh. like the the, uh, the O that's like that's capital G God, mm-hmm. right? Like like Christian God probably or something like it. It's figured that way certainly that that created it in the turtle. Mm-hmm. It may be other stuff that it's just not aware of because it is not. It is uh, eternal, but it is not omniscient, mm-hmm. which is important. Um. And uh, anyway, but the uh, it's fascinating to me that in the 1958 section, uh, Bill talks to the turtle. Yes. You know, he's being consumed by it. And he talks to the turtle mm-hmm. and is and the turtle talks like a hippie kind of or like an old an old dad. I don't mm-hmm. really know. It is like I can so clearly like, picture the turtle as like produced by the Jim Henson workshop. <laughs> yes. 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 Son. Hey, you're doing a pretty. I can't really intervene in your life, son. But uh, I can. I can it's help like, you. Sorry out. about the universe. Sorry about the universe. I had a bad case of indigestion. Like that's literally a thing it says to Bill. <laughs> he. It's bizarre. It's super weird. But he has this encounter with it, and it's like infinitely long, mm-hmm. right? Weirdly enough, the description of this scene is kind of the description of the one yard of uh, in Homestuck. Uh-huh. Did you notice yes. that? That when he is he is uh, progressing by it for eternity, he sees it in the same way that they see Hussy in that mm-hmm. a little promo for a show called Homestuck Made This World. You can check that out. If you like but, iterating on kids, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you like a, a but and it seems to me I I don't know like these these works fit together in very weird ways to me uh, that seem like it might have had an influence on Homestuck. But uh, later, when the same thing happens, the turtle's dead. mm Hmm. When he gets like in 1985, when a similar thing happens, right? right? The turtle's dead mm-hmm. explicitly. Mm-hmm. It's not just like what That's, what it thinks, right? Bill feels the turtle being dead. Yeah, which is kind of wild that that, that uh, it, for an eternal creature, it died in a 27 year <laughs> year gap. That's like, <laughs> I and I guess like a human being dies, oh, and I, you know, fuck. like one second you're there, one second you're not. What the Kennedy assassination killed the turtle. 
Ah! 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 Oh! 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 I, it's like you feel like a lightning bolt, just like hitting you in the head. The Kennedy assassination definitely killed the turtle. Holy shit! <laughs> oh, the last gunslinger—they got yeah. him. Oh my god! I feel like I want to throw up. <laughs> kind of that hit me so hard, <sighs> like a shockwave going through my body. That is it. Yeah. That's definitely you're uh-huh. right. That's a hundred percent it. The one last good thing. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! What were we saying? <laughs> I don't know what, what we were talking about. Anyway, so that's like the explanation yeah. of the metaphysics. The only reason I'm bringing this up and kind of going into detail is that this kind of matters for like a bunch of books coming up and being able, you knowing this, even if you're not reading those other books will be helpful for uh-huh. you to know. I feel like all the energy left my body. Yeah. I don't even know if I can keep doing this episode. Uh, the Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, the, the- this, this is like when uh, I, I was like reading the Ridley Scott stuff about Prometheus and he was like, yes. The thing that caused the the you know the aliens to exist was the killing of Jesus Christ, who was an alien. That uh, this is exactly how I feel about this. I was like, oh yeah. man, why'd you have to do that? Why'd you have to talk? <laughs> <laughs> like, why'd you have to have ideas, really, Scott? Just let it live. Anyway, uh, yeah. God damn. Um, um, Okay, well, that's kind of it. Uh, we find out it's a big spider, mm-hmm. and it like they kill yeah. it. Everyone in the yeah. Castle Rock newsletter compares it to uh, Shalab from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Collins definitely says that, too. So that makes a lot of sense, and it is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, big old eternal creature that is instanced in this one figure, and they all get together and they kill it, uh, and then they have to navigate their way out, mm-hmm. which are it is really the two differences between 1958 and 1985 in uh let, let's just go ahead and talk really briefly about 1985 what happens is that because the structuring presence it the thing that makes dairy work mm-hmm. because it is gone dairy falls apart in a like pretty a, cool way like a video game it's just like a, it's like when you kill the big bad and then the halo explodes and, yep <laughs> and you got to run your way out so like we get all these cool scenes of like uh, you know, individual weird randos. It's Salem's Lot again mm-hmm. uh, in very much a way, right? We get these little individual snapshots of like individuals uh, dying. It's it's actually the uh, no great loss scene from uh, The Stand as well, mm-hmm. right? It's like Stephen King's so good at this. He's good at writing two paragraphs about a guy, mm-hmm. you know? And you so clearly see the doctor who's like, I've walked the same two miles every day for the past 25 years. And this is just a little bit of rain. You should have seen it in 57. And then he gets decapitated by a flying, uh, uh, manhole cover, uh, manhole cover. Yeah. So it's so, you know, it's like you, you little goof, you had too much hubris and you got what was coming to you, bud. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's good. That's like fun. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's like horrifying, but that's like good horror, right? It's like, yeah, he got him. You know, it's a little creep show. Individual. Yeah. And we get a lot of that. We get some cool descriptions of like the Aladdin theater just falling into the, you know, the into the, the canal and being swept out just like that boat, you know, mm-hmm. down the Candiskeg or whatever the, the name of the river is. And uh, so that's what happens at the end of 1985. They're able to navigate their way out pretty easily. Oh, Eddie mm-hmm. dies, by the way. He gets yeah. snip snapped, kind of like that guy from the mist. Yeah. And, uh, but what happens in uh, 1958 is a little bit more complicated. 
um, because they have what is referred to often, uh, you know, in various ways as the orgy scene. Yeah. Um, the, apparently the Castle Rock newsletter you were telling me calls this Beverly's gangbang. Yeah. And this is it. That's in a, uh, article that is complaining that the rights for the miniseries have been optioned to a like non-cable television network because Mm -hmm. it's like how how can you all this stuff is critical to the novel how could you possibly have that on network television uh and yeah like it's it's this weird thing where it's the i so one of the reasons i was looking through all of these is like i wanted to see how that scene was described if ever by uh the Mm -hmm. newsletter um, and that is the one time that I managed to find it being discussed was someone lamenting that this scene would not be in the miniseries because as uh, this particular writer put it, I think it was like an, an editorial, right? This is very much the other thing you need to know about these this newsletter is that it is straight up. This is the other thing I put together. It is straight up the predecessor to the list serve that I was hanging on when I was a teenager that I talk about from time to time where you could just like write in with your thoughts. And so Mm -hmm. people are doing that. And this person is saying like to them, like this, this scene is so critical to the climax of the novel that they would hate to see it cut, even though they're also referring to it as Beverly's gangbang. Right. Um, And, you know, in in, uh, as clinical terms as humanly possible, just to describe the structure of the thing they are lost they have defeated it it is it has receded right and they don't think they've killed it right they, you mm-hmm. know they they are not certain uh but they're trying to escape these sewers that are continuing to flood and uh they're lost eddie can't find his way and beverly just kind of comes to the conclusion that the best way of resolving this is through having sex with all of them uh-huh that, and that's what happens, like just in, in just purely descriptive terms. It's, it takes about four pages or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all in italics, which is interesting, mm-hmm. um, kind of in the way that some of the flashbacks and flash forwards have been done. Mm-hmm. Um, it is largely described not through like the physical act. You know, there's not a lot of lingering on that, but much more on the emotional stakes of what, what are going on. Mm-hmm. Um I will say in a broad sense something, and, and this scene is obviously very controversial. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think any single person has brought up it on our Discord or by tweeting at us or whatever in since we started this show without saying, like, that scene, right? Uh-huh. Or something like that, right? Um, it is uh, deeply weird. Um, it doesn't quite fit. Like, like you were saying earlier, you can cut this out and it wouldn't be a problem. Um, the, you could literally just literally cut from, uh, the end of the thing to cut this and then be like, and Eddie pointed the way out and it would not really change much resonance in the novel. I will say something that is fascinating is it seems like many commentators like Michael Collins and Grady Hendrix find this to be an incredibly emotional and important part of the novel. Mm -hmm. Like people really do see this as a keystone. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's because. You have to make you. There are really only two ways to approach this, and, and we're not going to approach it either way. Um, but two mainline ways of approaching this: one is that it should just be cut. Right? Why mm-hmm. is this here? It is on face so offensive and weird to depict eleven and twelve year olds having sex with one another in a certainly non traditional way that that it should not be in the book. Mm-hmm. The other way is that because it is so bizarre, it must be extremely important. Mm-hmm. And and to cut it would be to admit a defeat that that cannot be admitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to talk about it, uh, unless you have different plans, you, you tell me, but I, I 
it is in the novel for a reason. Stephen King did not fall on his typewriter and t- type out this extremely strange scenario. I am a little bit curious, and I kind of read the book in terms of why would this be necessary, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, at what point would Stephen King do it? I do think in just in a general sense, like raw, my actual thoughts and feelings about this, I don't think it has a place in the book. I think it could be better cut, like much of this book. Um, I think it should be in there about 400 pages that shouldn't be in here because I don't think, even if it does have a structural quality to it or do something um, that's working through the rest of the book, I don't think that that overwhelms the just like straight up weird feelings uh, about it. Um, I think that Stephen King can write whatever he would like to write. Um, I think that most of Stephen King's work has some, at least one thing that is like deeply personally offensive to either me or someone close, Mm -hmm. right? Like in just a basic way. Um, And I think this is deeply personally offensive to many people. I don't know if that is a reason inherently by itself to cut it out of the work, but I do think it like doesn't do anything. Um, So I think like in my opinion, before we talk about just analyzing what's up, I think I would just cut it like Mm -hmm. the, the, even if we're thinking just pure cost benefits, the cost of having this in the book is not worth whatever theoretical benefit it has. Um, and so that all said, what, what, what did you think about this? What was your analysis of it, Michael? Did you read the book with this in mind in the same way that I did? I don't know. You, you tell me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I remember, you know, the first time I read this when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, just like, what? The, again, like, as I said at the beginning, like, you like, what? Like, you can what people they just let you put anything in books, apparently. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, so I will say, sorry, so I know I've been talking for a minute. Yeah. Just let, let me say this really quickly. The, um, I didn't have that reaction yeah. and it's precisely because I already had a bunch of friends who were sexually active mm-hmm. and I knew that they were sexually active and they talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who sat behind me, this is part of the reason why I have such a distinct sense memory is the person behind me who sat behind me in that class where I was reading this book had already been labeled as like a girl who has sex. Yeah. Like that was her like social label and and received brutal, absolutely ruthless bullying about it basically for the entire rest of, of middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, she, she had already been done. And so when I got to this part, I was like, this is a little bit weird, but also like, this is kind of a thing that's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, like, oh, this it's the person behind me, right? And so, like, that was part of it, too, for me, is it's like, uh, it didn't, I'll be honest, like, th- th- this did not stick out to me until I reread it again in college. Interesting. Um, yeah, but anyway, sorry, sorry to, oh. uh, to to jump in the middle of it. Well, I mean, my, my response was not so much that, like, my initial response when I was, you know, this age was not so much that I was, like, shocked at sexuality itself. Like, I knew what right. sex was, and, like, I don't know if I had any friends who were sexually active or knew any people, but like there were definitely like people in school, right. Who were talked about and things similar to what you're, you're saying. Um, for me, it was more just like, why are they, why is, why are they all having to have sex with Beverly? Cause like, like the, the specifics of the scene itself, right, right, like right. obvious, like, uh, even then it was clear to me that something was happening here with like adulthood, right? Like that these kids were, um, uh, like that, or like that, there was something thematic happening here about like the transition from childhood to adulthood, and sex played some part of that. But like, mm-hmm. I could not fathom, like, 
uh, as an 11 year old myself, I could not fathom like how the hell that was supposed to land to say like the, the what I presumed, you know, the intended adult audience. Like I, I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and uh, the thing, I mean, I, I so I was rereading it this time with it in mind and sort of like trying to work it over like ahead of time. Right. Trying mm-hmm. to figure these things out, because one of the other things that's fascinating about this is that uh, you are told that this happened long before you actually see it and get sort of like explicit confirmation of what happened. There are two things that happen. One is uh, when in, during the adult timeline, uh, Bev and Bill get together and they like sleep together. Um, and it's I think just before or just after that happens, uh, it comes back to Beverly and she remembers what happened. But what happened, like textually, what you get is her like turning to Bill and saying something like, but I was with all of you. Like, that's how she phrases it. Right. Very sort mm-hmm. of ambiguous. Um, and then uh, when Henry Bowers is in Juniper Hill, the the institution, um, it is talking to him uh, and like imitating the voices of the losers and it tells him uh that this happened and like uses that to like uh you know it further enrage henry or whatever right Uh, Mm -hmm. because it takes the voice of beverly um so i i was noticing kind of these things and uh wondering what to do with them and i guess like one of the things that i settled on is that for like this is positioned as beverly taking charge like uh her father and his relationship to her like uh potential future sexuality has been so awful like such a a force of kind of like terror for her uh uh that there is something i think trying to be figured here as her like reclaiming her sexuality like using it uh in a way that she deems fit to like help her friends although why she thinks that this is what happens uh, or would happen is anyone's guess. Uh, there's also kind of the the thematic pun of it, right? Like doing it, right. uh, which is explicitly called out in the text by Beverly. Uh, yeah. So, like, there there's something happening here where we're trying to like both imagine sexuality, but also imagine like something beyond it, or like I. I so if if we're going to take it. Right. As something sort of therapeutic or whatever, like something like actually, I'll say, I think how I read this initially when I was a kid, like the thing that I landed on was kind of like, oh, I guess this is just more trauma. (laughs) Like like they did like this happened, then this happened, like this happened to them. And this is like a sort of like bodily, like literalization of the traumas that they've undergone. Um, And so this time it was kind of weird to see, to notice how. Uh, so much of it is almost positioned as maybe Beverly trying to work back against the stigma of sexuality that she is already starting to feel being like pushed upon her by the world around her. Um, so there, that's a, that's a thing. But then it raises questions of like, well, if this happened and it was like good or like good, quote unquote, like if it was a uh, right. If it was the right thing to do, then how is it that she grows up and just completely replicates like this awful sexual dynamic uh, with her abusive husband? Right. It doesn't really seem to work out. Um, And yeah, I I I I agree with you. I think this could be cut. I like I I think it, it feels like Steve being unable to resist the thematic pun of doing it. 
Right. And like, this is how he works through it. And uh, I I think you could have played off of those meanings. Uh, You could have acknowledged like the idea that when you're a kid and you become an adolescent, like you have sexual awakenings or whatever and sexual experiences like those things happen. Right. That's true. It doesn't have to happen like this. And I don't know why it happens like this. Yeah, there's like this is what I was kind of talking about earlier, too, about like. Uh, you know, the novel's not making an argument explicitly, right? right. Like, you know, there's no, it's not an allegory, right? You know, right. There's no, there's no like didactic thing here. And so what you really get is like this cluster of stuff mm-hmm. that, that, you know, statements that kind of coheres into an ideology. And I, I think what, what is happening in this novel broadly around this scene, like just trying to do it. So number one is that Beverly's like her, uh, superpower is ascertaining desire, mm. right? And that that's much like everyone else's superpower, right? That gets perverted or transformed in their adulthood, right? So, like, mm-hmm. Ben makes an incredibly important building, and no one can decide if it's good or bad, mm-hmm. right? He's, like, the most famous architect in the world, and no one knows if his, his works are good or bad, not... By the way, this is Stephen King, right? Yes. He's, he's an extremely mm-hmm. successful author, and no one knows if his work is good or bad. Um, no one can decide, right? Uh, same thing is happening with Bill, right? He's incredibly celebrated, and some people like his novels, and some people don't. Weirdly enough, Stephen King gets to have multiple, right? Uh-huh. So, so you know, there's this way uh, uh, Eddie has the same thing happen, uh, but he ends up replicating his, uh, his childhood relationship with his mother, right? Like, he gets to have the good heterosexual end, but it's an end that is compromised by not being able to let go of the past. So I think what's going on here is that that Beverly is able to grab desire. She's a fashion designer, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. she is able to understand what people desire, but that's perverted, right? Or transformed or morphed or mutated in in the bad form in that she also has no control over her own desire. Uh, you know, you got to think about that early domestic abuse scene with her husband with the cigarettes, right? Yes. He's, he knocks the cigarettes out of her mouth and it turns into this like kind of, I don't know, SNME kind of scene. And I say uh-huh. that in a negative valence, meaning that like it's the, the, the public bad beliefs about SNM, right? Yeah. Um, and Stephen King actually talks about that in an interview with play in that playboy interview. Um, he talks about how he's like. Uh, there are things that he would censor in himself and things that he wouldn't. And when when he writes sex scenes that end up in this kind of like transgressive space, that makes him uncomfortable. It's a very funny thing to say before writing it or mm-hmm. while working on it, I guess. But so what happens there is that she uh, he is abusing her. He's hitting her in the face and then telling her what she can and cannot do with her life. And she finds that incredibly sexually thrilling. I mean, the mm-hmm. novel explicitly says that she begins to use him in the way that he is using her. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's this way that she, like all of them, right. The, the superpower and her capability is, is mutated in her, her life in such a way that, that reproduces the bad conditions, mm-hmm. right. That she ultimately can't get away from it. And that's actually why they have to go back to dairy, right? You got to go back so you can kill the thing that perverted your life and messed your life up. And so you can really use your abilities and presumably her and Ben go on to have non-abusive, non-weird, perfectly fine missionary sex the rest of their life. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the imaginary is here. Right. We but wouldn't like, know because Ben stops being a character when he's an adult. Right. Um, and like, you know, there's this implicit good old fashioned heterosexuality that makes it work. Right. Mm-hmm. So so, you know, I think what's happening here is that. 
uh, so there's that, right? Like desire is her superpower. There's another thing that happens on 356 for me when they all go to the movie theater. Uh-huh. And in, in the moment when they all realize they're on a date or they're joking about being on a date and they're like kind of thinking about each other as like pseudo adolescent people, mm-hmm. they it, the novel explicitly says what happened with the photo album begins to drift from Bill's mind. Mm-hmm. So there was a way that good, good old fashioned, you know, uh, uh, corn fed heterosexual coupling, right? Mm-hmm. It abolishes the bad feelings and fears of childhood, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it creates a condition under which you can forget the bad stuff, right? And I think that the the uh, the upshot of the of the sex scene here, right, is that entering into sexual adolescence ultimately allows you to get rid of all the bad things that happened to you before that time that that it, it it's a reset button right that where all the bad stuff gets sublimated it's still going down on there right but you get to forget about it you don't forget about the werewolf chasing you down all the time right you don't have to think about that you now get to focus on like cars and teen girls mm-hmm. um and the mechanism, right? So, like, I think all of that, we could be like, all right, fine, whatever. Like, that's an opinion and thought. But as you said, right, like, it's the mechanism through which he gets there that is so on face for many people just offensive, right? Like, yeah. And I, and I don't think needs to be there. Like, I agree. Yeah. I think it could be cut from the novel. But that's, I think, what's going on. The, the novel, as you said, right, gives us all these kind of, like, uh, bread bread breadcrumbs into figuring out what happened. And then its engine for the bottom is heterosexual sex will fix you if you're having a bad time in your adolescence. Yeah. And to be clear, like this is, this is the reveal at the end. So one of the big structural complaints I have about this book uh, now is that I have put together that the adult plot line doesn't need to happen at all. It would not have to happen if in 1958, they just killed it for real. And they get warned. Like, Bill hears the turtle. The turtle says to him, like, hey, you should probably, like, you know, push forward just a few more fit- feet here and, like, make sure you've really finished the job. But for some reason, they don't. There's really no reason that they don't, other than, I guess, that they're kids and they're scared, which, you know, is understandable. But it results in this situation where they end the story just before the end so it can all happen again. And so you Mm -hmm. have like you at the end of the novel, we're reading both endings simultaneously, right? We're intercutting between them. And so obviously the contemporary ending is the one where it actually has to happen. And so there's almost like something missing from the ending of the 1958 plot line. And it's like, this is what Steve serves up, right? It's kind of like the, the, the clencher on it. Um, Right. And it's weird. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, and there's a structural rhyme here, too, with Beverly. So Beverly actually says her internal monologue says that, like, when she's having sex with all of them, uh, her internal monologue says something to the effect of the quote is love and desire. She says, like, this is love and desire. She's like taking turns having sex with the, all of these other kids. Um, and then when they get out of of the sewers at the end um, and they're all kind of expressing, you know, like what you know they're like looking into the sunrise and blah blah you know it's that kind of yeah. weird ending that's going on here right she she repeats desire as being an important kind of marker of what is going on forward and then her and ben get together and then they you know live happily ever after right so so there's something that's going on here right about like the that the end of each cycle one is culminated in a fulfillment of desire and look all the all of these boys as far as we know want to have sex with beverly 
they mm-hmm. find her cute at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not like understood as sex, right? And and what the novel is arguing is that they don't understand that that's what they're feeling. They yes. don't understand that what they're having a sexual desire. They're having like boyfriend, girlfriend, hanging out at the movie theater desire, they think, right? But that's mm-hmm. masking something that they are entering into. Um, but, right, you know, so so it's this weird, the, the ideology thing, right? It's like, well, is that because ultimately heterosexual desire will and the fulfillment of heterosexual desire allows you to pull the wool over your eyes Uh right and like maybe that's good but maybe it ultimately is like bad for you in some ways because it makes you not reconcile with the reality that's in front of you Mm -hmm. or on the other end is it just a metaphysical good (laughs) that will get you where you need to go once you go to therapy in your late 30s and like process all of your problems Right. And you're yeah. able to Freudianly, you know, understand the root of your issues through the talking cure are, in fact, your adolescent desires. Right. For mm-hmm. in, say, in one character's case, your mother uh-huh. or in one character's case, uh, attention or in one character's case, uh, failure on a massive scale. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It's interesting to me that Stephen King writes this and then gets off of uh, uh, he, he gets sober soon. after. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, because one of the ways that oh go ahead ahead. i was gonna say that's that's something that you get in richie too because like richie understands djing as like disciplining his like kind of uh, erratic qualities like he's always doing these voices and things it's it's put in um the way it's put in the book is that he real he felt like growing up that his his mind was always moving 10 times faster than everyone else's uh and this made him erratic And so he talks about, uh, or he's reflecting to himself, when he became a DJ and he started doing voices on the air, it was like finding the like worst and least dependable and most erratic part of himself and like disciplining it, right? It's it's Mm -hmm. something like, you know, pinning him down and putting that fucker to work for you, uh, Mm -hmm. which seems very much like the the way that Steve has sometimes talked about uh, his relationship with like... Uh, substance abuse and creativity and kind of his fears that if he's not like being a kind of uh, if he's not drinking or using uh, then maybe he's not creative anymore this idea that like you have to take the bad parts of yourself and you have to instrumentalize or operationalize them yeah I mean I think this is like you know the putting to work of of Stephen King's imaginary of adolescent desire Mm -hmm. um and uh, yeah, so absolutely right. There's this kind of constrainingness, like to move into young adulthood is to get wrapped up in things like compulsory heterosexuality, things like proper, the proper, right? Proper mm-hmm. behavior, proper act, uh, systems of racialization, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, systems of ability, right? What is the correct way for Bill Dinbro to speak, uh, right? It's unacceptable mm-hmm. as an adult for him to have the stutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it not not like conceptually on my end, but the novel says that, right? right. Like once once he begins stuttering again, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unacceptable for Ben to be fat, right? Mm-hmm. Like they all have to their narratives after this moment are all things of of, of being conscripted into the social, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. The the fascinating thing about the 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 sex scene, right, is that it is conceived of as you just said the reveal as this important kind of moment of, of being uh, transformed into uh, a welcoming version of adolescence. I mean, that's how it doesn't, this is exactly how Grady Hendrix uh, reads it. Michael Collins says that this is the most important scene that King has ever written and the most emotional scene that King has ever written. Uh People who think it's important, think it's really important. 
But I think the weird thing that that uh, that if you look at it schematically, as we're talking about here, right? Like this is the first step in a number of steps of normalization that are pretty bad, right? Yeah. Like they're ableist, they're fat phobic. Um, you know, ultimately Stan Uris has got to become like the proper Jewish guy, right? right. Uh, Mike Hanlon's got to become a servant after mm-hmm. this, right? He becomes a high school athlete and then he uh, becomes the kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, the collector of knowledge to enable all of his white colleagues to do stuff. So, you know, it's interesting that it's such a powerful, important moment when what it inaugurates them into, I think in 2022, we think uh, it's a bunch of fucked up ideas about how life needs to be lived. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's the negativity around queerness here, too, and particularly homose- homosexual encounters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that, yeah, that, you know, the, the casting of that only in negative terms means that it's a pretty delimited world we can live in. So, but let me read you one thing here, unless you have other stuff to say about it. Nope. This is also from the Playboy interview. Uh, because I think there's a big question here. I would cut it. You would cut it. I think most people would cut it for content, right? It's a bridge too far for lots of people. That's why we get all these comments. The Playboy interview asks him several things about um, censorship. When would when would you censor yourself, Stephen King? And they ask him one question, and they're like, "Is there any anywhere you draw the line at necrophilia, say, or cannibalism, or infanticide?" And he actually talks about uh, survivor type. He's like, "I've already done cannibalism. People don't <laughs> want to publish it, but I'll make them at some point." Uh, he has a long answer. I'm not going to read that. Uh, but then he says, then the interviewer says this, have you ever censored your own work because something was too disgusting to publish? And remember, this is while he's working on it. This is before its publication. No, if I can get it down on paper without puking all over the word processor, then as far as I'm concerned, it's fit to see the light of day. I thought I made it clear that I'm not squeamish. I have no illusion about the horror genre. Remember, it may be perfectly true that we're expanding the borders of wonder and nurturing a sense of awe about the mysteries of the universe and all that bullshit. But despite all the talk you'll hear from writers in this genre about horrors providing a socially and psychologically useful catharsis for people's fears and aggressions, the brutal fact of the matter is that we're still in the business of selling public executions. And it's interesting to me that a bunch of kids having sex with one another, right? That seems like a thing you would have some questions yourself about. Mm-hmm. And it's a thing that Stephen King obviously doesn't, he's not, it's not going to make him puke on the thing, but he also, you know, puke on the typewriter, but we're still in the business of selling public executions, right? He actually goes on to, to say more stuff about when he's been censored in the past. Apparently um, they censored him killing Jimmy Cody. Huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's in, right. Uh, Cause he, with the rats. Uh, yes. Um, but, uh, but, but to me, it's like, okay, Steve. So this is a, obviously a scene that any human being writing this book would, and certainly an editor having a conversation with you about it might say, Hey, what's going on here? And is this selling a public execution mm-hmm. in, in the sense of this is what everyone fucking talks about this book. Mm-hmm. Right. This is in some ways that it's it's the it's the freak show. It's the draw. Right. It's yeah. it's all the things Stephen King talks about as far as like what the genre does. It's, it makes the looky loose come through. Is yeah. is it really as bad as you think? And so many people put the book down in disgust. You know, I've seen this narrative many times and people have said it to us. I put the book down in disgust. Well, you did read the first 900 pages. Yeah. So you read the whole book basically before you got here. Um, you know, the ending is perfunctory. Yep. It really doesn't matter. Uh, and so, you know, is this is this cynical, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. And I think it might be. Yeah. 
I, I had that feeling too, especially with um, some of the, and this is related to the, you know, uh, what we talked about earlier and we gave kind of a different narrative there, but where uh, King taking stories as having, you know, political or cultural subtext, um, the, the overplay of the doing it metaphor almost feels like uh, a way of taking the piss out of the very idea that a story could have subtext. It's like, oh, you want a metaphor? I'll give you a fucking metaphor, right? Yeah, um, I, yeah it does kind of feel that way. Yeah. Uh, I, I I mean, it, it's like, you know, Steve says, if, if I can't, ter- if, what, if I can't terrify you, I'll horrify you. And if I can't horrify you, I'm going to go for the gross out, mm-hmm. you know? He actually says that in that uh, live Q&A of it that I was talking about earlier, too, that's in this book. Uh, and this is like a structurally, uh, you know, structurally significant gross out that some people have found to be the most beautiful, beautiful and or horrifying part of the novel. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a thing that's hard to grapple with in a, in a general sense. But, uh, I think the most cynical part of me thinks that like, Stephen King knows what he's doing and he knows you're going to read the gross out. And this dude's releasing four books in 18 months mm-hmm. in 85, 86, 87. So if you don't fucking like it, read one of the other ones, buddy. Yeah. I, uh, you know, uh, Oh, you're going to criticize me for going too far. <laughs> I, let me show you guys. I killed a bunch of kids in Salem's lot and that's not far enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's also a thing he talks about later with Dreamcatcher, uh, where he yeah, says part of the three, the bathroom part of the thrill of writing that bathroom scene is that it used to be you couldn't go into the bedroom mm-hmm. you know in in a in a movie or a novel now you can't go in the bathroom or we're going into the bathroom mm-hmm. um you know he's he's a he's a fucking scamp <laughs> right like, yeah and and i think that you know all analysis aside this could just be him thumbing his nose at everybody mm-hmm that, and that doesn't have much meaning other than being weird mm-hmm. and not fitting i don't know it's a weird stuff. I think you could talk about it all day long, but we're not going to. Do you have any big uh, thoughts or ideas here as we go through? I have some like general like one sentence things I want to say. Do you have any like big general one sentence things you want to say? Uh, one one big thing I want to observe here. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I think that this novel, more than any other prior to this point, but something that we're going to see increasingly frequently moving forward from here, um, is uh the way that like plot or narrative becomes this weird recursive self-justifying engine uh, in Stephen Hmm. King where like characters, basically this is going to show up in, if you have not read a lot of Stephen King, this is what you're in for. If you're listening to this show Um, characters becoming somehow attuned to like a nebulous higher power or force uh, that basically just ensures that they walk to the appropriate places to be at the appropriate uh, junctures for when like events happen so that they see things and then take action, i.e. so that the narrative actually just moves forward, right? They become like uh, one degree removed from being just aware that they're characters in a story and have to like make the plot go. Um, mm-hmm. possible- and so how this works usually is just things like uh, stuff like just stuff that happens, right? Like stuff that could just be events or moments in the novel get uh, charged or there is an attempt to charge them with uh, a huge amount of significance by having characters have 
feelings about things or sort of like intuitions or like mild visions or something like that. Um, again, to talk about Homestuck made this world, uh, our other show where we're working through Homestuck, like this is this is like a thing. Like this is Homestuck's bread and butter is just like this bizarre contraption of the self-justifying plot just constantly like tunneling forward and part of the way that homestuck makes this work is that homestuck is absurdist so like bonkers shit will happen and it'll just be like yeah it happened because it had to happen because we're stuck in this weird like metatextual hell um for this book uh, and King never quite goes that wacky, right? It's always much more serious. But in this book, we see that uh, coming to the fore for the first time. And we also see what is now possibly my favorite example because it is the funniest example in the world. And it is when uh, Bill is he's wandering around Derry as an adult. He wanders into an antique store. Um, which is incidentally being run by an extremely like visibly gay man uh, who is not described kindly like he's, he's described very stereotypically like he's running this antique store and he's sitting behind the counter reading a pornographic novel and wearing a fishnet shirt which is like okay <laughs> I, I did not know that yeah you, uh, it's really weird too that this becomes stephen king in in, uh, in the new movie like i know like that's why i noted it i was like it is so weird that this becomes like steve's cameo role if you haven't seen it, those movies he's not wearing a fishnet shirt don't worry he's just a that's guy cowardly it's so fucking cowardly not to put steve in a fishnet like make the man take his own medicine right like if you're gonna do this shit and like you know put put the fishnet shirt pornographic novel reading gay man in it at least be the fishnet that shirt wearing gay man like yeah. come on steve you coward uh but anyway <laughs> anyway bill like wanders into this uh store and he happens to find his bike silver his childhood bike that he rode around everywhere when he was a kid and he's like oh my god right like this is it, it was fated to happen uh like this this is you know the the past is returning but this rather than it uh the evil past this is like the good like pristine clear memory of the past right fond memories of this bike um so he grabs it he buys it and then he takes it uh for some reason oh he, he i guess he calls mike hanlon because he needs a he's staying at a hotel so he can't store a bike in his hotel room so he calls mike hanlon and he's like, hey, can I come by and like bring this bike? I found silver. And Mike's like, oh, shit, you found silver? Like, guess that, you know, guess that's the magic working, right? We're all stuck in this. So, yeah, bring it on by. And so he goes to Mike's house with this old bike. And, of course, the bike has been like run down and everything. It needs a, um, some repairs. And then Mike goes into the garage and he like pulls out a, a like a, a tire pump. And he hands it over so Bill can use it. And then Mike, with like, you know, very grave seriousness, because they're all reflecting on how their lives are being caught up in the forces of fate or whatever. Mike is like, you know, I didn't even have that bicycle pump before last week. I just went shopping and I had a feeling that I was going to need a bicycle pump. So I bought it. <laughs> and Bill's like, my God. And it's just so... <laughs> Like this portentous bicycle pump and like the the almost uh, zero effort way that you can make it feel pretentious of just being like, you know, I just had a feeling I was going to need a bicycle pump and then I bought it. How do you like that? Yeah. And then those things get dramatized into, you know, more explicitly, as you were saying before, right? Like cause like a wheel, dude. Yeah. Uh, as as is as is now, as was before. Cause like a Mobius double reach around. Oh, 
It is. That's actually true. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, other other random, uh, you know, random stuff. I like the Clive Barker epigraph that shows up here. Yes, I think that's fun. Like he's doing his buddy Clive a favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's cool. Um, I think that's kind of it. Oh, let's talk really briefly. The ending, uh, kind of beefs it. Uh, which part of the ending? Yo, which ending of the last 120 pages yeah, am, I, am I talking about? We're pulling so a Return of the, the King here, yeah. I know. The, yeah, the ending is, uh, the actual ending proper is pretty cool in the sense of like the events that occur, Gary falling apart, we getting all that stuff. That's really cool. But the ending ending, which is just like, and yeah, then everyone left and we all forgot about all of this because of the magic powers of whatever the hell. And, uh, you know, Ben, ben and Bev just fucked off, disappeared right right away. Uh, Mike Hanlon's the last one who remembers, but even all their contact information is disappearing. And then the ending, ending, ending is, um, uh, what is Bill's Audra? Yeah. Audra has been reduced to, uh, she's catatonic because Mm -hmm. of uh, like it stole her mind basically. And she didn't come back. He puts her on his bicycle, Mm -hmm. silver, Mm -hmm. and rides her down a hill so fast that she comes back to life. And then he basically looks into the setting sun or the rising sun or whatever the fuck and is like, and I think everything's going to be a-okay. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the ending to this book. Yep. It's not as bad as some Stephen King endings go, but you do, like, you can see where that charge is coming from. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it just really, like, steals all the, like, good goodwill of the last 50 pages or so. Mm-hmm. Of like all the cool stuff that happens in this very patch, whatever. You know, it's like the ending to the stand, I guess. Very similar. Yeah. Of like, now we're, now we're going to get on this off ramp that takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's like a combination of that. And like, I think a lot of people are just extremely disappointed when they get to the lair and it turns out to just be a giant spider. Which I guess, yeah. I mean, I was kind of disappointed by that when I was a kid. But I, weirdly enough, now I'm like... Eh, whatever. <laughs> like, sure. It should have been John F. Kennedy. <laughs> oh, no, it should have been Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes. Should, I'm actually, I'm kind of shocked that, like, you know, it didn't do, like, a T2 style, like, zipping through a bunch of evil things to, like, try to get them. And then one of the things was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. That yeah. that seems very kinky, oh, right? I forgot. Hold on. I Speaking of uh, Kennedy, I, I made this in my notes, which you don't have access to. But I was like, oh, wait a minute. Something happened. Um, oh, is there a Kennedy in there? I, think, I didn't I didn't see it. If so, let me see. Um, oh, yes, uh, this is uh, uh, it's um, holy shit. I yep, found it. Yep. Uh, Holy shit. It's when Richie, this is when uh, Bill being the natural older brother and the natural leader, this is uh, Richie like reflecting on how much he likes Bill. Um, uh, There was something else. Bill was good. It was stupid to think such a thing. He did not, in fact, precisely think it. He felt it. But there it was. Goodness and strength seemed to radiate from Bill. He was like a knight in an old movie, a movie that was corny but still had the power to make you cry and cheer and clap at the end, strong and good. And five years later, after his memories of what had happened in Derry both during and before the summer had begun to fade rapidly, it occurred to uh, Richie Tozer in his mid-teens that John Kennedy reminded him of stuttering Bill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's wholly consistent with basically the rest of Stephen King's career. Yeah, I, I, you know, a Stu Redman might have to become a Bill Denbro. <laughs> you know, that's that's the work of working through King. I think that Bill is more defined, right? Yeah. 
Um, also in the, like the full restoration of the ending, uh, Bill's, uh, stutter comes back yeah. or, uh, it goes away. Yes. It fully recedes again, Yeah, which you would think, right? Like the better ending here around that would be that Bill, you know, like the more interesting, not better. The more interesting thing, right. Is that Bill ridding himself of the, of the stutter, right. Is fundamentally a, uh, you know, this like concession to the world. And that that wouldn't happen. You know, that was its magical influence, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that he can become a whole person who also stutters. But that's like not possible here. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, everything's got to be good because, you know, I don't know. There's some good structural stuff that could happen there. But Stephen King doesn't care about it. They all look off in the sunset and uh, they have a good time. Yeah. The uh, the, the very ending is very funny. Uh, Just to say one last thing before we do our very quick segments. Is uh, he says, um. It's it's the end of Stand by Me, right? The end of Stand or the end of the body happens twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mike Hanlon does it, and he's like, "God, I love them. I love them." And then at the very end, this last sentence, or so Ben Dimbro, uh, or so Ben Ben Dimbro sometimes thinks on those early mornings after dreaming, and he almost remembers his childhood and the friends with whom he shared it. Mm-hmm. Like, do you ever have any friends you had like when you were eleven? Jeez, bro, bro. Bruh, you ever had friends? Bruv. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So that's yeah. all the big stuff. Let's talk about segments. Segments. My favorite kingism. My favorite kingism is the segment where uh Cameron and I each pick one particular line, word, phrase, you know, paragraph, whatever, something uh from the novel, uh textually, right, that is uh representative of King's style as a writer, uh usually good, sometimes bad, but usually things we like. Uh and yeah, just just share that. Like what makes what makes the the King prose pop? Um so for me. Uh, this actually happens in my uh, paperback copy on page 320 to page 321, and this is during the uh, first big chunk of, like, 1958, um, when Richie and Bill are at Bill's house looking in the—they they go to—so uh, uh, Bill's younger brother, George, had a, like, photo album that he kept because he was a little kid and he just, like, loved to have photos— and uh, it's haunted, right? It is making weird shit happen with the photo album, like making the pictures move and so on. Uh, and so Bill takes Richie to his house so they can check this out together. And they go into uh, Georgie's room and Richie is like, look like and uh, Bill's like parents basically like fall apart after George dies. Not really like fall apart, like they keep going, but like they become emotionally dead to him, basically. Uh- it's the exact same thing that happens yes. with the parents in the body. Yes, exactly. Uh, and Richie is like looking around Georgie's room and he like notices like uh, Georgie has like they're, they're like pictures that Georgie colored like, uh, you know, tacked up or whatever. And he was like five years old. So they're kind of badly colored. Uh, and Richie being Richie like sees it and he thinks, um, you know, kid wasn't too cool about staying in the lines. Richie thought and then shuddered. The kid was never going to get any better at it either. Richie looked at the table by the window. Mrs. Denborough had stood up all of Georgie's rank cards there, half open, looking at them, knowing there would never be more, knowing that George had died before he could stay in the lines when he colored, knowing his life had ended irrevocably and eternally with only those few kindergarten and first grade rank cards, all the idiot truth of death 
crashed home to Richie for the first time. It was as if a large iron safe had fallen into his brain and buried itself there. I could die, his mind screamed at him suddenly in notes or uh, tones of betrayed horror. Anybody could. Anybody could. Boy, oh boy, he said in a shaky voice. Right, and I just really like that uh, move of like, you know, like the, the first time Richie Tozier really understands death. It's great. Yeah. I mean, look, I, we've, we've talked a lot in detail uh, about this book and like stuff that's happening. But in just a basic way, S- Steve is writing his ass off. Uh-huh. Like there's there's so much in this book that is just like artfully done. It is probably the most, you know, I mean, it's the Babe Ruth, right? Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's knocking it out of the park and like the language used is knocking it out of the park. I, this is his best written it, book since The Shining. It is his, uh, that was a thing actually, it was a thought that I had in my notes like from early on, but like this is him like not always. <laughs> it might have been, if he had a different editing apparatus going on, uh, it might have turned out slightly different. But like there are parts of this where like you can see him swinging at literary style much more mm-hmm. clearly and landing it. Right. Um, much more than he ever really has before. Yeah. Uh, mine is uh, section five of like the final chapter. It's the section that is about the glass corridor in the library exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no reason for it to explode. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's two pages, but it's it's just about uh, it's about that at one time before you could go from library to library and not have to put your coat on. Mm hmm. Um, and so this is in the middle. Perhaps only Ben himself could really have told them how it was to stand outside in the still cold of a January night, your nose running, the tips of your fingers numb inside your mittens, watching the people pass back and forth inside, walking through winter with their coats off and surrounded by light. And he goes on and on and on. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's Babe Ruth in it, right? Like mm-hmm. he is just like doing the damn thing. And, and it's a, it's a kingism in the sense that this is just a tightly caught piece of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It's a tightly caught piece of the world that he's very good at describing. And I wouldn't be shocked to find out if maybe this was biographical as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it has that kind of feel to it, but that's it. The next segment is what in the king of some stuff that shows up, you know, just what's going on in the Kingiverse. Now that that is really finally coming to bear, we get a couple of those uh, that we've talked about already that we'll relist here. But uh, what, do, what do you got? What do you got, Michael? Okay, so uh, Derry, had, this is this is the first real Derry story, but Derry was first mentioned, weirdly enough, in the Bachman book, The Running Man. Um, hmm. Yeah, just mentioned briefly. Uh, so now we have uh, Derry as a location, but a town near Derry, uh, a small town sort of north of it, I think, uh, called Haven is mentioned multiple times. Uh, and that is the town where the Tommyknockers takes place. We also already we can tell that King is already drafting the Tommyknockers because a character who lives in Haven, who's like a when, when we get like the big cinematic like Salem's Lot Wandering Eye thing. There's a character, a woman who lives in Haven named Rebecca Paulson. Uh, There is a short story that was included with like a limited edition run of Skeleton Crew called The Revelation of Rebecca Paulson. Um, And that is just a uh, it is a chapter that ends up being in the Tommyknockers. Like, mildly rewritten, but, uh, yeah, the revelations of Becca Paulson. Um, So, like, the fact that she has already shown up in this story uh, that is sort of collected and now she's being mentioned here in it uh suggests that king is already hard at work on the tommy knockers uh 
Also, Ben, for whatever reason, uh, I mean, you know, he goes out to the West. He lives in Nebraska uh, and he lives in Hemingford Home, which is the town where Mother Abigail lives in the stand. Uh, also, there is a brief mention of the ghost town of Gatlin, where Children of the Corn takes place. Yep. Yeah. So we are like really uh, Sidewinder doesn't show up for some reason, but you could you could imagine if it did. Right. Yeah. Like. All of this is being really tightly brought together. The King of Earth is getting really explicitly um, uh, kind of described. And yes, uh, King is like hyper uh, uh, at work on this in the Fangoria interview about it that that we talked back and forth uh, about a little bit. Um, uh, uh, I've mentioned it here already, but you and I have chatted about it off mic. And we'll talk more about it as we uh, as we get into some of the next stuff. But he, the Tommy Knockers, is in one of the books that he's releasing in the eighteen month period. It comes out in eighty seven, mm-hmm. and it's I think done by the time that it comes out. Okay, because um, there's some contemporary interviews here where he's like, uh, I think it's an interview from eighty five where he's like, uh, it's in I believe this this uh, bare bones book where he where he's like, hey, I wrote this thing about a uh, about a coke machine that goes down the road and runs people over. It's in this new book I got calling called Tommy Knockers. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> and he liked he just talks about his own robot for a long time. It's very funny. If you're curious about robots, um, they're coming up. I promise. Uh, it, apparently, its children are black manta rays. Yeah. Oh, uh, so when they arrive, uh, oh, this is actually oh god, I forgot about this. The other thing yeah, to like counterbalance all of the sexuality <laughs> stuff is that it is female and it is pregnant, right? So there's something here right. about like. You know, we finally get down to the bottom of everything, and it's the monstrous feminine. Um, right. But uh, and re- it's reproductive feminism. Yes. Or not, not no. feminine, <laughs> not feminism, uh, but reproductive feminine, right? The the idea of, of uh, a creature that is female reproducing on its own, mm-hmm. making the worst stuff possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But yeah, so that's, yeah. That, yeah, it is a female. Yeah. And it's like, it's laying eggs and it's sort of, I guess it's suggested that like, this is all it has been doing the entire time it's been on earth has basically been like gestating these eggs. Um, and it's like dropping them after they, uh, uh, this is in the adult timeline. It's like dropping them and like Ben's going around stomping on them with his work boots. Uh, but they are just dis- when it's described like you can they're sort of semi-transparent and you can sort of see through them. And weirdly enough, when they crack, like when Ben steps on them, they're like little spiders in there. But when you can kind of you know how you can hold a, a like a an egg up to a light and you can see like the, the embryo in there. Uh, you can kind of see through it and the shadows that are moving in there are described as a uh, black manta rays, which is of course mm. the form of the big thing that flies out of the overlook hotel at the end of the shining. Mm-hmm. So kind of, kind of uh, the King of verse getting drawn together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, uh, of course, Dick Halloran shows up. We talked about that before. We already knew he was in the military. We did not know he was there for a mass murder event. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow failed to mention that yeah. in his many things he talked about in the shining. And then also Christine shows up. Yeah. Pennywise or it, whatever just sends Christine to pick up uh, Henry uh, and uh, take him to his location. Yep. Um, and it's straight up Christine and Belch is driving it. Uh huh. Um, the scene where Henry apologizes to Belch for Belch getting decapitated or whatever yeah. by it, that's kind of my my runner-up for uh, my favorite Kingism. Uh, <laughs> that's a really weird and cool scene mm-hmm. uh, that, that does. But yeah, it's just Christine. It's just good old-fashioned fa- Plymouth Fury. Yep. And re- uh, yeah, red and white. So like 
I guess, you know, at the end of Christine, it was implied Christine wasn't done. I guess she wasn't. She, like, finished off Dennis or whatever and then zipped to Derry. Yeah. Uh, the next one you have here is On the Beam. Yeah, there's a, uh, it says, like, every, when everything is on the beam or something. Oh, yeah. It's in, in, in one of their 1958 sections. Uh, yeah, they're just uh, straight up. It's he because he's working on the drawing of the three at the same time. Um, yes, you know, obviously we're, we're about to talk about it, but it's funny to hear him in '85. Uh, there in that Fangoria interview, I think it's one of those, or maybe the interview he did right before that. But he's like, "Yeah, I'm working on the drawing of the three. I don't know when it's going to be done, and and it's the next book that comes out. Um, so that's it's really fascinating that that must have come together very quickly for him. Um, but, uh, yeah, so like the beam and all that stuff that's here, that's, mm-hmm. that's all here to begin with. Yeah. And if you haven't listened, if you haven't read Stephen King, you have no idea what we're talking about. It's a dark tower thing. We'll get to it. Yeah. You don't um, have to know about it. Yeah. You just have to know what we're telling you. Uh, and then your last one here is, yeah, this quote from the end, uh, the circle closes, the wheel rolls and that's all there is. Uh, Yeah. The 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 cause like a wheel. Mm-hmm. This is the first run at at cause like a wheel. Yep. Um, and something I didn't notice that this was in a, an essay from Reign of Fear, the thing that I read the Whoopi Goldberg uh, section from. Uh, the uh, uh, the pointing out that that fortune and the wheel of fortune that you know that was a big part of the mm-hmm. dead zone. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been here the whole time. And so what you can trace this is where the method pays off, right? Starts as the Wheel of Fortune, gets kind of transmorphed into this thing here in it, and eventually that gets systematized into this kind of metaphysical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the quote from The Beam. It was one of those perfect summer days, which in a world where everything was on track and on the beam, you would never forget. Uh, right? Yep. So it's all here. Yep. King of Verse, fully formed. Uncle Stevie's mixtape. This is the segment. Oh, jeez. <laughs> this is the segment where uh, we work through... All of the musical references that we found in the thing that we just read, because Steve loves music and we want to hear like what he's maybe listening to or having his characters listen to and and make our judgments known. Uh, This is a long one. This is the longest one since Christine. Uh, So we're and this is a long, long episode. This is way longer than our Christine episode. So I guess we're just going to try to like burn through it here. As fast as possible. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So I got the first one here. Uh, My Town by the Michael Stanley Band. This song is simultaneously one star and four stars. It is, I recommend starting my listening for this pod or for this uh, mixtape with this song was so surreal. It is like you fed Seeger, uh, uh, Seeger, uh, Mellencamp, and Springsteen into like a neural network and told it to write a song. Like, it is, like, all of those things. It is, like, the most, like, processed, like, characterless version of all of those guys. Uh, So, one star and four stars because it's bad, but also reminds me of lots of things that are good. My My Hey Hey by Neil Young. That is a rock staple. Three stars. Heard it through the grapevine. Marvin Gaye. Four stars. No Surrender. Springsteen. Two stars. Probably the worst song on that album. Glory Days. Springsteen. Four stars. Born in the USA, Springsteen. Three stars. Not the worst song, but not the best song on that album. Uh, Midnight Angel by Barbara Mandrell. Uh, this is a weird country sto- song. She's not a very well-known artist, it seems like. Uh, kind of like a, a Tammy Wynette or like the Judds in kind of her tone. Uh, it's all right. Two stars. 
Rubber Band Man by the Spinners. There's a bunch of weird, bad 1950s music in here, and this is one of them. This three is, stars. I love this song, Cameron. I love that I mean, song. You can, it's three so stars. I didn't give it one I star. Just, it's no Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, Summertime Blues by Eddie Cochran. We've absolutely reviewed this one before. I don't remember what we gave it. I'm giving it four stars now. <laughs> yeah, I look, I got to say this really quick. Whatever I've given Eddie Cochran in the past, I was wrong. Every Eddie Cochran song is five stars. Mm-hmm. They're all great. <laughs> Uh, Splish Splash, Bobby Darren, three stars. It's a song for babies, <laughs> but babies love it. Uh, Earth Angel uh, by the Penguins, four stars. Love this song. Whole lot of shaking going on. Jerry Lee Lewis. I put four stars, but I should have said five. It's five stars. Song, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Uh, Here's to the State of Richard Nixon by Phil Ox. Uh, This is two stars, not because I disagree with it, uh, but because it is just like insanely depressing to listen to and (laughs) realize absolutely none of the things that Phil Ox is complaining about have been addressed or changed in any way. Uh, Hey, he gave us the EPA. Bristol Stomp by the Dovells, three stars. Like a Virgin by Madonna, four stars. No, not five. What I thought four was our upper limit. Can we give it five stars? If it's so, it's I five it was, stars. I, I thought I thought we had five stars. Oh, okay, yeah. Then it's all all of my fours. Okay, so yeah, like a virgin, like that's five stars. Okay, uh, come softly to me, the Fleetwoods, fifties uh, music, two stars. Okay, uh, light my fire by the Doors, four stars. Rock and Robin by Bobby Day, another song for children, but this is a pretty good one, so four stars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my toot toot by rockin sydney <laughs> do you know this song cameron uh it, i is the i think they sing it in the book right it's it's a zydeco song okay and <laughs> it's the it was such a weird thing to encounter here uh many people think zydeco sounds awful and nightmarish like you know bagpipes or something i love bagpipes i love zydeco four stars uh uh diana by paul anka Uh, it sounds like another 50s song uh two stars Mm. don't it make you want to go home by joe south two stars no it doesn't uh surfing bird by the trashman one star (laughs) this is the worst music from the uh i'm not a juvenile delinquent by frankie lyman and the teenagers um, this is another song that if you haven't heard it, I highly recommend you listen to it just because like that's literally the chorus is just singing. I'm not a juvenile delinquent, <laughs> which cool. is a, a weird thing to sing. Uh, this is four stars because I like this kind of performance. Tallahassee Lassie, three stars. Uh, sea Cruise by Frankie Ford, uh, three stars. Don't Back Down by the Beach Boys, four stars. It could be uh, a better. It could be like Hang On to Your Ego or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Surfing USA by the Beach Boys, um, four stars. Good job on turning in a song that's two minutes and 30 seconds long. Rock and Roll is Here to Stay by Eddie and the Juniors, one star. Unfortunately, Eddie and the Juniors were not here to stay. <laughs> this is me doing my radio voice, roasting a bunch of dead people. <laughs> Uh, Shock the Monkey by Peter Gabriel, uh, three stars. She Blinded Me with Science, Thomas Dolby, five stars. This is one of the greatest songs ever made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just period. St- full stop. Uh, I agree. Long Line Skinner Blues by Jerry Silver, two stars. This is a weird song. It's like some sort of... Tutti Fruity. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just—it's—it's it's like a weird, like bluegrass song. I, I don't understand where it comes from. Continue. 
Oh, weird. Tutti Fruity by Little Richard, five stars. This is also somehow one of the greatest songs ever made. <laughs> uh, Peggy Sue by Buddy Holly, three stars. High School Confidential by Jerry Lee Lewis, one star. Boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Only Make Believe by Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn, four stars. You gotta love it. You gotta lose it. John Lee Hooker, two stars. It's fine. It sounds like every John Lee Hooker song. Uh, the Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard, four stars. Not a tutti fruity, but still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Shaboom by The Chords, one star. Boring. Uh, Bebopalula by Gene Vincent, three stars. Sausalito Summer Night, one star, because that is an insufferable title. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, Sausalito, uh, here on a hot wax Wednesday, it's Sausalito <laughs> Summer Night. <laughs> By Diesel. Here we go. Ooga, bagoom, bagoom. And here we go. Uh, Rock and Roll Girls by John Fogarty. One star. Love CCR. Love John Fogarty. I hate this song. There is, I, I'm sorry. I know we're, we're like trying to race toward the ending. The section of the book where they discuss John Fogarty and CCR. We're on the, like the off ramp of the off ramp of this novel. And we get a full paragraph of two people having a non-conversation about whether John Fogarty is good or bad by himself, uh, you know, away from CCR. Yeah. (laughs) What is happening? Anyway, Green River by CCR. It's four stars. It's great. CCR. Uh, Pretty good. I Knew the Bride When She Used to Rock and Roll by Nick Lowe. Oh, my God. This song is terrible. One star. Okay, all right. That's it. That's oh Uncle Stevie's mixtape. You let us know what you think. Hey, we got a first-time caller here who says they love Rock and Roll Girls by John Fogarty. Uh, what do you have to say to their caller? That's, oh my God, that's such a bad song. Like, the one about hey, baseball is hey, better. Hey, uh, you got to keep that language. You got to keep that language down, buddy. We're on the radio. Do you mind turning off your radio? Sir, we're getting a little bit of feedback. The baseball song. And that's all the time we have in this episode. We're going into the outro. Michael, what is the next book that we're reading? (sighs) So next week. No. Next month, Jesus Christ! I hope not, but for the love of God, for the love of God, reading it just, just like from you know, look, we just spent about four and a half hours talking about this book. We spent so long researching and reading this book. Uh huh. <laughs> you would not believe we have each put in sixty to eighty hours for it. For the love of God, if you don't support us on Patreon yet, <laughs> think about doing it. <laughs> it really is, and we've spent. A thousand dollars, give or take, somewhere in that realm, just on like Stephen King archival materials at this point to inform the next several episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you don't support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch, think about doing it. If you don't do that or you can't afford it, that's totally cool. It's whatever, right? Like it's just a thing that's beneficial to us. But think about sharing this episode somewhere. It took a lot of work to do. Uh, including just like the absolute mind annihilating nature of reading this book so closely. And then I've had to watch the miniseries twice. Mm-hmm. Two times. It's long. Anyway, so <laughs> that's all to say. What's our next book, Mike? Next month, we are returning to the road to the Dark Tower. We will be reading The Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three from 1987. Cool. All right. It's pretty good. I'm yeah. excited. Well, do, do we know what our, our in our bonus episode for it? So our bonus episode right now that you can listen to currently 
Uh, it's up on the Patreon, is on the miniseries, the, the uh, 1990 miniseries that was on ABC. Mm-hmm. Next month, our bonus episodes are going to be on both It movies, the, the two movies that have happened recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've actually purchased physical copies of these, and they do have commentaries on them. So I'm excited about that. Great. So we, yeah. Not super common for a, you know, a newer movie. We have finished It, but if you are supporting us on Patreon, we are by no means done with Pennywise. Uh, I guess that's that's everything. You want to want to send us out into the world, Cameron? Well, just like Gar- no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, sometimes you got to do it for Pennywise, but uh, I think we do it for Steve.